Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Blessed be this Saturday afternoon, March 12th, as we wait, await in one week on the 20th, the spring equinox. It is a, such a powerful time on the planet. And we are here doing our part to create heaven on earth. So let us begin in our divine service going into our heart center. As you enter into your heart portal, we call forth individually for each of us to fully integrate and anchor, merge more completely with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence. Take a nice deep breath and see yourself in your mighty pillar of light. Within the pillar is the violet fire that we will be working with today, along with the most exquisite golden frequencies of eternal peace and infinite abundance. See, sense, and feel this energy around you as we call forth to merge multidimensionally with every aspect of our being through to our God presence, our Goddess presence. See, sense, and feel your mighty pillar of light anchored directly from source to the heart of Mother Gaia. As we recommit ourselves to this divine service of being the bridge between heaven and earth, being the anchor for the new golden age and being the open door that no one can shut. Go deeper into your heart portal as we call forth our I am presence to have full and complete command of our being. Our every thought, word, deed, action, reaction, our every belief, perception, memory, every experience of life. And as our I am presence, it is at this level that we are connected with everyone. And thus we call in, and I ask you to repeat after me, I am my I am presence. <clears throat> as my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. Feel that connection. Feel that oneness. As we call forth everyone to join us in unity consciousness to receive the benefits of all that we invoke here today.
in that oneness, we invoke for one and all, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families, our soul pods. We welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. (coughs) We welcome as well all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels, through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healing teams. We welcome all of the realms of the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries, divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all ascended master healing teams. We welcome our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light. We welcome the Ashtar Command and all of the healing teams from those planetary systems, those star systems that we work with most closely, especially from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus, and all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service. We ask for the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it 10 billion times, 10 billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth the assistance of all the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, and all ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level in divine order for each being, as well as within every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field multidimensionally. And that we easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody these frequencies and all of the gifts that we receive. With the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss, ecstasy, serenity, tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We call forth all those in the circle of support from the very first name that created it to each and every person, each individual, family member, loved one, pet, 
animal, each and every group, organization, business, corporation, each and every nation, each military, each government, each governmental leader, each and every weather pattern, each and every situation, each and every condition of life. We call all of it forth to be held in divine perfection, seeing the golden light of Christ consciousness fill all, fill each and every situation, each and every person, each and every group, each and every nation. And we invite in all the energy around all that is taking place around the planet, all of the energy around the month of March, including upcoming this week, St. Patrick's Day, the full moon, St. Joseph's Day, and then the spring equinox next week. All of this energy we invite into our collective cup of consciousness, that we might use it toward the transformation and uplifting of all humanity, of the planet and all upon her. We ask Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field multidimensionally. Through every cell, every chakra, every meridian, every layer of her orc field multidimensionally through the ley lines and the song lines, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system. And through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every molecule of soil, molecule of water, molecule of air. And just see the golden light along with the violet. The violet we're going to be using to transmute and transform the planet, to transfigure it. And seeing that transformation take place as the planet turns into pure golden light. Blazing with eternal peace. Blazing with the golden light of infinite abundance. Blazing with the amazing light of the new golden age. And thus we begin fully connected in unity consciousness with everyone and everything. We call forth once again the violet flame, asking the violet fire to flood this planet and all upon her with the highest frequencies of the solar crystalline diamond light of the violet flame in through and around, again, every molecule, every cell, every aspect of everyone and the planet multidimensionally. And we say, in the name of the great I am, I call for the light of a thousand from the great 
angels of fire. Beloved Saint Germain. Beloved Archangel Kiel Amethyst. And Amritas, ruler of the violet planet. In the name of Goddess, I am them. Saturated and all of her evolution with limitless waves of the fire. I call action violet transmuting flame and the action of the wheel of God goddess to manifest on earth now and forever an ever increasing spiral of divine perfection. I call for all discord and all activities on earth that are not reflecting the highest light and our Mother, Father, God's holy purposes to be miraculously swept and transformed by the power of the violet into divine love and harmony for the restoration of earth and her people into their original blueprint of perfection that was originally intended. Violet flame, violet flame, oh violet flame, can see it, feel it, touch it, know that it's there in through and around you and around the planet. In the name of God, Goddess, to flood the earth, her people, and all her kingdoms with oceans and oceans of oceans of violet fire until every particle of life is fully restored to divine perfection. May peace and love be spread throughout the earth May the earth abide in the aura of perfect love. May the earth abide in an aura of peace, love, and freedom. I give thanks that this is now done according to God, Goddess's most holy will. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. As we anchor this violet fire for ourselves and humanity, we're going to ask for an even deeper cleansing. We're going to use what's called the 50-point cosmic clearing. And regardless of what's going on, I feel like this is a, an essential process to do on a regular basis. And so again, we call in all of the cleansing rays. We call in all of the energies that can assist in this cosmic clearing. Welcoming the assistance of the entire company of heaven. As we call forth individually and collectively, 
for a planetary and cosmic axiotonal alignment. We call forth Lord Michael to establish a golden dome of protection for each one. And we call forth to Vawamis and the archangels to bring forth their golden hands as a net to cleanse all negative energies in our energy fields individually and collectively. As we call this forth for ourselves, we call this forth for every man, woman, and child and welcome them to join us to receive this simultaneously. We call forth from Lord Melchizedek, the Mahatma and Metatron, the anchoring of the platinum net, to cleanse the energy fields of each person even more deeply. And we call forth now to the Lord of Arcturus and the Arcturians for the anchoring of the prana wind clearing device, both individually and in our group body and in our collective consciousness. We're going to call both levels of the prana wind clearing device. One will be anchored at the solar plexus level flowing and clearing all unwanted energies out of the etheric body. We also ask for the prana wind clearing device to be anchored at the heart level in divine order for each person. As they work with us, know that they will be complete and be lifted out of our energy fields by the Lord of Arcturus, the beloved Arcturians, in divine order for each of us, individually and collectively. We now call forth from Kul, the seven Kohans, Lord Maitreya, Allah Gobi, Lord Buddha, and the Cosmic Masters to anchor the core fear removal program. This is most often seen as a lattice work of light anchored into the four-body system, highlighting any negative energies or blockages in the energy field. Can we call this forth for one and all as we ask for the removal of all fear programming and blocks from every single person so that each may achieve their ascension at the highest possible level? Sometimes this fear programming can be seen as black roots intertwined in your energy field now being pulled out like a vacuum cleaner through your crown chakra by the Ascended Masters. Planetary and cosmic hierarchy, please now remove all separative thinking from the four-body system and multidimensionally as well. Please now remove all judgmental programming from the four-body system. Please remove all lack of forgiveness Planetary and cosmic hierarchy, please remove all impatience and negative anger. Please remove all negative selfishness, greed, self-centeredness, and narcissism. Please remove any and all negative thought forms, feelings, and emotions, and any imbalanced archetypes from the four-body system. Please remove all superiority thinking 
and all inferiority thinking created by the negative ego. Please remove all aspects of guilt and shame consciousness created by the negative ego. Please remove all negative ego and fear-based programming in a generalized sense from each individual and from the collective in divine order. Please cleanse and remove any and all harmful extraterrestrial implants and negative elementals. We call for the cleansing and removal of all unwanted astral entities. We call forth now to Lord Melchizedek, the Mahatma, and Metatron for the cosmic viral vacuum to remove any clinical or subclinical viruses currently existing in any of our energy fields. Please also remove any and all negative bacteria with the cosmic bacterial vacuum program. We ask as well for the complete removal of all negative fungal energies with the Cosmic Fungal Vacuum Program. And we call forth to the Archangels and the Elohim to remove all dis-ease energy from the physical, etheric, astral, and mental vehicles. We call forth each individual's personal inner plane healing angels to now heal and repair any irritations, spots, and or leaks in the orc field. We call forth to Lord Melchizedek, the Mahatma, Metatron, Archangel Mikael, and all the archangels for the removal of all improper soul fragments. So as we do this, we're calling forth aspects of ourselves that we may have left behind in other times and spaces. We ask for them to be perfectly cleansed and purified and sanctified and returned to us in divine order. And we also ask for both the removal of all soul fragments that belong to others to be cleansed, purified, and sanctified and returned to them And, of course, as we said, the retrieval of all soul fragments from the universe that belong to us in divine order, perfectly cleansed, purified, sanctified. And we give thanks for this as we move into greater and greater wholeness. We call forth each person's etheric healing team. We request that the etheric body be repaired and brought back to its perfect blueprint. We call forth for the anchoring now of each person's perfect divine monadic blueprint body and or Maya Varupa body to be used from this moment forward to accelerate healing and spiritual growth on all levels during the rest of this lifetime. We call forth the complete cleansing and clearing of our genetic line and ancestral lineage. We call forth the Lord of Arcturus to now bring forth the golden cylinder to remove and vacuum up any and all remaining negative energy in our collective energy fields. We call for the clearing and cleansing of all past lives and future lives. We call for now the integration and cleansing of our 144 soul extensions from our monad and mighty I am presence. We call for the clearing and cleansing of all karma, asking for the greatest possible cleansing of any karma now. And we call forth Lord Melchizedek, 
Mahatma, Lord Metatron, to anchor a matchstick worth of cosmic fire, to very gently burn away all astral, mental, and etheric dross and any great clouds from our fields. We now request a complete clearing and cleansing of our entire monad in the mighty I Am Presence itself. We call for the greatest possible cleansing ever known from Melchizedek, Mahatma, Metatron, Lord Michael, the Archangels, the Elohim Councils, and from Mother, Father, God. We now call for the um, ultimate cosmic cleansing and clearing all the way back to our original covenant with God, Goddess, at our original spiritual creation. Take a nice deep breath as you receive this blessing, grace, and dispensation. We now call forth from all the cosmic and planetary masters gathered here and the entire company of heaven that is working with us, a downpouring and light shower of core love, core light, in the Christ, Buddha, and Melchizedek attributes to replace all that has been removed and cleansed by the divine grace of God, Goddess, in the cosmic and planetary hierarchy. We call upon Archangel Sandalphon, Pan, and Mother Earth to help us become properly integrated and grounded back into our physical bodies with ease and grace and joy. And we call forth our personal interplane healing angels to perfectly balance, once again, our chakras and multidimensional body system. Breathe in a wonderful sense of well-being and crystal clarity. As we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. As we have been through such great transformation, we call forth the golden rays of eternal peace and abundance. Can see them, sense them, feel them. Wave after wave of eternal peace. Wave after wave of divine abundance. Surrounding this planet, filling each person upon the planet. As we visualize this, and say the golden rays of eternal peace and abundance from the causal body of God Goddess are now flowing through the cup of my consciousness consciousness, into the heart of every evolving soul. Feel it flowing through you, through your heart, reaching each and every heart, each and every person, each and every mind, each and every body, each being, each soul. seeing that golden light flood through you as you are a perfect channel of the divine right here and right now. This golden light is pulsating with frequencies of the fifth dimension beyond anything humanity has ever experienced. Contained within the essence of this flame of eternal peace is God's infinite abundance. 
and contained within the essence of God's infinite abundance is the flame of eternal peace. I breathe in deeply and I become one with this golden light as I enter the secret place of the most high living God within my heart. As I enter the sacred space on the holy breath, I am open and receptive to the impulses pouring forth from the heart and mind of God Goddess. The hour has at last arrived, and the divine fiat has been issued by our Mother Father God. For the divinity pulsating within my heart flame to be given full liberty and freedom of expression. My I am presence rejoices in this divine edict and will now give me every possible assistance in manifesting the patterns of perfection from the causal body of God on earth. I become a keeper of the flame of eternal peace and abundance in accordance with my divine destiny. My earthly bodies are brought into perfect balance and latent powers encoded within my heart flame are released. The abilities I have developed over eons of time that will assist me in co-creating the new earth are brought into a balanced state of true mastery. Take a nice deep breath and receive. The immortal, victorious threefold flame within my heart begins to expand and expand. The blue flame of divine power from my Father God empowers the golden flame of eternal peace and abundance in the hearts of all humanity. The pink flame of divine love from my mother God directs the flame of eternal peace and abundance through every heart flame and floods the earth to bless all life. The yellow gold flame of divine wisdom from the sons and daughters of God Goddess enlightens every mind to the divine truth that eternal peace and infinite abundance are inseparable aspects of God's perfection and all is well. I realize these are days of great acceleration due to the influx of divine consciousness that has been flooding the earth. The vibratory action of every facet of life is being stepped up the maximum the cosmic law will allow in every 24-hour period. The golden flame of eternal peace and abundance now pouring through my heart assists me in maintaining balance through this process. It allows me to experience the bliss and joy of this activity of light involving Earth's ascension into greater perfection. I am now reaching into a new octave of my godhood. And my mother, father, God are able to more easily move through me. My eyes become blazing rays of light through which the light of God blesses all life. My hands become mighty conductors of God's healing power. My lips become the instruments 
through which God's words are formed and directed into the physical plane of earth. My feet walk the path of light. My life force now becomes the vehicle through which God, Goddess, enters the world to love and serve all life. I realize and accept my unlimited ability to do whatever I desire in order to establish and expand God's perfection in my world and the worlds of all humanity. Through my thoughts, words, actions, and feelings, I am a mighty balancing activity of light pulsating in, through, and around all life on earth. Now, in the name of the infinite presence of God, Goddess, I am, I call to my I am presence and the I am presence of all humanity. As one voice, one heartbeat, one breath, one energy and vibration of pure divine consciousness, I affirm. So please join me in saying, Beloved, I am presence, enfold me now. In God's peace and abundance, as I become an eternal golden sun of this divine light. And we decree, I am an eternal son of God's peace and abundance, now made manifest and permanently sustained by holy grace. I am an eternal son, S-U-N, of God's peace and abundance, now made manifest and permanently sustained by Holy Grace. I am an eternal son of God's peace and abundance, now made manifest and permanently sustained by Holy Grace. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And we decree, I am, I am, I am, the eternally sustained manifestation of God's infinite supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light, now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I am, I am, I am the eternally sustained manifestation of God's infinite supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I am, I am, I am the eternally sustained manifestation of God's infinite supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light now made manifest 
and sustained by holy grace. In deep love and appreciation for my glorious gift of life, I consecrate my heart and soul to be the open door for the patterns of perfection from the causal body of God until the new earth is manifest and all life evolving here is wholly ascended and free. It is done and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. And so holding that flame of golden light, we ask to fully anchor the golden light of Christ consciousness. We ask to fully anchor the golden flame of eternal peace and the golden flame of infinite abundance. We see it envelop the planet that peace may be maintained on this planet, be established fully in every person, every individual, every group, every nation, every place upon this planet. Be filled with the highest frequencies of divine peace. Be filled with the highest frequencies of Christ consciousness. Be filled with the highest frequencies of infinite abundance. Knowing that they are all intertwined and working with us to establish this new golden age. So please hold this visual this week. with more and more Christ consciousness anchored, more and more eternal peace anchored for one and all in every location across the planet. Not only in places that seem to be the obvious, but every place that there is conflict, every place that there is violence. Let the transmutation that we've done be complete right here and right now. As we decree, beloved Mother, Father, God, we are ready. We are ready for the establishment of the new golden age. We are ready for the anchoring of heaven on earth. We are ready for eternal peace and infinite abundance for one and all. And so it is. And this, we hold this intention through to our spring equinox here next week. And we will add to it next Saturday. And I thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service here this afternoon. We ask for the assistance of Archangel Sandalphon and Mother Gaia. For ourselves and every man, woman, and child. Again, to anchor this permanent age of eternal peace and infinite abundance, and Christ consciousness. We give thanks for this. 
and I give thanks to each and every one of you for joining me in this meditation. I invite you to join us every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Call. Can we redo this work of anchoring heaven on earth? We begin the call at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. And this would be a good time to mention that we are losing an hour. Most of us are experiencing daylight savings time starting overnight. So please make sure your clocks are appropriately set. Usually a cell phone will do that automatically. (laughs) Put your alarm on so that you don't miss the call that you're not an, on an hour difference time timeline. So we're springing forward and thus losing an hour overnight. So 8.45 p.m., this is going to be now Eastern Daylight Savings Time and 5.45 p.m. Pacific Daylight Savings time. I usually don't use the savings time because it's going to be the same time whether we're on it or not. So we begin with greetings, about 25 minutes, and then Tara and Rama come in and bring us a short update. We begin our work in earnest at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific time where we truly are the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut. Please let us know if you're joining us for the first time. Please say hello. We'd love to have you as a regular part of our family of light doing this divine service work that we've been doing since February of 2010. So we thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service. Let me give you that phone number. It's a teleconference call. The main number is area code 425-436-6260. Again, it's area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946 Seven four four one pound nine four six seven four four one pound. There are additional phone numbers to dial into. There's international numbers. You can come in on the computer. I understand there's also an app. So please let me know if you need that additional information by contacting me by email. Cheryl Croce, my name is C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. And join us on a regular basis. You'll get that extra information in all of our updates. And we bless and bless and bless each and every one of you. Magic and miracles manifest in this week as we enter our time period of the spring equinox where everything is greater balance. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service. We want to thank at this time Tara and Rama for their divine service. We want to thank 
Rainbird for her divine service. Much love and gratitude to all of you. Have a most magnificent week. Love and appreciation to all. And with that, I'm going to extend the, the talking stick that carries all of the frequencies I've worked with much more. The violet, gold, the pink, the blue, the yellow gold of the threefold flame. But radiates such waves of peace that everyone knows how abundant they truly are. So lots of magic here, Rainbird, as I pass the talking stick. Magic and miracles abound for us all. And here it is. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl, for that talking stick with all that magic and miracles. <laughs> and lots of gratitude for your life and, and being here each week and doing what you do to bring us into such a good space and do the work that we do. So thank you. And I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are listening supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. Each week we have expenses of $300 for our services with PBS radio. And uh, that's what we need this week. So the, that, that bill is due on Monday. So we like to be prompt with getting that in. And uh, so go into your heart space and see what is yours to give. And then go to bbsradio.com and click on radio station 2 or you scroll down and what you're looking for is the menu because that's how we access our account. So we've got three programs on that menu on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. That's Thursday at the 6 o'clock hour, and these are all Pacific times. Um, is the night at the round table with the panel. You can click on that icon there and that'll take you directly to our account. We're using your bank card. You can make a donation in any amount. And the Friday program is the truth, uh, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. And that icon there at the six o'clock hour uh, is where that's located. Click on that. That takes you to our account. And the same is true for this program with True History, History, and the Terror and Our Galactic Origins at the 1.30 hour. And uh, click on that icon. Any Anyone works, and we're grateful for that you take that action and, and make a contribution. Thank you for your generosity and thank you for your participation. So we're grateful. We're grateful for all that PBS Radio does and provides for the work that we do here and we're grateful for all that Tara and Rama do and so we also assist Tara and Rama with their needs and this week they need um, $300 to cover the bills that are due this week and they also need $300 to cover their uh, living expenses, food and gas and such. So Um, here's how we make a contribution to Tara and Rama. You want to link to Rama's PayPal account, and you do that by going to our web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, as you click on that menu grid at the top of the page, the menu drops down, and there's a 
donate link near the bottom of that list. Click on that and that will link you to Rama's PayPal account. Or you can make a donation in any amount with using your bank card. So again, thank you for your generosity and attention to this matter. Um, if you have your own PayPal account, you would want to use uh, to uh, access the friends option by using Rama's email at PayPal, and that email address for Rama at PayPal is Koran K O R A N nine 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 four nine at hotmail dot com. And then you can <clears throat> follow the instructions there. So that's how that works. So thank you, thank you, thank you for all all the ways that you show up in your life, and thank you for uh, assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. They um they need to know that you've sent something. So here's the email address to let Rama know that you sent something, and that address is Koran K O R A N nine 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 at comcast.net and that lets them know what's happening and then also if you need it the physical address Ram D. Berkowitz R-A-M-D Berkowitz B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z and that's at post office box 280280 and that's located in Santa Cruz New Mexico. The zip code in Santa Cruz is 87567. So thank you. Thank you for your support for Tara and Rama and, and for the radio and all the ways that you show up in your lives. And I also want to give you the address, the addresses for Fremart and for the new gen coin. So the Fremart address, this is a great place to get great products and for our bodies, our immune systems, and also for our environmental challenges as well. Plus, they also do a lot of abundance programs with this site. So here it goes, HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemart.com dot com forward slash T A R R A M and that's the username for that account for the twenty thirteen Rainbow Roundtable account there at Fremark. And then also they are definitely linked <laughs> to the new gen coin and I want to give you that address. This is a, an amazing way to generate passive income. Here's the address for the Rainbow Roundtable account there, which is where you want to sign up under. So here it is. It's HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash then www.newgen that's spelled N U G E N coin C-O-I-N dot com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M So good luck with that. It's lots of fun. And, uh, yeah, lots of gratitude for your participation and all that. So with that, I'm passing the talking stick, and you, you know it's got all the rays that we need and everything's happening on that talking stick. So I'm sending it with lots of fairies and feathers and uh, all the little people 
the gnomes and and elves and and menahunis. <laughs> and so, greetings, Sar and Rama. Here comes the talking stick. And I also want to say 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Long life, live long and prosper. So here's the talking stick now. Thank you and greetings, greetings. everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, everyone. Rama's got a good report uh, regarding circumstances that are being reported in a very, uh, they're just saying it's going to be a long war. That's what the lamestream media is saying. And I talked to Leonora today by text, and she said that we are watching the end of a cycle here. And by the end of March, all of this could be a bad dream. She's not giving dates, but she's saying the end of March. And I don't know where to go with that. The astrology is talking that way, too. And I got to put that in the circle of support. She is just saying, stay in the vibration of the violet flame, what Cheryl just shared. This is how we change this story. Hate and war are not solutions. No, they're not. And the propaganda that is coming out of this empire over here um, about the convoluted story about the 13 families is the real deal because it all goes back to that. And as the facts and three white knights have been telling us for weeks now, it's not about Putin. It's about the oligarchs, not just the Russian oligarchs. It's about the U.S. oligarchs and the oligarchs all over the European countries. And they, they want the narrative to be what they want it to be. Right at this time, our sun is approaching its, what they call a transfiguration. And it has been known for a long time. And they try to use the word magic to change the words of what things mean. But it is about the light, the frequencies of the the plasma, the sun, particles of living love, living light coming in, changing our DNA as we choose, yet it is also doing it whether we like it or not, or whether we choose to even tune into it or not. It's raising us up. That's its purpose. And things are about to really get kind of even more intense with the energies as we go into this Virgo full moon. Um, 
I can just say, stay in the high vibrations. That's what I'm being told. They are playing with such atrocities. War is never the answer for any kind of solution. This is what got us here in the beginning of the story. And I don't have to go into the whole Lyra Vega Orion story. Oh, my God. Mom, I was going to say, Ron, that uh, Zelensky uh, gave it away, his uh, statement that... um, Um, I was going to say it, I forgot. Oh, dear. Oh. Well, I'll just say that Lavrov went to a meeting in Turkey regarding this story, and he made a very strong statement that they did not bomb that that maternity hospital. And Rama confirmed that that was an inside job by the Zelensky government, along with the black operative called the United States, Deep State, in order for the oligarchs to get their way to make it look like what they want it to look like. So there's some serious issues, and... The other thing, I, uh, Rama, they were talking about that uh, this lady who was witnessing this, uh, uh, there were soldiers, but she said they didn't look like they had any emotions at all, like there was a blank face. And they shot and killed seven people, and one of them were children. And I'm just saying I'm getting this wonderment feeling. Is there, um, you know, uh, is there robotics in here somewhere? Is there androids. something? Androids walking around? C'est possible. I don't know what to say. They are playing with a very ancient story, and it's at its end. That's what I can say. Blaze the violet fire. And then Vice President Harris spoke at the Democratic National Convention uh, meeting uh, after the European trip where she went to Poland and maybe a, not just Poland, I'm not sure. Uh, and uh the bioweapons laboratories were built uh, by our deep state during the presidency of Trump and some more during the presidency of Biden. Yeah. So that'll tell you how. It doesn't matter what party. It matters that it's an empire and it'll do whatever it wants and uh, propagate disinformation and mind control programs in the people. I can't. We mentioned yesterday that Zelensky, Zelensky has two lovely homes right next door to Mar-a-Lago as well. Yeah, 
I don't even know what to think about that because this is such a convoluted story that is being portrayed in the transmissions across this planet that are propaganda. That's what I can call it. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, since 2014, uh, Yanukovych, I think, was back then, and Poroshenko is in between there. Mm-hmm. These guys are all dirty, dirty dogs. Um, Yanukovych escaped to Russia to hang up. He had his own zoo in the backyard of the government housing where he was. And um, he had chandeliers all over the interior and very expensive things going on there that he was using the Ukrainian people's money to. The corruption. uh, Corrupt. Yeah, that's it. What are you going to say, Ra? Let's say the corruption would make the Ferengi blush. Because they they have outdone the Ferengi, and the Ferengi and Star Trek are the most greedy folks on in the local universe in that storyline. It, it's not funny. Do you have Going Underground queued up there, Rama? Oh, let me find that. Yeah. Um, we've got some remnants of RT available on the internet. And one of them is going underground. And on the 7th, which was last Monday, I believe, um, Medea Benjamin was Afshin Ratanzi's guest. And uh, there was another gentleman on after that. I was thinking of just playing what she had to say. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember what Zelensky, Zelensky did to give himself away. He was suggesting that the Prime Minister of Israel be a mediator. Yeah, negotiator. yeah that sounds kind of weird. It's, it's corrupt. Yeah. Add to the core. This... Mr. Bennett, Bennett is just as evil as Mr. Netanyahu. He's worse. Yeah. He is worse. Okay. Um, and again, 95% plus of people that are living in Israel, they are not Jewish at all. The Jewish people are the Palestinian people. Yeah, it's a giant psyops. plus of the people that call themselves Jewish are Khazarians. Their DNA goes to the uh, Caucasus Mountains of southern Russia and northern Kyrgyzstan. And that's not Jewish. No. And Hitler had claimed Ashkenazi uh, uh, and, uh, they're not Jews. The Ashkenazis are religious. They follow the Jewish religion. That doesn't mean they're Jews. They're Khazarians, too. So this is just, 
there's many things to wake up to. And there's just one of us here anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, all we are saying is give peace a chance. You got you got Medea on there now? Yeah. Okay, well let's just jump in here. We got lots of options here and Oh one more thing is that those bases, those those um bioweapons uh bases, the the jabs are bioweapons. And COVID is not a virus, it's a bioweapon that they they have been uh using those uh Borg nanites. Those bases in the Ukraine to develop, you know, and that, that's another interesting thing because they, every batch of these jabs are different. So if you want to play like you're a good guy, you can get something with just saline solution in it and call it a jab and say, hey, look, I did mine and I'm fine. And uh, then the ones that they want to delete from the program, they do a different batch. Anyway, Dr. Lee Merritt's got plenty to say about that. We'll play that, too. We've got lots to do. So let's get started. Tell us what's, what is this one called? Is it? Um, this is um, Going Underground. Um He's talking with Medea Benjamin from Code Pink. And um, how Mr. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has strengthened NATO and given it purpose after embarrassment in Afghanistan. And it... It, it's quite a... Here we go. <laughs> My words fail to describe how convoluted this is and blaze the violet fire. You're watching Going Underground despite efforts by so-called democratic nations to ban RT around the world. Coming up on the show, war, what is it good for? With thousands now reportedly dead following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we ask the co-founder of grassroots anti-war NGO Code Pink about the road to peace. And delay is death, says the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who claims he has never seen a report like it when it comes to the sixth IPCC assessment report warning that we are approaching irreversible global climate catastrophe. We speak to one of its authors. All this and more coming up in today's Going Underground. But first, today the International Court of Justice 
Justice is holding initial hearings in a case brought by Ukraine against Russia over accusations of genocide. Ukraine is looking to establish that Russian claims that its neighbor has committed acts of genocide in Nyansk and Donetsk are false and that therefore Russia cannot legally claim to be intervening to prevent or punish Ukraine. This is UKPM Boris Johnson accuses Russia of committing war crimes. Joining me now from Miami, Florida is Medea Benjamin, the co-founder of Grassroots Anti-War NGO, Code Pink. Thank you so much, Medea, for uh, coming back on. You know, you've been campaigning against NATO wars for uh, decades. Um, do you think Vladimir Putin has actually now united uh, the world behind NATO, NATO, the organization that you've been so critical of for years? Absolutely. We were looking forward to the uh, June meeting in NATO that is happening in Madrid, organizing around it, saying, you know, this is the time to really uh, take the uh, air out of NATO to show that after Afghanistan and the fiasco there, uh, that NATO is really an aggressive military alliance uh, that is looking towards China now and saying that China is a threat and really is is looking for a purpose. And uh, thanks to Putin, now NATO has its purpose. It's more united than ever. We were criticizing action so much how the U.S. was pushing the NATO countries to fulfill the goal of spending 2% of their gross domestic product on military. And so many of our friends in the NATO countries were fighting that and saying, no, we need that money at home. And suddenly that's all vanished into thin air. And those NATO countries have uh, now announced huge increases in military spending. So this is a huge tragedy for the people of Ukraine uh, and for the entire world, anybody who thought we might get a peace dividend after Afghanistan has now been uh, all of our hopes dashed thanks to Putin and the aggression on Ukraine. Why, though, do you believe it's impossible for the media in NATO countries not to realize that this war has actually been going on for eight years? The media uh, has no historical memory and uh, really is always in the West ready to criticize uh, those that they see as the enemy. And let's also face it, I mean, we have in the uh, U.S. anti-war movement been pushing the media to cover the war in Yemen, the disastrous war that's been going on for seven years. Uh, in fact, we had a protest outside the headquarters in Washington, D.C. of CNN and saying, what about the Yemen war? We want to see that covered. We want to hear about it. We want to understand why the U.S. continues to supply weapons to Saudi Arabia that are killing children every day uh, in Yemen. Uh, so the media uh, has not been um, very objective about covering wars. Um, but I am glad that they are covering this war in Ukraine. People have to see how horrific war is, and maybe they'll understand that all war is horrible. Well, Joe Biden has previously expressed uh, disquiet uh, about the weapon sales by the United States. Obviously, not so much disquiet here in Britain for its role in the Yemen war. And CNN probably say, well, it's a NATO-allied area, Europe. This is why uh, news from Ukraine must take precedence over uh, a war where the UN says 377,000 have been killed in recent years in Yemen. 
Unfortunately, the U.S. Uh, government, the Biden administration, uh, says that it's going to stop, quote, offensive weapon sales to the Saudis. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. The U.S. is still involved in the war in Yemen. And I want to mention Afghanistan because I'm just heartbroken that after 20 years of uh, NATO militarism in Afghanistan with this horrific exit, uh, the Afghan people's money has been stolen by mostly the United States, $7 billion. And that's one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, and so we are working hard to get that money back to the Afghan people. And we're also very concerned about the sanctions on Russia hurting ordinary people because we've seen that's what sanctions around the world do. Uh, they affect the entire economy. Uh, and who is, a, it, it, who is impacted the most? It is working people. We've seen for 60 years how the U.S. has imposed horrific sanctions on Cuba. It hasn't changed the Cuban government, but it's caused such hardship for the Cuban people. Yeah, but uh, the United States has its uh, fighting terrorism, obviously, in Yemen. You don't have to be a NATO general or um, a uh, person in power in NATO countries to say all of Russia must be punished. It's sad, but they just have to be punished uh, as regards, um, well, perhaps even food, who knows, uh, when it comes to the invasion. Well, that's just wrong. I mean, ordinary people have no say over their government. Look at the thousands of very brave people who are coming out on the streets in Russia to protest their government's war and say not in our name. Uh, Those people should not be hurt by it. So sanctions are a kind of economic warfare, and unfortunately, uh, they don't hurt the people in power. I think it's fine to go after the oligarchs in Russia, take their yachts, take their mansions, please do, uh, but don't impose sanctions that are going to uh, make people have a difficult time putting food on their plates or getting medicines. Yeah, I think you've campaigned before against Russian oligarchs before the current sudden decision by uh uh, everyone uh, to uh, realize the money was stolen from the Russian people. What do you think of the arguments, though, as you as you talk about peace made in Russia and uh, Russian think tank circles and people who are pro the Kremlin saying, but, you know, Russia did sort out peace in Nagorno-Karabakh between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, in Georgia, in Syria, after all the uh, U.S. interventions. This is just merely trying to secure peace in Ukraine after the killing of 14,000 people in the eastern provinces is a peace operation. Oh, come on. When you see hundreds of thousands of people fleeing, uh, when you see the kind of destruction that's going on, this is not a peace operation. This is an offensive, uh, illegal invasion of another sovereign country. It is absolutely wrong. And I think all peace activists, those of us who stood up against the invasion of Iraq, against the invasion of Afghanistan, those of us uh, who stand up against uh, the U.S. supplying of weapons to dictatorships like Egypt or the Israeli apartheid regime, we have to be consistent and we have to be against this uh, invasion as well. I call on all peace activists or people who are, are just uh, peace-loving people throughout the world uh, to get out on the streets and to join in demonstrations. And in our actions, we say withdraw the Russian troops, 
we say ceasefire now. We also say no NATO expansion because we think that's absolutely essential when it comes to the negotiating table. And there are ongoing negotiations, and there have to be more. Uh, what is going to be compromised between the two sides? On the U.S. NATO side, there has to be a compromise that says we will not allow Ukraine to be part of NATO. I wish that there were uh, uh, people now, like in the Biden administration, saying that. Uh, I wish they would be saying we've got to get serious about nuclear weapons, and the world should be terrified right now that Russia's nuclear weapons are on high alert. But it should also be a moment where we say, why haven't we forced the world and the, the, the world's leaders who have nuclear weapons to comply with their obligations. There now is a nuclear ban treaty at the United Nations. And this should be a moment where we say we demand as a community of people who do not want to see our globe annihilated by nuclear weapons, that there be a serious uh, end to nuclear weapons by all the nuclear states. Well, indeed, Russia was saying that the ripping up of some of those nuclear accords is part of the reason for the invasion, which, uh, as you say, and as the UN Secretary General says, is inexcusable. Obviously, Israel, which you mentioned there, denies it's an apartheid state, despite whatever NGOs like yourselves or Amnesty International say. Actually, come to think of it, what did you think of uh, Israel voting with the uh, U.S. at the UN General Assembly? The U.S., I don't know when the last time the U.S. has paid attention to the UN General Assembly, but what did you think of Israel voting with the U.S. about... Uh, uh, how this occupation uh, should be deplored. Well, of course, they always vote with the U.S., but uh, there certainly it, it is also a moment to talk about the invasion and occupation of other people's lands. We have to look at uh, the Israelis' actions for decades now in Palestine, and it's interesting that so many in the social media are putting out videos that show the tremendous uh, repression and and beating and explosions uh, in Gaza, in the West Bank, and comparing it to what the Russians are doing. Uh, we think this is a time where all uh, aggression should be exposed. And I only hope that as we work towards demanding negotiations and a settlement uh, in the case of Ukraine, that we also look at ongoing wars in other places and demand the same thing, an end to war. Why do you think the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement failed when it comes to the illegal occupation in uh, Palestine, mandated under UN resolution, and yet, uh, as we know from the cultural sector, which is being banned across Europe and in NATO countries from Russia, it seems to work almost uh, instantly, and in football matches, uh, no longer is it uh, considered... Uh, wrong to uh, put the Ukraine flag on the pitch, whereas once it was wrong to put the Palestinian flag on a football pitch to express solidarity. Yes, we find it very hypocritical that there has been so many attacks on uh, the BDS movement in the Western countries, uh, saying that it is not fair to attack the entire country of Israel, that that's anti-Semitic, uh, and then suddenly it's okay to attack uh, people who uh, want to uh, compete in the Special Olympics as if those people had something to do with uh, Putin's invasion. So there's a lot of hypocrisy on all sides. But let me be clear. I, I think that uh, it is a positive thing that the world community is coming together and saying, stop this invasion, uh, looking at ways that we can, through nonviolence, uh, I look at the way that the Russian people came and stopped the tanks from 
getting into the largest nuclear plant in Europe uh, that's in Ukraine. Uh, that was quite inspirational. And I think it would be wonderful if people in neighboring countries rose up nonviolently and went to the borders around Russia and uh, demanded a, a, an end to the fighting, just as people are reaching out to all of those refugees who so deserve our support. And speaking of refugees, so do all refugees deserve our support, whether they're coming from a country where people have uh, white skin and uh, blonde hair, or they're coming from countries in Africa, or they're coming from countries on the southern border here in the United States where they have been ripped apart from their families and at times put in cages. We should welcome all refugees who are fleeing from violence. Yeah, as regards to the tanks by the nuclear facility, I think there were ethnic Russians in Ukraine. But uh, as far as uh, we hear from authorities in the EU, someone said, but these are refugees. The, the ones of different colors are migrants. Yes, that's a horrible separation to make. And... Uh, I think the world has seen the uh, terrible racism from the people uh, of color in Ukraine that have had such a hard time leaving the country. Uh, but I think it also does show the hypocrisy of making it so difficult for uh, people of color who try to flee. Even in the case of Afghanistan, where you would think that the U.S. and all the NATO countries would feel a tremendous obligation uh, to take people from Afghanistan in the immediate aftermath of the withdrawal. Uh, they said they were going to, but then they've gone back on their promises, and it's become very difficult for uh, Afghans who worked with the NATO forces to even leave the country. Benjamin, thank you. The bleakest warning yet on climate change that is close to irreversible. We talked to an IPCC author about the latest report. Yeah, we're going to let that go. Um, Dr. Greer is an hour and 25 minutes. We thought it was only an hour 15. I'm Actually, an hour and 12 minutes. Oh. And 25 seconds. <laughs> okay. There we go. Okay. All right, Joel, what's the name of this? Um, breaking news, Ukraine, oil, and the UFO situation. Solution. <laughs> okay, it's just the energies, everyone. Let's go. Let's go. do it. Hour, 12 minutes, and 25 seconds. Okay, here we go. Welcome, Dr. Greer. Thank you. Thanks seeing you again, Pat. Yeah, good seeing you. Um, Dr. Greer, this has been a very difficult few weeks for the world. Uh, we have all watched the conflict unfolding in the Ukraine and with heavy hearts for all. Uh, and I know that many, many people have reached out with questions, as one can imagine. Can you share with us some of your thoughts on this conflict and, and maybe as it relates to the most questions begin with, why Will the ETs not step in and help with this? <laughs> yeah, well, first I want to say that this is, you know, of course, the, the worst conflict, the most dangerous one uh, since World War II in Europe. Um, although it's certainly not the, the only conflict that, you know, we've witnessed in, in recent years. Uh, I think that it's monstrous when any country is invaded by another country. Uh, it was monstrous, frankly, when the United States invaded Iraq. Uh, under false pretenses, and I said so then. And it's now been proven that uh, Dick Cheney and his henchmen uh, falsely created 
uh, weapons of mass destruction evidence that Saddam Hussein did not have to justify going into there for reasons I'll get to in a moment. Uh, now we have a monstrous situation, horrible, where we have innocent children, women, civilians uh, being targeted uh, who are mostly defenseless in terms of their own ability to stop things raining from the sky. Uh, but it's much more dangerous. And the reason it's much more dangerous is that uh, Ukraine is surrounded by or adjacent to uh, several NATO countries, which, of course, are part of uh, the United States, Great Britain and France and other uh, you know, nuclear powers. Russia has one of the biggest, if not largest, nuclear arsenals in the world. And so it's very different than a situation where uh, horrific things have happened in other regions of the world. Um, the Iran-Iraq war uh, back some decades ago, a million innocent civilians were killed during that conflict. Uh, and uh, we, we've seen this throughout human history. But now we're, we could this disaster, if it's not handled properly, could put us on the brink of World War III, a truly uh, catastrophic situation. And in the meanwhile, what isn't being discussed is context and history of this. And I think that one of the big problems is that there is not global initiatives to enforce peace. And that sounds crazy, but you have to enforce a peace. Mm-hmm. And humans have to have peace on Earth and peace in space. And we've been going in the wrong direction uh, ever since World War II. Uh, of course, the United Nations was formed after World War II. But it's a toothless paper tiger, frankly. Uh, and so you still are left with uh, warmongers and superpower conflicts and uh, their aspirations. And there are grievances on all sides. For example, and by what, what I'm about to say, no way, in no way, justifies the monstrous destruction and invasion of Ukraine going on by Russia right now. However, those of you who need a history lesson refresher, perhaps, when the Soviet Union fell apart 30-some years ago, NATO and the United States agreed not to expand NATO eastward. However, seven of the eight Warsaw Pact countries, which were Soviet satellite countries and Soviet territories, are now part of NATO. And this has upset Russia for 30 years. So there's a history of people on all sides reneging on their Commercial. <laughs> On their agreements in this push to full continuously militarize the world. And, and this is, you know, it's, you know, it's funny back in the nineties when I was meeting with, uh, Boutros, Boutros Ghali, the UN Secretary General and his wife, and Leah Ghali turned in and leaned into me talking about all these conflicts with all these people manipulating geopolitical situations, saying a pox on all their houses because she was so disgusted by it. And I said, yes, but you know, there's some root problems to this that we have, we need to start talking about. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. And it squarely has to do with the UFO issue in a way that may shock people. Shocking. 
And when I first started this process, when I was a very young doctor, briefing people like the director of the CIA for Bill Clinton and others, I brought up the fact that the geopolitical situation that is central to uh, the projection of military power is rooted in the energy system we use, oil. So let me translate for you. When people say our vital national security interests in the Middle East, what are they talking about? They're not talking about the sand, the camels, or the culture, or the religion. They're talking about oil and gas. Now we have a situation where Western Europe is completely uh, hostage and dependent on Russian oil and gas. Uh, we have a situation where the catastrophe in Venezuela has been empowered by that oil wealth. Nigeria. Greg Easterbrook, years ago in the New Republic, wrote an article about oil being the black curse, referring to the fact that these petrostates, where there's a great deal of oil wealth, end up being corrupt kleptocracies, where oligarchs and leaders take the wealth of the nation. It doesn't really benefit the man on the street. But it empowers military hunters, militarism, et cetera, and so on. Uh, similarly, the countries that don't have enough oil then become very dependent and will have to capitulate to uh, tyranny or to the reality of the fact that they have to keep the lights on and their houses heated and their factories running. And unfortunately, this is not possible unless we bring out the underlying covert, viciously sequestered, secret UFO technologies. We're going to talk about this for the next hour. Now, what's happening right now was predictable, avoidable. And my frustration, you're hearing it in my voice, is that in in the briefings I, I did all the way back when I met with the science advisors to the presidents, including uh, Vice President Al Gore's science advisor, Dr. Kohlenberg, and begged them, begged them to declassify and get to the bottom of these technologies, even if it was dangerous to do so, even if they were threatened, and they were. Because if we do not get off these uh, oil, gas, coal, and public utility systems, that not only is damaging the environment, and 5 million people a year die just from the particulate matter, from lung disease and heart disease. People don't know this. Forget about global warming. People are dying by the millions just from the junk in the air. This is a, go look this statistic up. And so we have a situation in the Ukraine and with Russia that has been allowed to happen over a number of issues, not just the oil issue. That's one of them. But the underlying world order that's so dysfunctional, in large part where there's been conflict. Conflict all over the world has to do with superpower and other states jockeying for commodity and resource control that translates to energy and oil and coal and uranium and so forth. So 
Now, that's a very dangerous situation. It's one thing when it happens during World War One and World War Two, and people are hurling, you know, uh, artillery and things of this sort or dropping conventional bombs. But when you have thousands of thermonuclear weapons, uh, each of which are multiple times more destructive than the ones dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, this is a game of chicken that's been going on for decades that's been avoidable. Uh, and so I think that people have to understand that the geopolitical reality of the world, the militarism in the world, the centralized power of a, a number of states has to do with the energy and the commodities and the petrodollar system, et cetera, and so forth. So these great power conflicts, are, which all nations have engaged in through human history, are greatly exacerbated by what Mr. Easterbrook called the black curse, oil and gas, and with it coal and all, you know, all the all the conventional energy systems, which for 100 years since the time of Nikola Tesla we have not needed. Um, now, as far as the extraterrestrial question, you know, we've talked about this a lot, Pat. I remember back in the 1990s being asked by uh, a woman who was from Japan when I was doing a presentation. I said, why didn't the ET stop those two bombs from incinerating hundreds of thousands of people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? I said, well, they were certainly aware we were doing this. But if they were to intervene, A, humanity would learn their lessons. B, we would be portraying them as invaders. This is a huge problem. If you look at the cosmic host, which we released about eight months ago, nine months ago, yet we articulate the reason why there's been a 70-year strategic defense plan to demonize the ET and UFO presence. Because that's ultimately the last card, quote unquote, that Werner von Braun, who invented the rocketry off Hitler in World War II, warned us about that they would try to concoct an alien threat. Now imagine if there was a force from another star system that came in and intervened on one side or another in this kind of squabble. It's a lose-lose situation, unfortunately. And the worst would be the future of humans and extraterrestrials being together peacefully because it would immediately be taken by these spin artists like we've seen in the last three or four years since Unacknowledged came out. There's been one lackey working on behalf of the intelligence community after another on 60 Minutes CNN all over the world talking about the threat to the national security by UFOs. It's been a constant drumbeat. Now, imagine up in this media, in this environment, there's an ET overt intervention, or even covert. And suddenly, you have a situation where people will then be, through the mass media that's controlled by the intelligence community, would pivot to, oh, my God, not only do we have this conflict going on in an area the size of Texas, Ukraine, now we're being invaded by aliens. And it would be taken and spun in that direction 
faster than the speed of light. I know it. Everyone in the intelligence community I've met with knows it. So, if, look, if we have figured this out, and, and people I've dealt with on the Senate Intelligence Committee that, that we've had conversations, if, if we have figured this out, you know they have. These interstellar civilizations have. And so they're waiting for humans to become civilized. Mm-hmm. And civilized means oh, we don't God. address our grievances by bombing the hell out of each other or killing each other. We can discuss it. We can do whatever. Uh, now, once you get to a situation like this where you have a relatively poorly armed uh, country like Ukraine being in, invaded by a superpower, then you're on the, the horns of a dilemma. If there's enough, if there's a, a significant intervention from NATO or the United States, Russia, the, the, the Putin man and his foreign minister have said that's World War III. So if, if you're at the Pentagon, and I'm dealing with this as we speak tonight talking to people, then you run the risk of being in World War III. But the worst version of World War III would be an interplanetary conflict, which would mean if the ETs were to intervene. Now, this is a sad situation, but there's another part of this, and that is let's take some recent history. United States, after 9-11, invaded not only Iraq, but before that, Afghanistan. We just catastrophically extricated ourselves from there in the most bungled, clumsy mess I've ever seen. But the idea was that we were going to go in there and do nation building. That's a euphemism. We're going to go in there, and the warlords and everyone else will be converted somehow to Western Jeffersonian democracies. Hmm. Well, how well did that work out? Hmm. It didn't. It's a disaster. It's probably as bad or worse now than it was when we went in 20 years ago, even though we spent $2 trillion and endless hundreds of thousands of, of innocent civilians in Afghanistan have died. Now, the, the ETs know this. Every world that has a proclivity towards conflict has to reach a point where they're going to decide, are we going to live together in peace on Earth and peace in space or face annihilation? That's the question that we have been facing for 70 years, but it has not been framed properly because the only way we're going to get to a peaceful and enlightened civilization is collective security where we all agree that whatever geopolitical boundaries exist are inviolate. One country does not invade another or attack another. And if it does, every nation on earth would do, would stop it. But the world is not in that state now. There is no consensus uh, from every nation on earth to stop anyone from doing anything, which is why these problems keep continuing. Uh, now there is, I'm just going to call this, and I've never really talked about this explicitly, something that I call the cosmic organization. <laughs> There's an interstellar, interplanetary organization, it's cosmic, that have certain principles. And one of them is that they do not invade and enforce their level of civilization on a less developed civilization. They watch, they may do things behind the scenes, and they have. She takes a picture, and in that picture is this ET. He puts the camera over in that direction. Mm. 
For example, 20th anniversary of the Disclosure Project. Everyone saw this. It's up on our YouTube channel now. We had a Russian general talking about how they had a nuclear weapon overheating. And ETs went in and sort of put everyone in sort of a suspended animation while they went in and fixed this so it didn't blow up. Why? Because if that missile had exploded, U.S. might have thought that they were doing a launch or we were entering into DEFCON 1, Defense Condition 1, where all nuclear missiles would be launched. So the ETs absolutely have done a few things like that to keep us from the worst case scenarios happening, very behind the scenes. And that's not the only one. Similar events have happened in the United States that I have personal knowledge of from Disclosure Project witnesses. But in terms of an overt intervention, as opposed to doing something just to buy us time until we grow up, uh, no, that is not going to happen. Now, mm-hmm. what are the conditions in which there would be a massive intervention? Let's talk about that. I wrote about this in my 1999 book, Extraterrestrial Contact, The Evidence and Implications, in my first book, out of five. Now, I understand it's not in fashion to read, but if people would please read this, there, it, it has a very explicit chapter on uh, the UFO extraterrestrial subject uh, and a comprehensive assessment. Now, that comprehensive assessment that's in that book was done at the request of a certain three-letter agency. And it, it made its way through the aerospace industry. And I'll never forget when Dr. Robert Woods, who is an uh, aerospace engineer and subsequent disclosure project witness, who worked for McDonnell Douglas, of course, merged later with Boeing. Uh, he, he called me up. This is how I met him. He says, and he was calling from McDonnell Douglas. And this is in the 90s. He said, this is the most accurate assessment of the subject we have ever read. And it had gone through the intelligence community and the aerospace industry. And this was before I was too much in the public eye, frankly. And I was doing this as a an emergency doctor shoveling between North Carolina and D.C. and doing stuff. You know, it's a crazy life I've had. Um, but I said, well, thank you. And he said, but how do you know this? I said, well, I've had contact with the ETs, and I understand what the cosmic organization's policies are. And a key policy is that they do not intervene unless it gets to something where it would be an ELE, an extinction-level event. Now, what are those? Okay, one would be a massive thermonuclear exchange. Not one or two, like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but something that could literally damage the entire Earth as being a place were suitable for the evolution of intelligent life, which is a long-term objective of these civilizations. It goes back millions of years, frankly, on Earth. The second would be a geophysical catastrophe. For example... If we continue to degrade the biosphere at the rate we're degrading it, and I'll remind people that in 1997, 25 years ago, I had a uh, about a 10 or 11 hour meeting with the deputy director of the National Science Foundation in charge of studying climate change, uh, Dr. Bob Carell, and Dr. Nancy Maynard, who was one of the five directors of NASA. 
And she was in charge of what was called the mission to planet Earth. I thought it was funny because I had called the ET mission to Earth, the mission to planet Earth. But they had their own mission to planet Earth, and she was a Ph.D. satellite imaging specialist for NASA that imaged the biosphere from space. This is 97, quarter of a century ago. And she turned to me and she said, Dr. Greer, if the public knew the rate of decay of the biosphere that's happening, there would be, and I'm quoting, widespread panic in the streets. Now, if that continues... And we do have situations happen. You could, you know, lose, lose both polar ice caps. That could destabilize the rotational stability of the earth and its wobble goes back and forth. It's called the seasons, right? It tilts, tilts, tilts. You could have a catastrophic situation. I'm not trying to scare anyone. I'm just telling you, you know, as the Chinese proverb goes, unless we change directions, we are likely to end up where we are going. (laughs) Now, the ETs have been warning about this since the fifties. We've been warning about it. It's fallen on deaf ears from Moscow to Washington to Beijing to wherever. Um, now, so here we are in 2022 facing this situation. But people need to understand that the ETs have assets deployed around the Earth, under the Earth, under the oceans, out in our solar system, etc., and those are for these worst case scenarios that I mentioned in this comprehensive assessment paper that's in our first book. Now, I know what I'm talking about tonight is a bit heavy and it's kind of intellectual and I apologize for it. But, you know, but it's time that we all begin to speak as adults here. Um, it, we're getting very long in the game that Werner von Braun warned about uh, of this last card being played. And there's all kinds of chicanery going on uh, where various powers behind the scenes want to see this spiral further and further out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, I know from people I deal with in Washington that certain people have go-backs ready to go who are dealing with Homeland Security and, and other um, departments. And it's it's a situation that isn't being honestly addressed to the American people right. or to the world public. The ETs know exactly what, what's going on, and this is what they were concerned about. When they met with uh, President Eisenhower in 1956 in Europe, which did happen, when I was doing the briefings and putting things together for President Sarkozy, the president of France, and doing the CE5 contact demonstration for their uh, Ministry of Defense back uh, about 10 years, 12 years ago. I got this document that was an account of someone who was at that meeting that the French intelligence had about the meeting with Eisenhower and these ETs out in the desert near where Edwards Air Force Base is now. This is 1956, where they were asking us to put down arms, to become peaceful, to do things to, for the Earth and its environment, and to be in space peacefully. Eisenhower was inclined to do so. The warmongers, the war profiteers, the industrial fascists said no. And then they further later cut him, the president, Eisenhower, out of the loop. That's why he gave his famous speech, Beware of the Military Industrial Complex, in 
1961 as he was You can get this pack of emergency food bars so that you can be ready for any food crisis. Power He was leaving office the day he left office as president after being a president for eight years. So I think that, and he was a Republican. I mean, this was not an anti-military hippie Abby Hoffman or something in the 60s. Uh, this is, you know, a, a five, you know, five-star general and uh, moderately conservative Republican saying this. Of course, everybody was sort of like, what's this all about? Well, we know what it was about. It was this issue. So now here we are from 1961 to now. How many years is that, right? And we're talking, you know, 61 years. Um and almost two-thirds of a century, and we're still doing the same behavior. And, of course, you know, the very definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. Uh, and, and so that's, you know, the context. I think people need to have a big picture of, 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 of viewing this. Now, it doesn't solve that problem. I mean, my view, I'm not, you know, a State Department official, is that there needs to be an immediate ceasefire, uh, Ukraine, it's, I think the wise choice at this point would to say we're going to be neutral the way Sweden and Finland and Switzerland are. And we're not going to be a militarized NATO country. And uh, Russia has said that that would satisfy them. Well, if Sweden and Finland and, and, and uh, Switzerland, who are in the heart of Europe and advanced Western democracies, have agreed not to be part of NATO, so can the Ukraine. But that's, that's a, an immediate sort of tactical political issue. I want to get to the bigger root problems that we've been talking about here. And, and, and the next thing I want to go into is the technologies. When you have a civilization that goes 100 years longer using a destructive form of energy that is scarce and relatively expensive, such as oil, gas, coal, public utilities, and also solar and wind, very expensive and very low density of energy. You have a situation where the world geopolitically is vulnerable to uh, the machinations of people who are controlling those assets. Now, to give you an idea of the kind of wealth we're talking about, just on the Chicago Board of Trade, some years ago, I read a, an economist article that was talking about derivatives and instruments for trading commodities, $700 trillion worth a year. Now, just the churning of those instruments, you know, futures, contracts, and all this, imagine what that generates. Now, if you come out with zero-point energy, energy that you pull from the quantum vacuum of space around us, you have zero cost for the energy. It's completely decentralized. Every home business, et cetera, has quote unquote free energy, what Tesla called the infinite energy field. Um, there's no pollution. There's no radiation. And there's no cost. But there's also no centralized power. So let me cut to the chase. This is the, the world order as it exists is about massive. 
And we're not talking about the budget of the United States, you know, a few trillion dollars, hundreds, if not thousands of trillions of dollars in assets, commodities, corporations that are linked directly into the type of energy that runs the planet for 8 billion people. The other problem with it is that it's intrinsically destabilizing geopolitically, as we were talking about a moment ago with the situation where Western Europe is very dependent on Russian gas and oil. And you know, how do you bite the hand that's feeding you, right? Like the Nine Inch Nails song, you know, how do you bite the hand that feeds you? Um, but it's something broader than that. You have a, a situation with those energy systems that require a priori that about half the world's population live in terrible poverty and injustice. I was just reading an article that 3 billion, with a B, billion people have no gas and no electricity, and that's why they're chopping down woods and brush and old-growth forests and rainforests to make charcoal and get wood to cook their food. 3 billion, with a B. Now, that's almost a billion people more than lived on Earth in the 20s when Nikola Tesla had free energy. So this is a massive problem that we have been discussing and trying to get people in power to do something about. Uh, there's only so much one can do through that the establishment, though, because virtually everyone in power, whether it's in the United States or Moscow or elsewhere, uh, do not want to take on interests that have a thousand times more power, let's say, and, and money than the White House can deploy or 10 Downing Street can or whatever in France, anywhere, you know. So I think that this is a, a situation where the uh, industrial fascism that started in the 1800s and early 1900s that Mussolini adopted and then Hitler adopted, it never went away. It just became more nuanced. But the world situation we have the, the real power is rooted in industrial fascism of various sorts. Um, and that's true whether it's a, you know, a centralized uh, sort of totalitarian system like China or Russia and Venezuela or an alleged democracy like the United States, United Kingdom, etc. And that's just the reality of the power that is a derivative directly, of the type of energy we use. <laughs> so I always tell people, bringing out these new technologies is about truly power to the people, literally, in terms of energy power, but figuratively. But right now, everyone is basically a sitting duck dependent on this stuff. Your house, my house. I have the largest, listen to this, I have the largest legally allowable solar farm in the state of Virginia. Right here. I'm pointing at it. In my meadow. It will not heat or cool this house at all. The lights, yeah, may be the water for the pump. But when we had a foot of wet snow in January, all power went out in this region for a week. We were in this house with 38 degree temperatures. No heat. In the summer, we had a derecho come through. We had neighbors with no electricity for three weeks in a 106-degree heat index. And this is in the United States of America. 
in, in, in the 21st century. Now, imagine the desperation of the people in Ukraine. These cities are being bombed. They have no water. Yesterday, a six-year-old child died in one of those cities because there was no water. In, in the 21st century, in the central part of Europe, a child dies because there's no water to drink. A hundred years after we had the solution to the environmental energy and prosperity and justice, social justice issue. So I'm telling people, the governments are not going to fix this problem. Had I thought Washington or other people around the world in, in capitals would have done anything about it, I would have never come public with the disclosure project, ever. I did it 20 years, 21 years ago, because we had concluded by 1997-98 that the people of the world are going to have to unite. They're going to have to fund and support these technologies. They're going to have to bring them out open source. And that's why that's been one of the three pillars that we our project is resting on. One is peaceful contact and enlightenment with ETs and humans, the CE5 contact initiative. And be anyone in the world can get the CE5 contact app and do this. And people are. The other is the disclosure project because people have to be educated about it. And the third is trying to bring the technologies, the physical technologies out. That we have not succeeded at, obviously. Um, now we have a situation, 50, 60% of the population believe we're not alone in the universe. That we have done. There are millions of people doing CE5 contact, having peaceful contact. But the world is still a basket case because it's still dependent on the black curse of, of the old energy system from the 1800s. Now, I think the solution is is sitting there for us, but it's costly. You know, we crowdfunded our documentaries. We crowdfunded the app. We crowdfunded the disclosure project. Uh, we have no officer staff, as you know. Um, 100% of these proceeds go in to further the work, and, uh, and we would like to see it further reach the point where we could actually develop these technologies. But that we're talking about is tens of millions of dollars. You're not going to develop a high-energy physics lab for a few hundred thousand dollars. One workstation is 500000 to a million dollars using the kind of equipment you need. So... Now, you would think in an age of high-tech Silicon Valley unicorns, billion-dollar startups doing frivolity <laughs> and IPOs behind, you know, things like TikTok or whatever, bringing in, you know, untold billions, that wouldn't be so hard, but nobody has wanted to do it yet. Now, I'm making an appeal tonight. People need to do it, and we can prove that these technologies exist. Who wants to fund them? That is an act of courage because it's an act of defiance. I mean, just like the Ukrainian people are trying to defy this, you know, brutal invasion. The people of the world need to unite in an act of peaceful defiance of the, the current world order of heteronazis, fascism based on the current energy system. And I think that when you think about this, I mean, People new to this who may be just now watching this YouTube channel, 
you know, look at this thing they call the Tic Tac that our Navy jets. I just had a long conversation with the pilot of that jet fighter that chased, uh, you know, that uh, Tic Tac off the coast of California some years ago in the early 2000s. Um, and that thing was moving up, down, vertical, <laughs> no means of propulsion, no jets, no rockets. And they had infrared on it, no heat source like you get from something being burned. It's electromagnetic field propulsion. Mm. And guess what? That's a moment. <clears throat> Those have been developed since before I was born. That thing flying around when we mastered gravity control, the top scientist at the Naval Research Lab was in the, quote, vault and saw the unredacted document that stated that that was mastered in October of 1954. So now we're talking, you know, 68 years ago. And so you think, okay, two-thirds of a century later, we still are using rockets, jets, cars, coal, gas, and oil-burning power plants, nuclear power, which is very dangerous. And yes, we have 20% of our electricity in the United States from hydroelectric, that's 7.5%, and, and wind and, and solar. The problem is, the other, you know, if you have, a, say, a Tesla car or an electric car, and, you know, we have two, we have two that are plug-in electric hydro. That energy is coming out of a coal-fired and gas-fired power grid, except for maybe 19, 20% of that energy. So people think that when you plug in your electric car, it's magically getting charged from the ether. No, it's from a very polluting source. Um, and the, the lithium-ion batteries, the hundreds of pounds of lithium-ion batteries, the pollution that's created by manufacturing those is enormous toxic waste. So... That, you know, it, it, it makes people feel good, Pat, but it's not the solution. My solar farm is great. I'm trying to help. It's not the ultimate solution. Um, we know what the solution is. But when the Vice President, Al Gore, and Al Gore did an inconvenient truth, and it's this great champion of the environment, but guess what? Think about the enormous hypocrisy of being the Vice President of the United States receiving this information, this positive proof of these technologies existing. But because it's too dangerous to stick your neck out, you turn your back on it, and then you just bloviate for decades about the problem, but refuse to endorse the solutions. And that's true of people on the left, the right, the middle, the whole thing. So uh, this is something that I speak of with authority because I've had taken the meetings with people like this around the world. And I understand the fear. I do. I mean, I understand the lethal threats that are made. I under, I've had them. I understand the people who've been killed. I have people on my team that have been assassinated. I've almost been assassinated. But, you know, you have now, you know, a situation where 8 billion people's lives hang in the balance. Not only from the risk of thermonuclear war, but of environmental collapse. And so I think we have to grow up and we have to decide that as a people, 
we're going to come together and manifest the courage that obviously our, unfortunately, our leaders lack. So this is where I am 100% nonpartisan and apolitical because I have dealt with people on all sides of the aisle in multiple countries and none of them want to do the right thing because it's dangerous and it is dangerous. And I had a person with an MBA say to me once, you know, your problem is you're not willing to, to, to you, you tell the truth about the risks and the benefits. I said, well, I'm a doctor. You, you always disclose what the benefits and the risks are or you're unethical, if not assaulting a patient. And I said, he said, yes, but that's not how business works. <laughs> you just sort of like brush over the risk and then blow up the benefits. No. I mean, it's clearly you have to be honest about this because these the people's lives are in the balance here. Um, and I understand that. You know, all the hundreds of people who come to me with top secret documents and information they are in mortal danger and they are heroes, but we're not going to find that kind of, of uncommon courage as it's called at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue under any president I've dealt with since Clinton. You're not, I, if, if there's a member of Congress that has that kind of courage, please introduce them to us. I'm in Washington every week uh, or someone in uh, some other uh, government. In the meanwhile, I wouldn't bet the farm. On it. I think we, the people, have got to unite, bring out the definitive solutions, which we have been extant in existence since before you and I were born. And we're not spring chickens, honey. So I think that's what we have to do. And I think that when you look at how these UFOs move, the man-made ones and the ET ones, those technologies are very elegant because they're electromagnetic field propulsion. And they're pulling energy from so-called zero point but through the, what's called the quantum vacuum. I'm not going to get into the physics of this too far. And then you take it to another level and you can go from point A to B in space, you know, like that. Almost like a teleportation. What well, it is. But just the, the, the what I call level one advanced technology would be something that sits in your house like your heat pump. It runs your house. With no energy costs and no pollution. That is what can be created now and distributed. And I had a conversation with the head of the Air Force in charge, a colonel in charge of future technologies, which is a euphemism for this kind of thing. They call them future when they already have it, by the way. But remember. There are two types of lizard or reptilian kind of beings. When they appear on Earth, they try to do it covertly. Some come from a totally different reality. Others come from different planets. They all have their own agenda. Remember the doublespeak, military and intelligence people. Um, I should do a whole workshop on counterintelligence and doublespeak in, in these communities. But, um, and, you know, they, they go to a place called the farm out here in Virginia to learn how to professionally lie about all this. I know where, I know people have been there. Um, I go by it every time I go into DC from my house here. And what's interesting is that he said to me, he says, don't, it's too early to bring out the things that fly because that can be turned into a missile delivery system, i.e. a man-made UFO. But yeah, the ones that are the ones that would run your car or house, those, you know, we think would be fine if you brought those out. 
but he didn't speak for this group of psychopaths, sociopaths that run, that are the uber oligarchs of the planet running the whole petrodollar and oil and, and, and macroeconomic system. They do not want that because they know they're going to go the way of all flesh because the power they have literally the physical power, but then the figurative power they have would slip through their fingers like grains of sand. And they know it because then every village in Africa has free energy and electrification refrigeration. Even the deserts will bloom as it says in the in scriptures because you can then have water delivered. Now, one of the things that's coming out, um, some of you have seen this, and people think it's a film that I did. It's not. It's called Above Top Secret. Um, and it's a nod also to the great book that uh, Timothy Good wrote back in the 80s. I believe it was called Above Top Secret. But it's about these technologies, and it's coming out April 5th. It's exciting because it's coming out three days before the April conference we're doing in Scottsdale, which is going to be about all our community coming together and meditation and enlightenment and praying for peace, but also acting and creating peace with humans and ETs, but also on earth. And we're going to do a big meditation and go around the world with thousands of people online. I hope millions of people online and everyone there creating and seeing through higher consciousness, the world transitioning very quickly off the path it's on now onto this path of enlightenment and peace on earth and in space and peaceful energy. Uh, and I think that's where, how we get to a level one civilization. Level one civilization is one that's living in peace and that is uh, not damaging its environment anymore because it's adapted, uh, adopted, I should say, since they exist already these wonderful, wondrous sciences and technologies that have been coming through the minds of humans for over a 100 years. In fact, I have documents and information that even in the mid to late 1800s, these electromagnetic effects were seen and documented, uh, but they weren't understood. They were really well understood by the 1920s to 1950s, actually, including so-called anti-gravity. T. Townsend Brown, 19, late 1920s, had high-voltage systems with crystalline materials where they would levitate. That was then reproduced in Germany, the Kolosky Frost Experiment. We have the cover of a physics journal that shows this. So that's 100 years ago now, my friend. So what are, what are we doing? I mean, we have to have a global awakening. And this is... You know, a lot of people ask, you know, you know, people like Demi Lovato. I said, this is one of the reasons why we need Demi and other people who've been helping us get the word out, get the word out because we need to get the word out way past the, you know, few thousand people who are interested in, in, in the UFOs subculture, let's say. It's got to go mainstream. And now that, you know, a billion people have heard and seen the fact that there's, there are UFOs and we have footage and the Pentagon has acknowledged they're real, although they pretend they don't know what they are and they're a threat to the national security. That part of it is false. But at least it's a, it's, it's a dialogue now. And this is why we can engage in a dialogue, as we were doing in Washington with, with senior members of the Congress and, and, and government. But that's a very slow process. And usually it gets thwarted. And this is why the default, it's really resting on your shoulders and my shoulders, everyone's who is, is a civilian who understands this. Um, because the people in the system 
this is an interesting thing. I, I've only told this story a couple times, but back in the early 90s, it was 1992. And the head of Army Intelligence had intercepted me. And after we had the uh, four EET craft appear in the sky in Florida near Gulf Breeze in Pensacola, and General Stubblebine was there with uh, some of his associates with, from the CIA and NSA um, about a month later in Atlanta. And they pulled me aside and threatened me, frankly. And a month later, offered me $2 billion if I would shut up and join their committee. And I said, no, thank you. Um, they, they went to my wife, tried to convince her, convince me. But during the course of the, that event, which was shocking to me, frankly, there was a woman who I don't want to name, who's a good friend with Prince Charles and the, the royal family and, and the United Kingdom who was there. And I was sort of very young to this. I was, it was 92. <laughs> I'd only been on the scene doing this for a year and a half or something. And she says, you know, the, the reason... What would your life be like if you were a rapid transformational therapist? So I can give you a glimpse into that life now. You work your own hours. If you have children in school. The, the reason they're so angry with you is that they can't do what you're doing. So I'm sure they could. I could teach them to meditate and do no no it's not that. They're lifers. They're owned by this system. They're in that system and they'll never be able to get out. And you're free. She says you don't know where you're lucky. You're lucky because you're a nobody. You're lucky because you're not in that system. You're lucky because you're a country doctor rattling around in an emergency department in North Carolina. And I, I looked at her and I said, well, I've never thought of it that way. He, she says, well, you should think of it that way. So that's what I'm saying to everyone tonight. View yourselves as being lucky that you're empowered to be free and to do what is right and follow your conscience. But also, you've got to put one foot in front of the other and make a difference because we are entering into a very writ large, dangerous phase of human civilization. And we are going to be faced with these existential life and death, extinction, or going forward choices. They've been coming at us for 50, 60, 70 years. They're going to come at us much more quickly now. And I think this is a call to action for people to come together. And, you know, um, whenever we talk about this in groups, the first thing that people say is, what can I do? I mean, they all feel like they're just one person. Mm-hmm. They're one person in, in this sea of, of whatever, and they think that they're completely mm-hmm. irrelevant, right? And they, yeah. they, they, yeah. they have no power. And, yeah. and it's amazing for me to see this in people. They have no idea the power that they have. Oh, every human being has infinite power. Yes. And so I mean, literally, literally, this is what they will ask. What can I do? What is step number one for me? 
what would you say to them? Number one, connect to the aspect of yourself that is the infinite self. That, I mean, my, my lucky situation was that I grew up very poor and, and very in a difficult situation, but then I was lucky enough to die when I was 17 and had this beautiful experience, you know, um, and of, of the aspect of ourselves, of all of us, that's the singularity of oneness, the oneness of pure consciousness. It's at the root of our being awake. You're awake now. I'm awake. Anyone listening to this is conscious. If you're a sentient awake being, you have the totality of that infinite field of consciousness and energy and power within you. Now, it, thinking intellectually about it don't make it so. You've got to practice meditation. You need to introspection. Then you have to act. And the action is where everyone drops the ball. Because you will be guided and get intuitions. And then you'll go, ah, I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. Now, everything I've done in my life that's been meaningful has been against the conventional wisdom. You know, and it's, it's very personal. I mean, I literally have had to do the opposite of what everyone told me I could do and should do. So I think that now I'm a bit of a cantankerous son of a bitch. People know me well. I mean, I <laughs> take no prisoners and, you know, I'm a nice guy until I'm not nice. And then it's, the, I'm a bit of a bull, but you know, but the, the truth is everyone has their God given temperament and gifts and everyone has to ask themselves, not me or you, what can I do? What can I contribute at a time like this? And everyone has enough. If, if everyone contributed what they could and came together, the world would be changed in a fortnight. Yeah, Please. people have a lot of doubt. Um, they'll get to that. That's the, yes. yes, that's the first thing you have to overcome. You have to, because yeah. you know, I, I had that too. Look, I was raised in a family where we were told we were worthless. You know, I, I went home every day. We didn't go to kindergarten. Only rich people could afford kindergarten back at then. Uh, but I went home every day of first grade, uh, sent home crying. I was told I could never read. I could never do anything that, that I was worthless. So I started so low and had to kind of overcome that, which I think was in the long run, probably good for me. It was not easy, but I think that that's why people have to look at themselves and go, you know, if, if a guy who came out of the background, I came out, can do what, you know, I became a doctor, da-da-da, who cares? You can do anything, but you have to see you can do it. You have to believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. And you have to not listen to the naysayers, either your own inner voice that's saying no, or the external ones that's saying this isn't possible. Right. Luckily, by about fourth or fifth grade, I realized that I would have to just, you know, take my own path and march to my own drummer, and I did um, for better or for worse, not always for better, you know, all sometimes for worse because I'm a willful person and, you know, you, you know, you can make mistakes, but I think that ultimately you, you have to actualize and realize yourself. And I think the thing that gave me the best grounding for that first was my spirituality. I think from my native, I'm 516 Cherokee, Native American connection to earth. And my first great love spiritually was earth. 
the Gaia. And then when I had the near-death experience, I realized this cosmic consciousness and experience and realized that's what we and who we really are. We have this infinite aspect of ourself as well as our individual self, and it's all woven together. So when that happened, I was 17, but I think that everyone through meditation can realize this aspect of themselves because that's also how you have uncommon courage. Because if you realize that your individuality is a waveform that is emerging from this infinite ocean of conscious self, but that that infinite ocean is you, you are that being as well, then, and there is no death. So if someone threatens me, I go, well, make my day and kill me. I'm going to, you know what I said to the head of army intelligence? I, I said, I'll be so much more trouble to you on the other side in the worlds of light than I will be on this plane. Make my day and kill me. I literally said, you know, that's how I am. Do you know me? I mean, I'm saying these things and it's outrageous, I guess, but it's true. Everything I'm telling you is hundred percent true. But, and he looked, he's like, Oh my God. You know, I said, yeah, that's the way it is. But I think that's how you develop courage too, because courage is not folly. Courage is comes from the French word heart. And it's the feeling and the love and the consciousness of this higher consciousness and spirituality. And it's almost a divine level of love, not necessarily religious. I mean, religiosity bothers me sometimes a lot, but, but spirituality on a deep level. And that gives you the courage to do the right thing in the face of death. Three wrinkle foods to avoid. People spend thousands of dollars on cream, serums, and other... Tyranny. I mean, look at look at the people who have, who stood up, like Wallenberg, who stood up to Adolf Hitler and and, and saved all those Jewish children. Um, look at what's going on with the heroes in Ukraine right now. Uh, look at look at the, the people who have done this throughout history, and and did uh, amazing feats of courage. There is an aspect of them that they could tap. Now all of us have to do that. Not only to become ambassadors to these extraterrestrial civilizations so that they have a point of contact. And let me explain to you, and I never talk about this in a forum this big, but time is getting short. If worse, if some of these worst case scenarios play out and there is an intervention that's very large from this cosmic organization. They're going to need people here, humans, to interface with. Mm-hmm. I doubt it's going to be at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> it's going to be you and however many hundreds of thousands of people are going to see this. You need to own that responsibility because what I've learned from the ETs is that when they had the betrayals and the things that happened in the 40s and 50s, they have turned increasingly to the masses, the people, in contact. That's why contact is happening. It's because happening everywhere. 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 It's, it's happening, happening everywhere. everywhere. It's, 
It's happening everywhere. And so if you just make a little effort in that direction, you know, get the CE5 contact app, adapt it to your own needs and interests. I mean, I have no attachment to, uh, it's the concepts and the intent that's important. But that's a starting point. It works. Um, and then let, put yourself at service to the universe. Put yourself at service to humanity. Um, that's what I've always tried to do, uh, you know, to the extent of my frailty of being a human. And I think that that's what everyone should aspire to do and actually then do it. Um, you know, it's time to get out of the headspace and intellect and actually get into the deeper heart and spirit of this and act. Uh, and for that, we're going to need another thing. So that's it. I'm seriously talking to some people because I really think the big money people and the governments and corporations are not going to support the change that we need. I think we may have to go the route of, I don't know, an NFT or a cryptocurrency or something. Uh, of course, you know, as you know, I can barely turn a computer on. Uh, so <laughs> I'm a, I'm a real idiot with stuff like that. But, um, you know, Hey, you know, I was born in 55. We're not exactly the di- children of digi- digital age, but, um, I mean, we need help with that because I actually think there's enough goodwill out there that we can do that, raise the funds, and then have the resources to create these technologies, bypass the system, and release them open source. Open source means no patent, no intellectual property, blockchain, boom, out to the world. Um, because I think that, that it's an emergency now. Uh, and, you know, when I first emerged on the scene, I, I said to the people in, in the White House and others that I'm an emergency doctor. And I can identify an emergency that's that's about to happen in an individual. I sense there's an emergency situation on Earth with the body of humanity and the Earth receptacle, the biosphere. And I said, so we have to act accordingly. We have to be skilled all of us, skilled physicians for Gaia and humanity. We ought to be a medical doctor to do that. I mean, but um, but you do need to have the will to do it and recognize there's a problem and that it is urgent uh, and emergent. And, of course, I think with watching the great power posturing over Ukraine, where on every news network they're openly talking about the possibility of Armageddon with nuclear weapons. I mean, this is the, honestly, now this I haven't said publicly, but this is the most dangerous situation I have seen since I was ducking under my desk <laughs> in second or third grade during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1963 and literally it was duck and cover. You know, they thought that if you hit under your desk, you'd be protected from a thermonuclear bomb. No. I mean, go figure, how stupid. Um, but that was what we were trained to do because we were in the strike zone from the Russian missiles that were in Cuba, Soviet missiles in Cuba, mm-hmm. where I lived in North Carolina, in Charlotte, and which had a missile factory, and we were a strike city. So we were literally being herded on the school bus and practicing evacuations and hiding under desks. This, that was a very dangerous situation. It was during Kennedy's term. This situation is approaching that level of danger. And we need everyone praying for peace, 
manifesting peace, but then doing practical steps working for peace. Right. And then the, the, the plan B, if things get out of control, and it's like Dr. You know, Colonel Bearden, who did all the work on these energy devices, and he said, I have this wonderful interview with him that's on our YouTube channel. He says, now, friends, don't get me wrong. The fools may blow it yet. He's from Louisiana. Hilarious. I love being at his home in Huntsville near the Redstone Arsenal and Marshall Space Flight Center. And, you know, and, and he said, I said, yes, and that's why we need uh, other plants. You know, we, we don't want to put all our eggs in the basket of the political leaders and these geopolitical uh, superpowers. The, the people need to come together in consciousness and meditation and in action to start providing the solutions. Right. And because I think this top down model, you know, where we expect everything to somehow percolate from on high and out of Washington or London or Moscow. Never going to happen. Uh, that, that I, I, excuse me. I think that's a fool's errand. If you, you know, I would not put the future of the planet in those hands. I've dealt nope. with these people for too many years um, there are many good people in government, but the system is rigged to stop anything positive really happening that would upset the power oligarchs, the elites of the world. Right. Um, and, and that's just unfortunately the way it is. But I do think large numbers of people acting together and in unity that is going to be, that's a different story. Right. And, and that's how we, that, that's how we did the civil rights movement. I mean, I, I lived through, uh, you know, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, women's rights. I mean, I was born in 55. And, and, uh, you know, I, I shared this story on Demi Lovato's podcast. I mean, I had a black girlfriend in high school and was hit and run, tried to be killed by a car by a bunch of racists because I had a black girlfriend. Mm-hmm. That's how dangerous having a black girlfriend was in 1972 and 1973 in North Carolina. Uh-huh. Um, but I think that, you know, these big changes have happened. That change did not happen from Washington down. It happened in on, on the grassroots, nonviolent civil disobedience, nonviolent action. Not in favor of anything rioting, burning, looting, none of that. Not We can do it. Gandhi overthrew the entire British Empire and liberated India nonviolently. Mm-hmm. So we can do this. And, I, and think, I, I do think a lot of people are getting, literally, there's a lot of contact. People are getting a lot of messages. Yes. And, and they're... They're speaking out and saying, okay, I'm getting this constant message and what do I do with this? And, and I'm saying, yeah. ask, ask what to do with it and keep your yes. eyes and ears open and right. the path will unfold in front of you. All you need to do is step onto it <laughs> and move forward. But I think it's people are getting messages because you and I have talked about this. There are so many of these beings who are watching this and who are interacting and who are taking an active look at all of this. And they're, they're helping, they're reaching out to help people and guide people who are want to help. Yeah. On many dimensions. It's, yes. it's not just extraterrestrial, yes. it's oh, spiritual no. beings. It's on many, many levels. Many. Um, and our ancestors and I'll step way out on a limb here are, are, are descendants. 
our descendants. <laughs> yes. Our descendants from half a million years in the future are also helping us. Yes. That'll blow people's mind, but I know that to be a fact. Yeah. Um, so, so and, and here we sit, right, in 2022. So it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, I, I want to mention this uh, this film again. It, uh, just for clarity, it's not my film. I didn't produce it. Um, uh, the Cousin Brothers wanted to interview me and uh, have me sort of present the information. Uh, Michael Schratt's in it. Uh, Jim Goodall, who's a very famous aerospace illustrator, is in it. Oh, yeah, I met him. There's, there's a one. Yeah, he was at the 20th anniversary of, the, of our uh, disclosure project. Um, he was the last man, uh, one of the last people to talk to uh, Lockheed Skunk Works, uh, Ben Rich. Um, and so, and it's good. It focuses really on these technologies and the existence of them and the covert programs. I think it's very timely, but we need to connect it. And we can actually take a pause if you want to see the trailer. We yeah, have connect- say we happen to have that. Oh, okay, okay. Well, we happen to have that trailer, so uh, let's okay. take a quick look at that. Okay. If the crash retrievals are true, then all bets are off. people to get their minds around where the real power is and it's not at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue the reality is something much more stark they've been working on this for 60 70 perhaps 80 years the reason why the government is talking about these UFOs now they're getting ready for the next level of war are these objects a national security concern they're proffering a narrative of a national security threat that doesn't exist. I call them alien reproduction vehicles. They're made by private corporations somewhere on this planet. Technology from Roswell from 1947 has largely been held back from us. Portal technology, teleportation, whatever you can imagine, it's already been done. The biggest secrets are not the zero-point energy and electrophorbetics. It's the science of consciousness. All their communication systems are moving through the consciousness field and are thought actuated. The people at the CIA call it WSFM, Weird Science and Frickin' Magic. The transdimensional interstellar technology will benefit humanity. That has been tremendous disinformation. The media is keeping secrets with the government. These are lethal, vicious people. And I'm focused on exposing the extraordinary technologies that they want to keep secret. No aspect of life on Earth will be unaffected by them. Now, can you talk a little bit about, you were, you were, I interrupted you there, you were connecting something now that we've watched the trailer. Uh, say a few words about what you hope that people will take away from this. Look at all of that and look at it. I know because there's, there's a lot of jargon and a lot of physics and a lot of evidence. Just look at all of it as an alternative energy and propulsion system to replace everything that's destroying the world. Mm-hmm. Everything that's caused these geopolitical imbalances with oil and petrostates. Look at it as a huge collection of solutions that have been sitting around for a hundred years on black shelves and covert programs that need to be liberated. 
They need to be brought out and brought to bear to benefit humanity, but only to be used for peaceful purposes. The, 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 you know, I, I always warn the people, every technology is a double-edged sword. You can use it for good or for harm. You can take uh, a knife and put butter on your bread, or you can slit someone's throat. I've unfortunately have seen both. So um, no matter how primitive the technology or how advanced, what is critical is the consciousness that wields it, the wisdom that behind its use. Right. And so as you look at those technologies, you also have to understand, as Einstein said, no problem has been solved by the level of consciousness that created it. The creation of the, the consciousness of conquest, of domination, of aggression, of war, of militarism, that's got to go away. And then all these technologies, all of them, including the ones that fly, can come out and be used peacefully. If we're not in a consciousness of peace and we don't evolve to that, any of these technologies can also be used as a fierce weapon system. So that, again, gets into this sort of existential crisis and decision the choice, I call it the choice, the big choice humanity is facing. Do we choose annihilation? Do we choose enlightenment, peace, universal peace on earth and in space, and then become a people that travel amongst the stars? That's the choice. And that's how clearly we need to articulate it to our fellow brothers and sisters on earth. Right. And that would be the choice I would make. It's the choice we're all wanting to make. Yeah. But we have to actually take action and do it. So right. well, thank you, Pat. I know it's, it's getting thank late. Thank you, Dr. Here. We appreciate you weighing in on all this and explaining and your unique uh, viewpoint for this. Um, yes, you're, you're welcome. Thank you. And never, never, everyone never give up hope. Just work and keep your, keep your vision on that horizon of this transition, the transformation to this good future. That's how I get up every day and how I keep going. Don't get bogged down. There are a lot of things that are are frightening and negative, but stay connected to your inner higher self and keep your vision on that horizon of transformation and enlightenment, not only for yourselves, but for the planet. That's what you need to focus on and not get overwhelmed with the negativity. Great. Thank you again, Dr. Greer. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Okay, we're going to jump right into the next one here. Tell me when you're ready, Rama. This is going to be our sister Amanda Ellis. And she's got some ideas. And uh, she's connected with Lady Di in this one. Uh, we all know she's alive and well. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Are you ready? Ready. Okay, this is an hour and 15 minutes. We'll get just a little bit. We won't be finishing at the end, but here we go.
It's coming along. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? This is Amanda. I hope that you're well. So today is the 7th of March 2022 as I record this video and I am going to be doing a Heart Squad special, um, a channeling with Princess Diana. There's also another Heart Squad member around as well at the moment. I'm not sure whether I will put him into this video or whether he will be a separate video, but I'll just mention his name in case he does weave into this one, and that's John Denver. Um, this has come about quite unexpectedly, the two of them reappearing, uh, because yes, I've channeled both of them before. Princess Diana was actually the first member of the Heart Squad that uh, I channeled a few years ago. You can look back at the playlist to see what we've talked about before with her. Um, but... During the course of last week, with the outbreak of war in uh, Russia and Ukraine, um, I had a feeling that there were members of the Heart Squad that wanted to come forward to say something and to bring through some messages of peace. Um, and I suppose the obvious one would be John Lennon, um, very anti-war, uh, vocal, humanitarian when he was alive. I have actually already talked to John, I think in quite some depth, about aspects of peace before. So, I mean, I'm sure he'd quite like to come through again, but he wasn't the one was going to be today. Um, likewise, I felt the energy of JFK around as well. And um, in fact, I've printed out his photographs again. So again, that might be something I do another day. But uh, John Denver and Princess Diana... Um, the link seems to be um, with Princess Diana. She came through and wants to talk about the energy of landmines. That was a campaign that she was very um, involved in towards the end of her life. But there's a new twist on it. She's going to give us a very beautiful analogy about how we navigate through the landscape of our world at the moment and the type of minds that we can stand on are actually to do with thoughts, ideas, theories, that type of thing. But she's also got other stuff that she wants to talk about as well, including um, some information about the succession as well. Also some information on the uh, planet, which I believe she comes from, which is Venus. Um, and Sanat Kumara as well seems to be very strongly around her. Um, and then if we get on to John in this video, again, he was very vocal as an anti-war um, spokesman. Um, two of his songs that I actually highlighted in the last video that I did with him um, are even more appropriate now than when he wrote them um, those decades ago. And they are, we'll just mention them here, um, <laughs> what are they? The Peace Song and... Um, the peace song in particular. I can't remember what the other one was now off the top of my head. Uh, Healing Time for Earth was the other one. 
Let's start with Princess Diana, though. I have to say as well that whenever I sit down to do some channeling, it's as though they all want to come through. The other thing that's happened this morning is the electrics are just going bonkers in this house. Uh, toasters just, you know, firing off and few, the lights are fusing. That's definitely a nod to Tesla, who, again, I've said I'm going to channel. There's just not enough hours in the day, guys. But um, anyway, and also uh, there's something that is, there's another person who I believe Princess Diana wants to bring through, which is Louise Hay. And there's something that there's a message I need to deliver with regard to the ageing process. Um, and that follows on from Shane Warne's death over a couple of days ago. I put um, a piece of writing that came through to me last night on Sunday with regard to ageing linked to him. Um, so we'll get to all of this stuff, but let's just try to introduce Diana properly and then we'll see how she wants to do this. So I'm going to use, as I always do, my Rainbow Bridge Spray, which just helps to connect with those the other side of the veil. And um, she's already here, but I'm going to tell you how she came. But equally, she's probably going to appear in a way for you as well. She says, tell them firstly how she came to this morning. OK, so I sat down today and as you can probably tell, there's just a lot of energy and there's so many spirits that want to come and talk. And I have literally been changing outfit after outfit. Nothing was working. Uh, I wasn't feeling good in any of them and I actually got to the point where I thought I don't know if I can do this channeling today maybe I'll just go off and I don't know do some shopping anything just other than do this channeling <laughs> and um, I sat down and I got my pendulum out and I sort of said to Diana okay well look shall we do this or shan't we are you here and the pendulum very clearly said no and I thought oh okay right well you're not here then maybe today isn't the day um and then I just meditated for, I don't know, two minutes. And straight away, I felt her energy. And she, like, she was flying across the, the bridge, the rainbow bridge. And um, she's wearing this pair of slacks, basically, very casually dressed. No ball girl or anything like that. Very casually dressed in a pair of slacks. In fact, it's very similar to the sort of outfit she probably wore when she went out to Angola. I'm thinking about it. I've got it here in front of me. But that's what I'm seeing in my mind's eye as well. Um, and the funny thing was she hadn't got her shoes on. So she got one shoe on and one shoe off in her other hand. And it's like she was rushing as though she was late. And she said to me, she said, well, I wasn't sure whether we were actually doing this or not. So, OK, hold on, hold on, I'm coming. So I love that. So anyway, let's uh, welcome her in officially. Princess <sighs> Diana, 7th of March, 2022. Just welcoming your energy back to this channel and for you to be able to speak through me with regard to anything that you wish to say and equally the help that you would like to deliver for people that are watching this channel today. Um, asking my guides to also be here, welcoming in the energy of Archangel Metatron and Sanat Kumara who wants to be here today. And um, are you ready to go, Diana? Yes. Okay. Right. She's actually sitting down now. And I'm seeing her like smoothing out her um, her trousers. It's literally like she's been in a rush to get here and she's now just composing herself. So she says, can we all just compose ourselves for a moment? And she's actually saying that humanity needs to compose itself. Um, but it starts with us. 
the word composure and what composure looks like and what composure feels like is something that she's drawing our attention to right now. And she's saying when you are in a composed state, um, your mind is at ease, your body is settled and grounded, and it's the opposite energy of all of that franticness that I was describing earlier. It's the energy that I've been in, it's the energy that many of you have been in, it's the energy that the world is in, which is scattered, fragmented, um, not knowing whether we're coming or going. Um, and she's just saying, compose, compose. And she's now showing me, um, this is a royal uh, reference, but uh, as a me member of royalty, she was a member of royalty, they would often sit and still do for state um, portraits where a painter of the day comes in and paints your portrait. And she said, she she's showing me that she would sit for some of these state portraits, but she's saying it's also photography. So photography is the same as art. It's the same, um, it's the same type of thing she's talking about. You would have to sit and be very composed. And she's telling me or reminding me, because I do know this, that there's a new unseen photograph of her about to be released this week, I believe. And she's just showing me um, the sitting process and how um, she's saying how some uh, photographers um, would be great fun to work with and she could kick off her heels. It's this thing about kicking off your heels and be yourself and others, it was very formal. Um, so anyway, it's about composure. So we have to be composed. So right now she's telling me and you to put your hands um, palm down onto your legs. So I've got mine sort of the middle of my leg, just palms, hand down. And it's almost as though she says a lot of people right now are not very grounded and are not very rooted and she says it's understandable because Mother Earth is in such a state um, or the, the way that humanity is behaving on it is in chaos. And it's as though, particularly if you're sensitive, there is this thing about wanting to be on tippy toes and not really be standing properly on the Earth. She says but the, the Earth needs you to stand proudly upon her and to plant your presence um, and for it to be a composed presence. So she's showing me a ballet um, uh, move, for want of a better word, that's not the right word, but a ballet um, posture. Um, she's showing me, and she, she was into ballet, wasn't she? She's showing me the, um, the power of a ballet dancer when they are on the tip of their um, toes standing up and the power of that movement and the strength and the weight that goes down into Gaia um, when, for example, a ballet dancer does that. Um, I guess it's the law of gravity, isn't it? If you've got a smaller point, then there's more concentration of power and purpose. So there's two things here. She's shown the energy of ballet and the need to... Um, she's talking about refinement and culture and beauty um, as a way to feed our soul 
via these very difficult days in our world. Now, obviously, if you're in the middle of a war zone, you can't be going to an art gallery and looking at, you know, beautiful sculptures and works of art. But she's saying for those of us that are safe at the moment, it's actually we need to feed the collective soul. Um, and the collective soul is being shown images of horror and brutality. And she says people are and humanity is so weighed down by the by this and that their hearts are very heavy. Um, and to lift our hearts, we need to be surrounding ourselves with culture, artwork, beauty, um, gardens. She showed me gardens, landscapes, architecture, music, um, a sunset, anything that lifts your spirits. It's very, very important right now. But equally, this thing about composure. So she's saying it would be um, helpful if through the day you had three moments where you actually just checked in on yourself and um, linked into your inner state and the external manifestation of it. Um, and she says what you will discover is that you're going to be a bit like the swan who's paddling madly underneath the surface, looking as though you're composed, but really you're not. And actually the trick is to be um, still as above and so below, um, because then that's going to reflect out into the world. Um, and she's laughing now and saying, uh, she's, she's talking about her own state in terms of the arrival here, because she says, I wasn't very composed when I was running across that bridge. And um, I wish I could show it to you, what I can see in my mind's eye, because it's such a clear image of her running across this bridge to greet us with like a childlike um, sense of wonder and excitement and interest in us as an audience and um, wanting to help, really wanting to help. But it's literally like, and it's not my fault, but it's just an observation because I wasn't sure if I was doing this today or not. She wasn't sure whether she was due. And so it was like, oh, right, we're on. It's almost like cameras, action, come on. So she's racing across this bridge and she's just, as I say, she's got the um, the shoes and they're flat-soled shoes. There's something about wearing, um, she was a tall lady like me. So us tall girls, we tend to wear flats. Um, a lot of the time, um, particularly if we've got husbands of a certain height. She's talking about Charles here. <laughs> she's saying Charles didn't like her to be too tall. Um, but she says, actually, there's something about grounding um, and having your feet on the earth at this time. It's to do with composure. So if you're tottering around on, you know, high heels, even though they might look lovely, your um, your equilibrium and your um, centre of gravity is not going to be as steady as it would in a pair of um, boots or something. She's saying this is a time to be practical, um, not, uh, uh, I'm quite sure what the other word would be to counter that, because I just get this sort of informal elegance with her today, um, but practicality very needed as well at this time. And I'm now just looking down at this image that I've got in front of me and I'm sort of laughing because she's saying 
It didn't look very glamorous here, but there was a practical purpose as to why I was wearing this. Okay. Now, this is the reason she, this was the first reason that she came to want to speak through me today for us was this is, this is what she showed me. She reminded me of this campaign that she did, um, towards the end of her life in Angola. And it was a couple of decades ago now, but she went out to Angola to, um, highlight the, um, terrible um, incidents of people that were maimed, physically maimed daily via their legs getting blown off or, you know, losing limbs because they would walk through an area that used to be um, a battlefield, even though times were maybe um, calmer and peace had been restored, but that the mines still were within the ground. And, you know, she was never going to be blown up walking through the minefield. Of course, it had been cleared for her. But it's the power of a picture. Okay, it's the power of a picture. And this was very much Diana's energy. She was very much, she understood the power of a picture. So the energy of the picture, and I've talked about this before with her, about shaking or um, shaking hands with the AIDS patient at the time when it was completely taboo and people were scared to touch people with AIDS. She understood the power of, of a photograph of a moment. And this was one. It was very iconic. And I don't know, those of you that were alive during the time, you might remember that she actually got quite heavily criticised for the campaign by some fuddy-duddy male um, MPs in Parliament in the UK who said she was meddling in things that she didn't understand and she should stay out of it. It was too political. Mm. And she actually replied and said to their criticism and said that she was not going to be... Um, swayed by what she called an unnecessary distraction, i.e. them criticising her. Of course, years later, her son Harry, he's picked up this campaign with regard to the mines. But that's the reference point. But now I want to say to you what it was that she wants to say with regards to this. So let me just go back into her energy. So, Diana, with regard to the lions, uh, the li- lions, interesting. I said lions. Okay, the lions. Let me just write that down. I'm not quite sure what that means at the moment, but I always know when I make a slip of the tongue like that, it means something. Um, let me just talk about the lions then for a moment. Um, lion hearts, she's saying. You have to be, okay, she is wanting to talk about the lions. You have to be lion hearted at this time. She's showing me the energy of a lion, um, but she's showing me the huge heart of the lion. Um, isn't there something in literature of England, my lion heart? Um, I think there is. I just need to look that up because I'm hearing that and I don't know what the reference is in terms of what it means. England, my lion heart. Okay. Um, oh, it's a song by Kate Bush. Right. Nice one, Diana. She often gives songs, um, Diana. I remember this now. I've channeled her for a while. Um, Okay, this is the song. Whether it's about mines or not, I've no idea. But anyway, let's just get to this. It says, Oh, England, my lion heart, I'm in your garden, fading fast in your arms. The soldiers soften. The war is over. The air raid shelters a blooming clover. Flapping umbrellas fill the lanes. My London bridge in rain again. 
Oh, England, my lion heart. Peter Pan steals the kids in Kensington Park. You read me Shakespeare on the rolling Thames. That old river poet that never, never ends. Our thumping hearts hold the ravens in. Keep the tower from tumbling. Oh, England, my lion heart, I don't want to go. Wow. I think this is something linked into the succession and the passing of the monarch at some point, because it says here, Oh, England, my lion heart, dropped from my black spitfire to my funeral barge. Give me one kiss in apple blossom. Give me one wish and I'd be wassailing in the orchid, my English rose, or with my shepherd who'll bring me home. Right, I mean, come on. I mean, Kate Bush, I'm a big, big Kate Bush fan. I think she's amazing. Maybe Diana was as well. I guess she was. But I mean, that is almost like a song like American Pie with Don McLean, where you could probably spend the next year trying to fathom what the hell the lyrics mean. Um, Diana is bringing it to us for a reason. So I would encourage you to go and listen to it yourself. My deduction and what I'm feeling from her is there's a nod to the passing the succession of the throne. Um, London Bridge in rain again is linked into tears. London Bridge falling is the queen. Um, but there's also a reference here to the soldiers soften. The war is over. The air raid shelters are blooming clover. There's this thing about um, uh, she's showing us a vision via this song of the time after this war. Um, but it's referencing England. So uh, I do feel as though um, when I say England, it's UK, but I'm being shown the present government here, Boris Johnson. I believe he's trying to lead some initiative or, I don't know, lead the, lead the charge with regard to whatever the response is to what's going on with Russia at the moment. Um, I have heard other psychics, can't remember who they were now, saying that they believe that the UK might um, suffer to a degree as a result of standing up to Putin. So there could be a nod to that as well. Um, but I feel as though Diana is saying, oh, England, my lion heart, it's like my heart is with you. It's like there's this longing for, she was the English rose. Wanting to be back in the gardens. This thing as well about Kensington Park. Peter Pan steals the kids in Kensington Park. You know, I've done work with Michael Jackson and Princess Diana before. You're going to have to look back at my playlist. And I can't remember the top of my head, but I know that they talked about, um, they were referencing child, child trafficking basically and um, the need for us to look after our children, uh, the world's children. Um, and there's probably something coming through here linked into war being a, um, a corridor, an opportunity for the darkest hearts to um, take children, basically. Children are vulnerable at this time. So um, let me just go back into her energy here because I wasn't expecting that to come through. Um, what can you tell me here, please? Right, I'm getting this really, uh, it's almost like, I've, you know when you get like a lump in your throat, it's almost like I feel like a lump in my heart, that's what it feels like. It's like um, uh, there's a heaviness here, it's in the um, left chamber of the heart, um, this is collective, it's not my heart. Um, 
Although is it actually? No, I'm feeling it's her heart. This is linked into her energy when she was alive. Um, her pain, her suffering at the suffering of the children. Um, I believe that she was on to some of the networks. Um, Kensington Park, Kensington Palace is where she used to meet. Yeah, I'm being shown. I don't particularly want to go into this too much in this video, but um, it's like this Jimmy Savile. It's the Jimmy Savile energy, the, the predators, um, the predators basically linked into that network. Okay. Um, I'm going to pull a card. Where do we go with this, Diana, please? I'm being shown the energy after. Um, it's like this big cleansing. There's this big cleansing going to come out um, or going to arrive in our world linked into the children and the children's voice finally being heard. Um, it's a clear out, basically, of the networks, of the ones that have protected them. Um, as far as she wants to go in this video. Okay. Uh, okay. Let me go back to the mines. Okay, of course, I understand what you're saying, Diana. Absolutely, I understand what you're saying. I've just trodden on the mine. Yeah, exactly. Because that's what she was trying to say to us. That's what the message she wants to bring in about these mines. So taking it away, but still being concerned for landmines and people that still are maimed by these horrific devices around our world. And she's showing me parts of Africa in particular. Um, there's also other types of landmine in our world. And these are to do with things that we come across. This would be one of them. It's the big one that humanity is going to have to come across. And it's like when we tread on that mine and have to face the reality of what has been happening to children, um, you know, trafficking and abuse of children, then, um, of course, the, the world's heart goes into spasm. But from that, the heart can be restarted and compassion and grace and uh, love comes in to heal the wounds. So that would be a very good example of what she's trying to articulate here. She's talking about our life and the planet and the environment and the climate of our world. And we all wake up every day and we go about our business and we might get through a day, we might get through a whole week, a whole month where we don't tread on any mines. Um, these mines might be pieces of information that shock us, derail us. They could be people, other people that suddenly turn on us or shock us. 
um, by nature, the nature of the beast really is the mind is trying to, um, it's not necessarily a, uh, it's not a good thing, is it? it's not a good energy. Um, it can shatter our reality. Um, it can shatter, um, it can try to shatter our soul when our soul stays intact. So she says, the fact that I'm even talking in this way now is because humanity is getting close to the day where certain truths will be revealed, um, which need to be revealed, but you need to steady your hearts. And, and she's going back now to the energy of composure. Okay. Um, so those of you that already know some of the stuff that's going to be coming out, you can help others when it arises. Um, but equally, it's like, she's saying it's like anything, even if you're expecting for something to be revealed, when it finally does become revealed, it's still shocking. So um, she says it's a bit like death. When somebody is about to die, you can be um, preparing yourself for the fact that they're about to die. But when they actually die, it's still a shock. So um, there's definitely something centered around um, England. And um, what is exposed within that. But I'd like to take it now into your life, everyday lives. And I'd like you to think about how you inadvertently can step onto sensitive areas with other people. You might not mean to. You say something or you prod or you poke or you... Um, you know, we all can do this. We can maybe stick our nose into something that actually isn't our business and it can explode in our face. Yeah. It's like she's trying to make you see that life is a bit like a piece of land and into it are um, minds that you need to navigate and avoid if it's not your, uh, if you're not meant to be stepping on them. Um, but equally, there are wells of peace. So you need to be going towards the wells of peace and to gather around the wells of peace. Um, so I hope that makes sense because it's what she's talking about. Okay, um, so Diana, let's move on now to something else that you wanted to talk about, which was succession. So this may very well be linked a little bit. Um, she's wanting to have, uh, or she's asking our help because Diana was a monarchist. Okay, so whatever you think about the royal family and the monarchy, if you're watching this, you have to understand that Princess Diana was a monarchist. She believed in the royal family, okay? She wanted her son, William, to become king, and she still does, okay? So um, there's no point criticising for her for that if you don't believe that there should be a royal family. I'm talking to Princess Diana, so obviously Princess Diana is going to want her son to be king. What she drew to my attention is the energy that William has inherited which is to do with not wanting to be king. And for him to be the best king that he can be, and for Charles to be potentially an interim king, because I think that's all he would be, um, both of them need to heal this wounding linked into I don't actually want the job, okay? Because if you think about it, she's saying now talk about it in terms of like a corporate job. If somebody takes a job, but their heart's not really in it, they're not going to do the job to the best of their ability. So from Diana's perspective, the king is a, can be a force for good in this world. Um, but to be that 
the, the best potential force of good in the world, then he, he, they need to clear out this energy of I don't really want the job. Now, this is probably the most random way a message has come to me ever, but I'm just going to show you and tell you because it helps you understand how spirit speaks as well. After I felt Diana's presence last week wanting to talk about landmines, um, I then remembered that she, uh, I, in the last video I did with her, I was channeling that I felt that she was very linked to the planet Venus. Venus is the planet of love. It's the energy of the, the pink ray. It's all about the heart. And I also had a very strong pull to Sanat Kumara's energy. Now, Sanat Kumara is an ascended master energy. Um, there's information about who he is, and he's revered through across many different um, religions as well. Um, in Buddhism, in Christianity, in Hinduism, um, he was revered in ancient um, Lemuria, uh, in newer consciousness circles, he's revered. He's supposed to have a link or be the twin flame of Lady Venus. So there's that nod to Diana. I started to think, is Diana actually Lady Venus? Is there something going on there? I might ask that in a moment. But the point was that one of you had sent me a book about a month previously. Now, I cannot give you an update on what this, I haven't read it yet, basically. It's been sitting beside my bed. Thank you to the lady that sent it to me. Um, and I'll just say your first name. If you, Marianne sent me this. Thank you, Marianne. And um, it's just a book to help me understand Sanat Kumara's energy a bit more. Apparently, it's quite a um, hard book to get hold of. It's called The Story of Sanat Kumara, um, Training a Planetary Logos mm-hmm. by Janet McClure. Okay, that's what it looks like. Anyway, um, as I was feeling Diana and this Sanat Kumara energy and the Venus energy, I felt pulled to pick up this book and I opened it at this this particular page and I just want to read you two paragraphs and I realized what Diana was trying to say and she was telling me that this is about Charles and William so the passage says this book obviously isn't about Charles and William but just hear me out this is the passage it says he said I don't want to be king and he cried again As the spasms of pain moved through him, I held him until he became calm. He said, my father was the king before me, and thus from the time that I was born, my destiny was to be the king. I didn't want it. I hated it. Mm. I said to him, why not be king? He replied, it's not the type of life I would have chosen. I didn't want it. I said to him gently, Perhaps you are learning that there is something greater than ourselves, which helps choose our roles. He looked puzzled and said, I don't understand. That's just rubbish. I don't agree with that. I have the choice. I wish to make another choice. I don't want to be king. I said to him, do you have a son? And he said, yes, he has just been born. I asked, will he be king after you? And he said, of course, that is his destiny. Then I said, how do you feel about your son being king? He replied, it is right and it is is good for him. It is his destiny. And I said to him, do you think your father felt that way about you? 
He stopped and thought and he began to cry. But this time the crying was a release. He wept and wept in my arms and I let him cry, knowing it was cleansing away the feelings of frustration and loss that he had within himself. Finally, he said, perhaps I felt I could not be a good king. And I said to him, why not? I don't know, he replied. I don't think I feel good about myself. I said, perhaps not, but who are you? He said, I am the king. I asked, is the king worthy? And he said, yes, of course. So I asked him again, who are you? And he said, I am the king. Wow. Could you feel that as I was reading that? Because I could. Diana's saying we actually helped cleanse this energy from the family line by just reading that and reading this. And I believe this is a channeled, it's channeled work. Somebody else, Janet McClure, linked into Sanat Kamara. Because what I was also being shown as I was reading that to you was this is, this was Charles' resistance to being king. It was then William's resistance to being king. And then I was seeing George, William's son. And, and what we can do is we can clear the whole line so that however long Charles is king, if he is king, um, he's as good a king as he possibly can be. That's what Diana wants. William is the best king that he can be. And George then follows through and is the best king that he can be. I'm just seeing a very strong male line. <laughs> and it starts with Charles. But it's um, it's like a sunflower. It's like there's a seed there, but it, it grows through the generations to come. And it feels as though it's a very much a strong embodiment of the divine masculine at work by the time William gets in there. Um, and Diana's making me laugh because I don't know, it sounds a bit irreverent, but I think she could, she could be a bit irreverent, even though she really loves, you know, the monarchy and, you know, respects it. There was also a side of her, which was a bit sort of like having a laugh and a titter and, you know, because she's just shown me the day that William becomes king. And I remember now she's told me this before. He, there's this, um, strand of Holy Spirit energy that just comes through his crown, which also helps him to be the best king he can be. But she's just shown me him shuffling in his seat. I can see him doing it now. It's like because until that moment when it happens, there's still this side of him. Even if you can't see it externally manifested, he won't have the composure. We're back to composure. So we help him to have the composure and the strength and the holiness to be able to take on a very important role and she's taking me back to this Kate Bush song Oh England My Lionheart she's saying that he is the lion heart he's the lion heart he's a lion but he's also got the heart he's got the heart of a lion um, so there's something here about he's going to be a man for the times that we're in or about to be in and it's going to be um, she's just like rubbing her hands together it's like it's like, it's not, sounds horrible to say she can't wait, but it's, it, it's an energy of, she's, she's looking forward to his moment because she knows he's within him. He has the makings of greatness and she's, um, she's proud of the fact that she helped create that greatness. And, um, she says, don't you worry. I'm going to be in his ear the whole time. Uh, I already am. And he knows that. Um, there's, there's much, I've said all this before in other channelings, but there's much more to William than you see, um, in terms of he's, he's much deeper. He's 
he's more in tune with the spirit than he lets on. Um, he's his mother's son, is what she's saying. He's his mother's son. Um, okay. Can I also, just before we get off the royal subject, uh, Diana, let's just ask about Camilla, because the news has come out that the Queen has just granted that when she passes, Camilla can be Queen Consort, um, which was not something that was going to happen, certainly when you were alive. And I'm not sure it's entirely what the people want either, but that's what's going to happen, that she will become Queen Consort. Um, what would you like to say about that? I'm just, I'm just going quiet because I want to get this right, okay? You just tune in, please. What do you want to say about Camilla being Queen Consort? It's more an energy that I'm getting rather than words. I'm getting the energy of just let it be. Um, there's an energy of just let it be. It's as though she's, it's because she's so focused on William's reign. I don't feel as though Charles's reign is going to be very long. So it's not that it doesn't matter because it does, because it plants seeds for the future and he's going to help reform the royal family. And, um, he has important work to do in the limited time he might be in the role um, or regent to the role. But um, her eyes are really focused on the main prize, which is when William gets in the, the hot seat, as she's calling it. So this thing about Camilla getting a title for a while, I don't feel as though it particularly phases her. I, I, she's a bit tight lipped. But there's definitely not an energy of malice or um, uh, any badness coming through from Diana or resentment. There's an energy of just, it's like she's waving it away with her. That's what I'm wanting to do. It's almost like I'm waving it away. Let it be. Let it be. It is what it is. Because the main goal is getting William in there. I wanted to say something about his wife, Kate, as well, because um, this links into the ring. Now, this is not obviously a diamond and sapphire ring. This is an imitation ring that my mum gave me. Now, some of you might know that um, last year I lost a beautiful sapphire and diamond ring. that was my grandmother's. My mum had given it to me and I was very sad to have lost it. And it's still lost. So if any of you psychics can tell me, <laughs> please help me because I don't think you can. Because the, the, let me explain. The point was that it looked a bit like this. This is just an imitation. My ring was beautiful. Um, and it went missing. It was around the time that I was doing the work with the ancestors. I did this ancestral healing video, and I think I mentioned it then. It went missing. Um, I went to put this one on today because, obviously, it's an imitation of Diana's ring. And it was just to help me tune into her energy. And I remembered my ring that I'd lost and I felt Diana's energy come in. And again, it was this energy of just let it go. Just let it go. It doesn't matter. Um, and I was like, yeah, but I really like that ring. And she said, no, let it go. And she reminded me about the energy of rings. She said, and this is linked into the ring now that Kate wears, it's to do with the fact that for whatever reason, that ring needed to disappear because its energy was not compatible with mine because it had a sadness to it. There was a story behind that ring that I'm not aware of. It's not my business necessary to know what it was or why it was bought or anything like that. But it wasn't serving me at that time. As, as pretty as it was, it wasn't serving me. So it had to go away to be um, 
I'm hearing astrally clinged. Now, whether it comes back or not, I don't know. But she was bringing into awareness this thing about jewellery, but it doesn't have to be jewellery. It's things that get passed down the family line that have extraordinary symbolism or meaning. And you then may put additional meaning onto it. And if spirit thinks that it's not going to be good for you, then it'll move it away from you. Then she showed me her ring, which was her engagement ring to Charles. And I said to her, sort of in a slightly grumpy way, well, you know, Kate got to wear your ring. You know, why Why is my ring gone? But anyway, <laughs> what Diana said, and I love this, she said, yeah, she wasn't saying I'm a weak person, but she, she just said the thing about, it was more just about Kate. It was this thing about Kate at the end of the day is going to be the quick, she's going to be the king's. I don't know what she's going to be called, whether it'll be Queen Kate or whatever it is, but, you know, it's that energy. It's pretty high-ranking. And remember, I believe that Kate was Catherine of Aragon in a previous life, so she's got royalty through her blood, even though it doesn't appear she has in this life. There's something about the fact that Kate's strength was able to take a ring that might have been beautiful of Diana's, but was tainted by the whole Charles and Camilla energy and the sadness and the desperation and the depression and the anxiety and the the, um, the bulimia and all of the things that Diana went through. It had great sadness, that ring. And she says it could have gone one of two ways. It could have disappeared is what she's saying to me. But Kate managed to make it her own. And it's as though she was able to, her energy transcended the energy of the ring it was um it's hers it's almost like diana is saying it's her ring now it's not my ring it's her ring um so it's quite interesting she showed me kate's hand and kate's very delicate isn't she very very slender i just saw this very slender beautiful hand which is the reality of what her hand is like with the ring on it um but it feels at home with her something to do with um something to do with past life with Kate as well um it's almost as though it's symbolic of the ring that was taken off her finger or the fact that she when she was Catherine of Aragon um of course she was usurped by another seven wives okay so whether she kept the ring or not it's pretty immaterial she was not Henry VIII's wife um he got he got rid of her you know so her now having a ring on her finger, which is of royal descent, it's like it's rightfully hers. It's a bit like Diana's showing the energy of um, uh, the glass slipper, Cinderella. It was meant for her. It's funny, I've got to take this ring off now. I mean, this is just a fake ring, but she's saying that's not right for your finger either because that's got energy of your mum. So I need my own ring. Okay, right. <laughs> Anyway, that's, that's, all, that's all immaterial, really, but it's quite interesting, isn't it? Now, next thing I want to talk about is a little bit about, um, I'm going to talk about Venus, and we'll talk a little bit about aging. I'm not going to go into great depth on this, but again, I think it's just interesting, those of you that are, you know, interested in channeling and how it's done, and how spirit can talk to you. So, when I was having this uncomposed, frantic moments, early this morning, throwing on clothes, trying to get my makeup right, putting my hair up, putting my hair down, nothing looked right. 
really because I was looking at myself thinking, oh, I don't like the way you look. You know, it's a horrible thing to say about yourself, but I wasn't feeling good about myself today. Just feeling tired, feeling as I looked older, not after compliments, guys. This is in tune with what I need to say. Um, and it came on the back of having written that piece on Shane Warne last night on um, Instagram to do with the ageing process. And I am just going to read to you. It's only a brief little thing that I wrote, but I think it's very, very important. And I do believe it was his energy that made that brought this through for me as well. So, so I said, um, rest in peace, Shane Warne, Australian cricketer, if you don't know. I know I'm a few days late, but I've been considering what I wanted to say. But I keep coming back to something his death helped me with personally. He was said to have been on a 14-day extreme liquid diet to regain his former physique and shred, i.e. get the abs back, by July. I wish you had just let it all hang out, Shane. Getting older is hard. We can put on weight, get the lines and graying hair, but our kids and those who really matter don't give a damn. They just want us here a bit longer. It must be extra hard as an athlete in the public eye. Media can be cruel. Um, but, you know, his, yeah, so then I go on. So that was sort of the vibration that I went to sleep on last night. And I just feel that very strongly. And then this morning when I'm trying to get ready, Diana was sort of looking at me and what and I said to her, I said, yeah, you know, you died at the peak of your beauty, you know, looking gorgeous, you know, you, you, you never had to age, you, you know, you never had to see the lines and the saggy bits and all the rest of it that comes when you get a bit older. And I said, it's hard, that, it's really hard. And she said, she said, yeah, I bet it is. And then there was something linked into the fact that she was talking about the planet Venus, where she used to come from or one of her main planets that she inhabits. There's something there about youthfulness. There's something linked into youthfulness. Whether they don't age, I don't think they age as much as we do down on Earth. She says that Earth is a very aging planet. I mean, tell me about it. I mean, let's get serious. It's an aging planet. It's to do with the density of this place. Even though, even those of us that work with the light, and when you do work with the light, it can help you to look younger, longer. Although it's not about looking younger. I'm just talking here in terms of the difference between planets that it's a dense planet and so your body does start to um age quicker than it does on other planets because it's dead it's dense here and we're all killing each other still and fighting with each other you know it's it's hard being on earth um so um that was the first thing she said. The second was definitely an energy of, I'm glad I don't have to do it anymore. You know, when I was putting my makeup on and trying to decide what to wear, there was an energy coming from her, which is like, oh, thank God I don't have to do that anymore. It was like a remembrance of what she showed me was sitting in front of a dressing table mirror, like I was this morning, and putting on her makeup and her pearls and everything, getting ready for some big state banquet or something. And like her heart was just like, oh God, I've got, I've got to do this. I've got to paint on my smile and get back out there. And even though she enjoyed the cameras and she loved clothes, she also had a part to her where she just liked to lounge around in, you know, I don't know, joggers and something, you know? She's showing me just very relaxed, um, at home clothes, you know, loose, flowing. Um, but definitely this thing about not having had in this incarnation to experience the aging process with the body. Then what happened 
her was I she said she showed me this book which is sitting in my um bookcase over there Louise Hay I've often thought it'd be fascinating to channel Louise Hay you can heal your life is her you know the book that everyone knows of Louise Hay I kid you not guys I just opened it I said to Diane okay well why, why do I need to look at this I opened it if you've got it page 228 <laughs> I can't believe it well I can it, this is the bit it's just a very short paragraph this is Louise Hay's words it says, I'd like to share my thoughts about ageing with you. No matter what age we are, we can always let go of our baggage and break through a new barrier. Let me tell you about one of my later breakthroughs. Five years ago, when I turned 76, I decided to do something I'd never done before because I was always afraid to. I took up ballroom dancing. Oh, that's what Diana's, because of course the ballet, the dancing. Okay. I took up ballroom dancing. I had wanted to dance. This is such a sweet little link, isn't it? Oh, you can't make this stuff up. Diana and her ballet. And now we've got Louise Hay talking about ballroom dancing at 76. (laughs) So at 76, I took up ballroom dancing. I had wanted to dance since I was a child, but could never get up the courage. For many years, I'd said... In the next lifetime, I'll be a dancer. It's too late to do it now. Talk about a negative affirmation. Then one day, I passed a dance studio with a sign outside that read, We teach you to dance one step at a time. And I thought, one step at a time? Maybe I could do that. And the thought that followed was, I'm going to live quite a few more years. And why am I waiting for the next lifetime? And so a new era began for me. The first two months were hell. (laughs) I dreaded the lesson on Wednesday afternoon, but I knew I had to go through it. I think I held my breath the entire first lesson. Obviously, she goes on to say how much she loved it. Wow, I love that story. I mean, isn't that just beautiful? Can you see the way spirit just links everything together? Okay, so, yeah, Louise Hay for another day. Uh, we're nearly up to an hour, so I'm not going to say any more, I don't think, on her today. Um, no, I'm just going to, I mean, I can, I can feel her presence. She was a tall lady as well, was she? It feels like she was also very tall, because both of them are very tall. And again, Louise Hay, very statu- statuesque, very elegant in her own way. Um, very, she's sort of here, very comfortable with her own body and, um, or became comfortable with her own body is what she's saying. It's a, um, it's an art to become at one with your body through all its different stages. Um, just as the child has to become at one with its body when it first learns how to walk or crawl and balance. Okay. Um, right. So yes, that's just a, I think that's a message for some of us, me as well. Uh, let's do this Sanakamara, Lady Venus thing. What's going on here, Diana? Planet Venus, why are you bringing it to our attention? Um, let me spray the Sanakamara spray. Yes, we do have one. But Princess Diana, Sanakamara, what's going on here? Where are we getting all this? Yes, he was a great legendary uh, teacher from where I came. Um, she says, of course, we are all creatures of the entire universe, but I do have a special love for 
Venus. So it's the energy of Venus, the planet, and England. And I can't count. Sorry, guys, I keep going back to the planet, to the energy of England, because she keeps showing me an English rose garden. I think it's Kensington Palace. I think it's her garden in Kensington Palace. Um, yeah, it is, because uh, I'm seeing the statue now of her and the boys. She says that's around, um, she's around that statue. When you go and visit that, she's, she's very much in that garden. But anyway, um, Venus, the planet Venus. Um, how does it, what do you want to say about the planet Venus, Diana? I just got this big smile that wants to come across my face as soon as I feel into the energy of Venus. Um, she's showing me she's showing me the analogy of a garden again and this extraordinary fountain. Um, it does feel as though, again, it's something named into the fountain of eternal youth. The fountain of eternal youth, though, is linked into the soul because the soul never becomes old. The soul is ever youthful. The soul is ever oh, joyous and exuberant and wanting to explore and wanting to play. Um, and it gets confined in this body when we're down on earth and then the body starts to change and do things and creak and it's like, oh God, but your soul is still so alive inside, you know, whatever age you are. And she's now shown me a very, very old woman um, who has got eyes which are just um, full of light, full of light. Um, you know, we've probably all met people like that and it's like the fountain of youth is alive and well within them. Um, okay, so back to Venus. <laughs> she says you can go there and bathe. Okay, so there's this thing about Diana the moon goddess as well. So it's the energy of the moon and it's the energy of Venus. So put them both together. It's as though we can ask. She says you can ask to travel and go to the planet Venus um, during sleep time or during meditation. And it's a place where you can be rejuvenated um, and drink from the elixir of life, but it's linked into your soul. Um, your soul your soul can become weary, um, again, on this planet. And the way that our body can become aged and heavy, the soul can become weary, particularly at times like this in our world. And I've got that pain back here in the heart. The, heart, the world's heart is heavy. Um, so traveling to... Venus can help to um, recalibrate the chakras, um, recalibrate your body, bring the energy of lightness in. She's saying you can just ask for a download from Venus. So let's do it now, guys. Let's just do it. Okay, so let's bring Sanat Kamara in. And just bring down that energy of Venus. And it's like popcorn and candy and um, I don't know pastel pink and it's beauty and it's pretty and it's light and it's playful and it's I'm seeing fairground rides and children and it's a it's a young youthful happy place take that energy of the Venus energy into your heart and let it fill your heart with that vibration and take it down to your feet she's saying and let your feet dance <laughs> let your feet dance let your fingers you know move 
move your hips, move your move your joints. This thing about moving your joints. It's like the whole world is very stiff. She's saying that it's very stiff. Everyone's stiff. And it's like because we're stuck, we're stuck in narratives, we're stuck in theories, we're stuck. It feels like we're stuck here. <laughs> we're stuck here on this planet and we're at war again and we're fighting each other again and we're killing each other again. It's like, God, when's it going to end? And she's saying, come on, l- loosen up, loosen up, you know, flow, um, allow this energy in that's lighter. It's really important to plant it into the earth and do things that are light, do things that make you feel lighter as well. Um, so she's showing me now again this navigating this landscape. You know, yes, there are landmines, landmines. There are things that we are going to be discovering as a species that are difficult. There are difficult and also that's also to do with parts of ourselves. Stepping onto a mine, which is about actually about facing our own shadow, facing our own brutality, facing our own involvement, facing our own part and having turned away and not wanting to look at any of this stuff. Okay, pretending it's not there, pretending it's not going on, pretending that the child over in you know Africa is not actually hungry, you know, pretending that the child in the slum in Delhi is is sort of okay really, even though they haven't got clean water and they're playing in sewage. It's that type of energy. It's like turning away. We're going to be stepping on some minds where we're having to face it, and and it's you know there's there's it's the contrast between that shadow and the darkness and the light, and you know p- please make sure you get enough light. She's saying and play. Um, so from your perspective, Diana, you know, looking down on us here on Earth, um, what do you want to say? Um, do you miss Earth? Do you miss Earth? I miss the people on Earth, she's saying. She's saying, I miss the goodness of much of humanity. She's saying, you must never forget that the, the majority of humanity is good. Um, and the goodness in people's hearts is overwhelming and growing. Never, ever lose sight of that. Um, and that it can be the playground, okay? Um, and the and the beauty of children and the innocence of children. Um, I feel like she misses some of the portals on Earth. That's what she's saying to me. She misses the people and the portals. Um, so people would be obvious. The people that she misses are the obvious ones, but... It's to do with portals. So she's showing me the Taj Mahal, that famous photograph of her sitting in front of the Taj Mahal. She's definitely showing me Kensington Palace and London and England. Um, she's showing me Egypt. She's showing me the pyramids. Uh, where else is she showing me? Paris. She's showing me Paris. Of course, the city of love. Um, she's showing me the Eiffel Tower. She's showing me places which are portals on our planet. Um, She's showing me the bridge in, is it Sydney? Uh, I don't know what the bridge is called. The bridge in Sydney, the, the one, that, you know, that one. Um, she's showing me that bridge. She's showing me the uh, bridge in San Francisco. She's showing me bridges of the world, probably for obvious reasons, because they're bridges from one place to another, one state of being to another, one dimension to another. They cross over water. Um, she misses the water on earth. That's interesting. She misses the water. Yeah, she was a Cancerian. She was a water baby like me. Yeah, we love our water. She's like, misses the wa- miss the water. What she means by that is she misses the sea. She misses the swimming. She misses the lakes. She's saying it's slightly different here. Um, there's, 
there's a, just a, there are different elements here that we play with. Um, I don't feel as though water. I don't feel water around her as much. She misses the waters here. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, Venus. Anything else to say about Venus? I was going to say, are you Lady, Lady Venus? But I know she isn't. <laughs> and as I do that with my nose, which is the truth, because what she's wanting to say is that all of the ascended masters live within us. We are all part of Lady Venus. We are all part of the energy of Christ. We're all part of the energy of Sanat Kumara in the same way that we're all part of the planets. We're all part of Mars. We're all part of Earth. We're all part of Saturn. We're all part of Pluto. We have all of the templates within us. Um, but we can resonate more strongly with um, some places and some templates. So she carries a very strong Venus template. Um, and the thing about Lady Venus as well, being the supposedly mm-hmm. twin flame of Sanat Kumara, I know this mm-hmm. is just one tradition, there's many traditions and beliefs with Sanat Kumara, but there is this sort of twin flame energy with Diana. Um, love eluded her through her lifetime, did it not? Um, she said, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about the workings of the heart. Um, so she doesn't quite want to go there in this session, which is fair enough. We've probably gone over an hour. Okay. Um, anything else that you particularly want to say in this video, Diana? I'm not going to bring John in. I mentioned John Denver at the start. I will just say, because it will probably lead into a video I do with him soon. You see, Diana was called the Queen of Hearts and um, John Denver's called the Heart Whisperer. That's what I called him. So there's this thing about trying to help the, the world uh, with the heaviness in the heart at the moment. So what can you say, Diana, about the energy of war at the moment on this planet and uh, where we are at? War creates an opportunity to show the very best and the very worst of humanity. Focus on the very best of humanity. Mm. She's just showing me her energy and it's like she's got this big bucket, for want of a better word, it's not a bucket, like a basket. She's basket is more refined, Amanda, yeah. She's into a refinery, um, a basket and it's like these rose petals. And it's like she's just wanting to sprinkle the rose petals on the earth. And she's also wanting to create pathways, which are rose petals, um, which are pathways of peace. And she's showing me the corridor that is trying to be established to get uh, refugees out of Ukraine at the moment, um, which I believe has been shelled and fired upon. Some very tragic news over the last few days with regard to that. And she's wanting us as light workers to um, uh, put petals, rose petals of love and peace and protection all along that path. Okay, Um, and it's interesting. I will just say this. It's not really linked into Diana. But as I'm talking about that um, pathways in one of the videos I did on Ukraine and Russia, one of the earlier ones, I said that Mother Earth was going to have her say and would help to thwart or slow down um, the 
the war convoy, for want of a better word, better word. We have a peace convoy, the war convoy. <coughs> I interpreted it at that time that it could be something linked into the elements. And I deduced maybe it could be snow or, you know, in the same way that the Second World War in Russia, um, they were thwarted by the temperature, the extreme temperature and the snow. What's happened is that convoy, I think it's 40 mile long convoy or longer of tanks that are moving into the country or trying to move into strategic positions, um, they've been bogged down in mud. And I did think that was really quite interesting because that was something that Metatron was showing me, um, bogged down in mud. It's like they'd underestimated Mother Nature with regard to that. But anyway, I'm definitely being shown those corridors, humanitarian corridors, being scattered with rose petals. Um, and she's just asking us to be there for each other. But she's also saying that she is there for you as well. She's there for you to help you at this time. She's definitely a guide that you can call on um, in terms of matters of the heart, um, humanitarian energy. If you're trying to, I don't know, do charitable work or help your fellow brothers and sisters, calling on Diana can help you. Um, she has a... But she's still watching over my country here in the UK. Um, she, she's saying I have a vested interest because it's where her son is. And I'm saying her son. She's obviously got two sons, but it's just that William's the one that will be king. So she obviously loves them both the same. But, you know, it's all eyes are on um, William because he's the one who's going to have the role that's, uh, that will maintain the, uh, the monarchy. Anything to say on your boys that you would like to share at this point? As I've said before, she's upset at the um, distance between them. Um, she's just showing me that they both have their backs to each other. Um, they're facing different directions. She loves them both equally. Um, William feels more stoic and stubborn. Yeah. Um, I get the energy that he's looking that way. His brother's looking that way. Harry's the first to peek over his shoulder like that in terms of what's my brother doing. William's much more um, stubborn is what I'm hearing. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, she's doing her best to help that whole situation. Um, it may very well change when William becomes king anyway. I've said all this before. Right. Any final message, Diana? For today? Thank you so much for having me. I just want to get an image of her in my head, see where she's going now. like she's merging into the energy of Dr. Masaru Emoto now, or certainly bringing his energy in, who I've channeled before, because she's going down to my local river, and she's talking about planting the energy of love into the rivers of our world and the seas of our world. Well, I live by the sea, and I live by the river. So it's a call to those of us near water, lakes, rivers, the sea, ocean, to 
do some work to uh, send the energy of peace and love into the waters of the world um, and to spread that. Okay. I think that's probably it for today. Is that it for today, Diana? Yes. Okay. Thank you so much. You take care, she's saying. You take care. Take care of your hearts. Take care of each other. Take care of this world. Take care of your body. And love one another. Okay. Thank you. Right. So, I'm going to leave it there. I hope that you enjoyed that. I will just show you that card that I just picked up. How perfect is that? The Seas of Min Taker. Seeing potential, bringing unconsciousness to light. Go down to the waters and sow the love. Okay, guys. Much love. Bye for now. I'll see you all soon. Bye. Okay, we did it. We squeezed it in. So we're going to say ta-ta for the moment now. Mm. And we'll see you in a little while. And we'll take a really good look at the stars. And we'll bring our brother Richard and uh, Kate Pacha and Tanya Gabrielle uh, with us to look. Namaste for now, everybody. Thank you, thank you. Amazing grace. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. Thank you, sir. And Good Richard, Kepacha's uh, uh, 25 minutes and Tanya's 18 minutes. Okay. Yeah. All right, I was just sitting here looking at the chart for tonight. I don't know whether it's tougher or more. I don't know if it's more challenging for people with fixed sun signs or mutable sun signs. Because when you when you look at this chart, you've got you got Pluto at 29 Capricorn, then you got Mars at 6 and Venus at 7 Aquarius and Saturn at 21. All right, so that's uh, that's all opposite Leo and square to Scorpios and oh. Tauruses, right? And Uranus is in Taurus, so they got a little a little extra kicker there, or whether it's more more difficult for for Virgos and Gemini's and Sagittarius is because you got Mercury is up to five Pisces, all right. Jupiter is at seventeen, and Sun conjunct Neptune at twenty three. So you got four planets there in that group, you know, opposite Virgo. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and square, square the Gemini's and the Sagittarius's. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, you know, too much, too much energy can be as challenging as oppositions and squares. Yep. So Pisces are likely to be more, uh, well, everybody's got Pisces somewhere in their chart, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with with Sun conjunct Neptune, emotions are like right there in the body. 
you know, like right there in in the heart space, you know, or or whether uh, whether uh, Saturn and Aquarius, Saturn is, you know, just I'm not liking Saturn these days. Just not. <laughs> it's just not. Delay, 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 delay. Yeah. Yep. All right. Chiron's at 12 Aries, and, and Uranus is up to 13, 13 Taurus. So it's it's tough. So Uranus is opposite my sun, right? And uh, Jupiter, Sun, and Neptune are opposite my Mars and Venus over there in Virgo. You know, I don't know why I picked Venus and Mars and Virgo. I guess that's because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sucker for trying to be helpful. But anyway, <laughs> it's it's tough. It's tough. Venus can jump Mars. You know, it's like. That's, you know, that, we're just riding it out. It's like things are, things are going to get tougher before they get easier. Uh-huh. I'm going to have to look at it. I'm, I'm curious because which planet is going to get beyond Uranus first? Is it something popped up in my head, you know, looking ahead? Uh, well, let's see, we got, uh, seven, 37, 50, 50 days, in 50 days, the sun will conjunct Uranus. Uh, before that, you know, in, in a mere, in a mere, uh, uh 20 days, the sun conjuncts Chiron. Uh, this Chiron thing, you know, the, the whole world is just, the wounds are like showing up. The hidden, the hidden wounds are showing up. They're being revealed everywhere. I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. And then my other, my other pet peeve is stupid politicos. But anyway. That's the way that, oh, the moon, the moon is in a nice position uh, at, at 22 Cancer. And uh, that's the way it is, opposite moon, opposite Pluto this week, the next two days anyway. And then the moon's going to be in Leo, and it's going to be, you know, we're going to have moon opposite Venus and Mars, you know, in about uh, two more days. One day, we got one day, yep. So tomorrow, moon opposes Pluto, and the next day, the moon is going to be opposite Venus and Mars. So Monday, when the regular people get back to work, and stock markets open and all that stuff, we going to start the week with moon opposite Venus conjunct Mars. And uh, that's just tough, especially for for sensitive 
psychically sensitive types. Anyway, that's that's what we got going on. So let's go see what Kaipachi was thinking about. Okay. Yeah, he okay, he he knows more about this stuff, especially in. in I don't even try anymore. I I've given up trying <laughs> to read the future. But I just trying to stay stay centered in the, in the present. Yeah, you know, it's, that's good thing. Like, look, look at it. Yes, look, where I'm sitting here yesterday afternoon, it, it got up in the lower 60s and it was sunny, right? So I knew it was going to get cold overnight. So I got some, you know, split a little firewood, got firewood up on a porch because I figured it was going to be cold for two days. But I had no idea it was going to drop from 65 at sundown yesterday to 23 this morning. Yeah. <laughs> that's a drop of four. That's a drop of forty degrees, forty-two degrees in twelve hours. Yeah, and it, yeah, it, it, you know, it woke me up. This storm, this storm, you know, woke me up at like two thirty, and it was blowing, and the rain was heavy, and and it was noisy in the house, right? Just from how hard the rain was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm listening to the the BBC radio uh, between uh, between three and uh, about five a.m. now. And they continue to run some very good shows at BBC World News. Anyway, talk to you later. Okay, oh, Rama Rama listens to BBC News in the mornings when he goes yeah. out. Yeah, they're good. They're better than stuff around here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh hell yeah. <laughs> okay, let's see what K-Posh has got here. with the Weekly Paley Report. An astrological view as above, so below. Yes, of what is going on here on planet Earth. We know that astrology has to do with observation and correlation. Observation with the cycles of all of the different planetary cycles up above with what is going on down here below. <laughs> and uh, that's what I'm going to be talking about today. A couple of the things. This is a weekly report, but I think I'm going to have to look at a little more than just what's going on this week. Um, uh, the moon is in the sign of Gemini, very talkative. <laughs> I'm feeling very talkative. I have lots to say. Mercury is moving into Pisces today. Okay, and uh, you know we know that Pisces uh, has no boundaries, no laws, no rules, no limits. Ah, it's infinity. And Mercury is uh, that left brain talking, talking, talking away, so we can have, uh, yeah, this could be a pretty long report. <laughs> Just wanted to put that out there. That then, and then tomorrow, the moon is going to be moving into Cancer, and uh, she's uh, there uh, will be square to the sun. The first quarter square, we had that new moon last week. Now we're having 
the first quarter square, and of course it will be building to the full moon next week. So uh, this is a waxing moon phase square. And of course uh, that uh, the sun is coming into this conjunction with Neptune. It's not exact until Sunday, but uh, the moon will be squaring not only the sun, but, you know, hours later it will be squaring Neptune, trining Saturn in conjunct Pluto. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, through the weekend we've got that, you know, going on in Cancer until it uh, goes into Leo. Yeah, Sunday, Monday, depending on where you are on planet Earth. Uh, you're going to get uh, that fiery energy starting Sunday, Monday. And uh, like I say, the, uh, there will be an opposition to Pluto on Sunday. On uh, Monday goes into Leo and opposes Venus and Mars. Venus and Mars moving through Aquarius, coming up to conjoin with Saturn. Uh, all, all of them going to be squaring the moon's nodes in Taurus and Scorpio. I don't know how much I'm going to be talking about that, but just wanted to bring some of these things up. And let me look at the camera and talk more about it. Okay, <clears throat> where to start, where to start, where to start? I think I want to start with the end. The end. <laughs> Pisces is the 12th sign of the zodiac and symbolizes both the infinite potential out of which everything emerges, creation, source, love, God, whatever, however you see that, define that for yourself, out of which everything emerges, it goes through an evolutionary cycle and closes, finishes, completes, ends, returns to source. Uh, it goes back into compost. So, you know, we have now the Sun, Jupiter, Mercury, and Neptune, all in the sign of Pisces. And Neptune goes around every 165 years. We are collectively closing a 165-year cycle. See how that works. Jupiter goes around every 12 years. We're closing a 12-year cycle. Sun and Mercury go around every, you know, every year. So we're closing this yearly cycle. And in addition to that, there are other cycles, of course. There's, this is the study of, astrology is the study of cycles. And another one of these cycles, of course, is Pluto. And um, I want to thank uh, Peter because last week he, uh, in the comments section, left me a link to the changing world order. It's a great 45-minute video that I had just had to see, and it goes through history, from the Dutch to the English to the, to the United States, and it shows, this guy is not an astrologer, he's, a, <laughs> you know, he's studying the, these cycles without the use of astrology and basically proving astrology. Basically, he's saying that there is a 250-year cycle, Pluto is a 248-year cycle, moving through the sign of Capricorn from 2008 to 2024. And if we go back, it was there in 1776, 
And if we go back, then we would say that it was you know there at the be- that the fall of the Dutch and the rise of the English. And if we go back again, you know it was at the fall of the previous and the rise of the Dutch. And he shows these this 250 year approximately cycle, which directly corresponds to Pluto, Shiva, Kali, the force of death, resurrection, ending, and rebirth, metamorphosis of. Moving through the sign of Capricorn, it spends, you know, uh, what, 8 to 4, you know, 8 to 24, you know, we've got, you know, uh, 18 years or so. So, you know, transforming, metamorphosing, Capricorn is the world order. It is government, law, institutions that impose, okay, law and order and discipline. And in, it's, it, it's external authority. If you're familiar with astrology, you know this. And so we also understand that, you know, the United States is going through its first Pluto return. This happens back and forth and back and forth. The first one came in February. It's going to go retrograde over the summer. And then it's going to go direct again in November, December. So the whole year of 2022, midterm elections and everything else, has so much to do with a death of the old order, leading to, of course, a changing of the world order. And this is not just the United States, as, as, as that film shows. Okay, this is world. But the very interesting thing is that the U.S. dollar was established as the world currency. And this may very well change as China rises, maybe along with Russia. These guys are rising up. And that is, if not a whole new, okay, you know, G7, uh, you know, uh, world economic forum, uh, global elitists, uh, you know, that, that is not, you know, included or seen, uh, you know, or worked with in this historical film. But it's something to take into consideration and concern. So that we have another closing of this 250-year cycle. Now, so we can see that Pluto, Venus, Mars, Saturn, Mercury, the Sun, Jupiter, and Neptune are all in the final quarter. Capricorn, Aquarius, Pisces. So, you know, all of these cycles is what I'm saying are, you know, coming to an end over the next number of years. I've talked about this in my other films, you know, 2026 is really going to be, uh, you know, the, we're going to see more of the thing. So we're in the end game. We're in the end game. And I'm going to put a link down here for a docu-series called The End Game. Um, and I'm not saying that I, uh, you know, support these guys or, you know, uh, I obviously I haven't seen it. It just started uh, yesterday. It's free for 24 hours. There's nine, nine of them, one after the other over the next nine days. They're free, but then you got to pay, you know, it's a whole serious thing. Anyway, but uh, the, you know, it's, it's an interesting, it's good to be informed. It's good to be informed these days. And I want to just, you know, really point to, let's uh, first look at Venus and Mars also closing a cycle. 
they only come together, okay? You know, it, it takes more than a year, okay, for Venus and Mars to come together. Sometimes they don't even exactly join together. But they are moving together now right through the sign of Aquarius, which has to do with individuation, liberation, enlightenment, revolution, stepping out of the conventional, out of the norm, and drastically altering, okay, our lives, our relationships, and moving towards the future, receiving aha moments, sudden insights, sudden flashes into who I am and in what I need in my future. So I really want to talk today a lot about this whole shift of identity, this whole shift of each of us coming into a more enlightened awareness of our needs, Venus, and our desires, Mars. And and they're, they're closing in on Saturn. Again, so this is a closure. Saturn is structure and form and commitments. So we are ending. So many people are moving through. It's like, you know, this relationship is not a reflection of my values. It's not a reflection of my aims or desires of where I want to go in Aquarius, the future. So we have this breakdown happening, this shift happening, that is then going to lead to new forms, new structures. And of course, Aquarius has to do with groups. It has to do with the collective consciousness, associations, corporations, United Nations, however you want to look at it, but it starts with community. It starts with people that are gathering together. It was really great. Last night I went to a, a birthday party and, and we sat out in the woods in a circle on the grass around a fire like people have done for thousands and thousands of years. It was so beautiful. And this time of Pisces, let's look at it. Aquarius is the collective consciousness. Pisces is the collective unconsciousness. Twelfth house, Neptune, Pisces is the under, under, under unconscious. Okay? It's not even so personal. It is just like, but we are each one of us connected to this collective unconscious. And it has to do with psychosis, neurosis, wetico, yeah? All types of what is lying beneath propaganda, lies, deception, uh, illusions, but also dreams, fantasies, potentialities, holding for that new future, which is what leads me to the mantra for today, right? You know, this mantra for today is a woman giving birth. Right? So this, this Pisces is, we are a collective. We are humanity. We are birthing a new world order. We are birthing a new concept and understanding of what it means to be human, of how to be human. And of course, that starts with ourselves. And that's really what I wanted to talk about, you know, is just this whole understanding of what we can control, what we can't control, what we can change, what we cannot change, how we can prepare for this change in the world order, 
this descent of one world power and the rise of another global power. And this all begins where? It begins at home. Last week I talked about in the mantra was that I am a spark to light the flame. So this Venus, Mars, Saturn moving through Aquarius, this deep new understanding of our individuality, of our individual essence, that's the foundation. We can, if there's one thing you can control, it is your mind and your thoughts. And it becomes very necessary for us to discipline our mind and even silence the mind through meditation. Controlling these thoughts, letting go of some thoughts and nourishing, watering, feeding other thoughts. Yeah? So this, it, it, it starts with this, this Pisces, this spiritual alignment and attunement with what I call divine intelligence. It's even life. It's life. Yeah? And then from that seed of myself, I begin with my intimate partnership, my intimate relationships, my close knit. Yes, that 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 powerful. We have the south node of the moon in Scorpio. This this union, and and really reflecting and understanding and working with these you know this this intimate, most intimate, connecting with people. From there, it comes out to family. From there, you know, it's like, is my family safe? Is my family prepared? Is my family awake and aware and ready for whatever comes? I'm going to be looking for a thumbnail because, uh, you know, there's a, I was even going to read this freaking the thing of Revelation, right? You know, in the book of Revelation, not just in the book of Revelation, but in mythology, different mythology from all over the world. There is so often the picture of a dragon, yes, or a beast, sitting by uh, the mother that is about to give birth, and the beast is, wants to devour the child. It's, it's almost like, yes, you know, Gaia or the, you know, the feminine, giving birth to a new world order, giving birth to a new life, giving birth to a, you know, a new presence, yes, a new uh, extension of source, and wanting the dragon of the past, yes, the dragon of desire or whatever, wants to devour this. And it is interesting that, I mean, I could go on with this, you know, because I'm all into mythology, but the dragon sweeps one-third of the stars out of the sky and casts them down upon the earth, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so it's just like, okay. I I mean, I hope that's not one-third of the world population, but, you know, it's a pretty big, yeah, it's a big shift. But the, the, the cool thing is, at least in the book of Revelation, right, the, the, the baby is born and swept up into the heavens. Yeah, saved from the dragon. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a happy ending. It's a really great thing about, you know, about that particular story. But, mm-hmm. you know, th- there is always, okay, when we want to give birth, when we want to change, when we want to initiate a new phase of life, we have to face our fears and we have to face our dragons and we have to face our demons. 
we have to face everything that is holding us back. And, and of course, this begins a lot with just, you know, unconditional self-love, that ability, okay, to love ourselves. I've got some friends who are swimming. <laughs> uh, that's part of living in community. Lots of people around. Um, trying to focus, trying to stay concentrated. Where was I? <laughs> Gemini is like, all over the place. I got the moon in Gemini. Anyway, so th- there is this, uh, just this sense, okay, of this preparedness. And I... Yeah, there's a, there's another thing that I want to bring forward, and it's I'm, I'm putting three links below. One is to that historical video. The second link is you know t- to this whole changing of the world order, and the third is to uh, creating a parallel society versus totalitarianism. Another great little video, and you know it's 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 a it's a little shorter one, but it talks about these you know. Creating communities, self-sustaining, self-sufficient communities outside of the bigger, larger world order. Mm-hmm. So part of this being prepared is not only preparing your own inner psyche, coming together, okay, with you know powerful others, powerful partnerships, and creating powerful families. But then creating outside of that is community, a community garden. Okay, you know, community supplies, you know, sharing resources, uh, whether it's washers or dryers or water or, uh, you know, uh, an electric generator. I, you know, it's like community, you know, together as, you know, as communities, we can be more easily self-sufficient and less affected by these, you know, what I call insane <laughs> global powers, man. It's really crazy out there, right? So if the interesting part about this mantra today, let me you know read the mantra, right? You know, like a mother with child preparing for birth, I don't know what will happen next. So I hold sacred space and do all I can. And let spirit take care of the rest. The song for this week is Let It Be, Let It Be. (laughs) Mother Mary comes to me and says, Let It Be. But a very important part of this mantra, we know that Pisces is more of a passive, accepting, allowing, surrendering energy. Yet at the same time, this full moon approaching is going to be in Virgo, which is work, effort, discrimination, health and healing, and getting our shit together. So what's, you know, a a powerful part of this mantra is, and do all I can. We create sacred space. We grow our food. We make a garden, even if it's on the top of an apartment building. But of course, I suggest, and I've always suggested, to get out of the city, to get away from 5G. Okay, you know, to, and, and to yeah. you know, put your you know finances in order. That's another. It's a whole other film <laughs> on how to do that. But anyway, taking a, a definitely don't feed the dragon, don't feed the beast, 
Get your money out of the big banks. Okay, stop using Amazon. You know, try to get away as much as possible, you know, from the claws of the dragon, of the big beast, right? And separate, separate, and make our own little subcultures, our own little, you know, uh, supply chains. Make, make your own supply chain, right? So, you know, there's even the Web3 that's, you know, coming, uh, you know, coming out. I have a node. On, on the web three, so we can move away from, okay, the, you know, the centralized internet that exists right now. That's web two. So there's, you know, there are things happening. Uranus moving through Taurus. The North Node moving through Taurus is a movement towards simplicity. It's a movement towards self-sufficiency. It's a movement towards, you know, simple survival techniques. So we want to just, you know, focus our energy on this preparedness and do all that we can and let the rest go. Sleep easy. Knowing that you've got, you know, a stash of food or a good garden or backup electricity or, you know, whatever it is called for. It's like, whoosh. And, and then we can relax and we can sing and we can dance and we can gather around the fire. And we can envision. It's very hard to be creative when you're under pressure. So we want to take steps now to release that pressure. And, 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 and that comes through preparedness. And, and, and of course, a spiritual attunement, faith, hope, love, and trust, these all contribute, right, to that peace of mind. And then that peace of mind is fertile soil. For imaginative, innovative new ideas. So freaking go for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's going to get tough out there. there and there's going to be, you know, we're going to see some things and hear some things. And some of it will be true. Some of it, most of it is going to be propaganda and, and uh, fear-mongering lies and stuff going on. But, you know, th- yeah. I mean, inflation is inflation, prices going up and, you know, things going nuts, you know, is a definite reality. Um, and you don't have to read about it. Uh, you can see it when you go to the store. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Try not to go to the store so much. <laughs> to the garden. Oh, my. <clears throat> okay, so, like a mother with child preparing for birth. I don't know what will happen next. So I hold sacred space and do all I can. And let spirit take care of the rest. Mm. May you have a peaceful, productive, preparatory week. Mm. And I uh, look forward to connecting with you again sometime, somewhere. I want to be uh, coming over to Europe all summer and making circles of people in real time, in real life. So uh, if you're over there in Europe, maybe I'll come visit you or something. Namaste. Aloha. So much love.
the talkie stick back to you, Richard. All right, then. Uh, looking at next Saturday night's chart. This is, this is the week of lunar oppositions. Right? So the moon's in, uh, late cancer right now. And so, uh, tomorrow it's gonna start this process where it's gonna, it's gonna be opposite Pluto and then Mars and then Venus and Saturn and Mercury and Jupiter and Neptune and the Sun. And by next Saturday night, the moon's going to be at 21 Libra. Mm. And it will have opposed nine planets. Everything but Uranus. So it's going to be, um, it's going to be a week of triggers. Might be one oh. way to say it. Yeah, a week of triggering. Yeah, and let's see here. Now, next next Saturday, um, Mars will be at 11 and Venus will be at 13, Aquarius. Mercury will have moved up to <coughs> conjunct Jupiter. That, that'll be 17 and 19. So... And the sun, next Saturday is the last day of Pisces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Aries. Aries coming up, yep. Aries is Sunday a week. A week from midnight. Yes. Yep. And don't we change the clocks here in uh, the United States tonight? Yeah. Yep. yep. Let the spring come forward, please. Well, yeah. I mean, when I went to when I went to get groceries um, yesterday, um, there's uh, more flowers flowering. There's some early flowering trees. I saw a red bug. There's a there's another variety they like to plant around here. Uh, the flowering tree comes out. One of the First, it comes out, and they've got a they got a bunch of them uh, planted in the median down the middle of the four lane between uh, between uh, North LJ and, and South LJ out on the four mm-hmm. lane, and they were all just sitting there, and they're a little pretty, pretty. And then, of course, this morning there's snow all over the place. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, my daffodils are for the most part faded. But, uh, such is life. So, uh, stay strong, stay disciplined, you know, think before you act, and you know, things like that. And have yep. a great week. Thank you, Richard. Alright, let's see what Tanya's got on her mind. She's, uh, she's He's getting better. <laughs> Here we go. All right. Okay, Rich. Here we go, everybody.
there, it's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at important celestial events in the stars and numbers. Coming up, in this case, the Virgo full moon on March 18th at 7.18 a.m. Universal Time. That's 2.18 a.m. Eastern New York, and that's 11.18 p.m. on the West Coast, L.A. Now, notice March 18th. And 18 past the hour anywhere in the world. And then the sun and moon will be at 27 degrees. The moon, of course, in Virgo, hence the Virgo full moon. And it will be opposite the sun at 27 degrees Pisces. Now, 27 and 18 both reduce to 9. So 9 figures greatly in this full moon. And 9 is all about letting go, release, culminations, endings, and also healing through love. So it's a number of great wisdom and great compassion. And we also have the sun in Pisces, which is the final sign, just like the number nine is the final single digit, hence it represents culminations and endings. The final sign also represents a sense of bridging, of coming to the end of the zodiac. So we are in a transition, in a recalibration phase, in a phase where we're literally letting go of certain patterns or beliefs or thoughts, habitual thought, you know, patterns that have a loop, you know, and are looping us into a sort of stuck existence. And we're letting go of that so that we're freed up. And then come the Aries equinox on March 20th, we can be freed up completely to move forward. So another nine also shows up just to put the icing on the cake. And that is that March in 2022, three 2022 adds up to nine as well. So March this year is a nine universal month. So in so many ways, we've come to the finality of something, a sense of just purging in general. And then Pluto also plays a role because Pluto creates a trine to the moon. And Pluto is basically a very similar message. Just like the number nine, it in fact looks like a mirror of the number nine, the, the P and the nine. And they both represent purging and also empowerment. Nine is a very powerful number. So Pluto is as well. And so it is this message of empowerment through letting go. Now, if you notice on the chart, the moon is in its own sort of hemisphere all by itself on the right there, the lower right. And then it's opposite all the other planets that seem to be in a different part of the zodiac, which they are. So there's a sense of being on your own path with this full moon and dedicating yourself to a life of service, a life of healing, a life of love, everything that Virgo and the Pisces Virgo axis is the healing axis, everything that the health healing axis represents. So this means also because there's this opposition from the moon to not get caught up in those conflicts that are asking you to be against a side because that can be very detrimental to the healing process. The healing process is holistic. It accepts everything that shows up 
whether it is deemed good or bad, there is acceptance there and understanding, and there is no resistance to seeing it or the fighting off of it, but basically the pure um, visual of embracing everything that shows up for you. So you don't want to get caught up in any kind of conflict or frequency wars where you are competing against another for domination. And so we need to move into this healing Virgo Pisces axis now, Sun is in Pisces, Moon in Virgo, where there's a sense of mastering self-awareness and that brings a really, a greater sense of, of being of service and welcoming all journeys that are about self-discovery and self-growth. And the sun in Pisces is sensitizing your heart. It's filling you with empathy, with compassion. And, you know, earth signs are very practical and grounded. So we have this sense of things working very smoothly and efficiently with Virgo. Uh, Virgo governs the earth, the crystals, everything with herbs and the origins of your food and the water you're drinking, the environment in general. So there's a sense of cleansing through the waterfall, the glories of Earth's bounty, and being also very efficient and planning how to uh, use the bounty to thrive and be filled with life. So there's service, there's healing, there's being helpful, there's critical thinking and analysis through Mercury, the ruler of Virgo, there's discernment and focus as well. And then Watch the shadow side around this time too, because the shadow side for Virgo is to be perfectionistic or judgmental or blaming or being a workaholic, worrying, being critical. So not getting into that perfection sense because, you know, everything is perfect as it is. It's just a journey of self-discovery, right? There's no such thing as the end date or, or arrival point. It's always growth. So, we have this amazing full moon, Virgo and Pisces, 27 degrees. 27 is very healing. And we have this body that we live in that is our own home, right? We live on Earth, our home in terms of our planet. But then our soul lives in our body. And Virgo governs that incredible healing machine called our body, right? It has its own intelligence. It knows what's best for us. It knows how to express itself for our highest well-being. It knows how to alert us when there is some disharmony that originates in our mental or emotional sphere and then translates eventually into physical reality. So, you know, often when there is an imbalance, we don't need to know what's causing the imbalance. It can have taken root many different ways through our childhood or through some kind of family dynamic or that's, you know, way past before we were even born that has manifested itself. There's so many different imbalances and a lot of them are just played out on a subconscious level. So they're really hard to see. However, making, you know, understanding what the connections are, it's actually not important for the healing process itself. So what matters is that you just keep trusting 
in the intelligence of the message that's coming through your physical body. So instead of if you are feeling unwell, instead of saying, oh, I'm I'm not feeling well or I'm sick or something has to be fixed in me, you know, something's wrong, um, that will keep you in that loop. That's the sort of the health loop, right? And instead you want to focus on what you want to feel like in this case, you can say, well, I wonder what it would feel like to feel filled with energy, to feel healthy, to feel well. And and that sense of wonderment takes you out of the loop of, oh, gosh, something needs to be fixed, something's wrong. And so the wonderment uh, transports you and lifts you up above and beyond so that you can literally uh, enter that sphere of reality. So you're not going to war against the divine intelligence of your body that is constantly acclimating and healing, right? So this is really the health journey is to always focus on where you really would like to be frequency wise and not to fight that, but to align with it. So you always want to come back to the frequency that you want to hold. And if that's the frequency of I am abundant, you go there. If it's I am at peace, you go there. I am healthy. I am strong. I am empowered, right? There are so many ways to align with a frequency of healing and health and, you know, joy. So Mercury, the ruler of Virgo and this full moon also covers all kinds of communication. So in the same way, you know, news is a kind of communication, being online, reading whether it's alternative or mainstream media, it's a kind of communication. Most of that kind of news, any news, really alternative or mainstream, is focused on the negative. And so you wonder sometimes, well, are there any good things happening anywhere, right? They're not being reported, at least not on the front page, right? You gotta search. And even then, do you actually find, you know, wow, there's all these good things happening all over the world? Again, just like you choose the frequency to align with, you don't have to carry news stories that have a negative storyline internally, right? You can literally decide through the ability of, especially Virgo is very analytical so and discerning, so you can decide at any moment how you want to feel. You don't need to literally be the antenna and the broadcast of that negative news. You can read it, and then you can make a choice about what you want to broadcast. So that means you can still be aware of the news, right? You actually find it helpful to know what's going on to the people close to you or just in general what the collective is focusing on. But that doesn't mean you need to choose to align yourself with that negative frequency because who would that be helping in the first place? So if you're not buying into that, you have to join the frequency to understand it. You just have to observe it, see that it's a story that many people are focusing on and they, they are aligning their consciousness with possibly, but you have the internal intelligence to decide whether to join or not, right? Or whether to, you know, if you don't join, join the frequency of joy and peace. So in that moment where others are in fear or in worry, you can imagine feeling 
joyful. Imagine joy. And so then when you do that, your emotions are being fueled by those thoughts. You've literally said, I wonder what it would be like to feel joyful right now. You know, so when you imagine the frequency of your choice, you are feeling it. Your imagination drives that feeling. And imagination really is the critical link here to making the frequency manifest in your life because your imagination brings it to life, right? So, and in this era that we're in, we're 24 seven, we're being bombarded with news, with conversations around us. People are talking about it. You know, the emotions of the collective are constantly being emitted around us. So we need to be very vigilant about constantly monitoring our thoughts, what we're tuning into, our feelings, our emotions, and be very clear about that, right? And Virgo gives us that discernment. So the moon trines Pluto, the sun sextiles Pluto, this is very much about empowerment or disempowerment. You want to work with this energy and, and really move into the ability to see the truth, let it go, and allow that to instill a lot of confidence in you. And then the sun conjuncts Neptune and also Jupiter. Now, Neptune's at 23 degrees Pisces and Jupiter at 18 degrees Pisces. There's that number again. And Neptune is the actual modern ruler of Pisces and Jupiter, the ancient ruler of Pisces. So there's just a lot of Piscean energy. And we also have Mercury in Pisces at 13 degrees. So four planets, well, the sun isn't a planet, but... You know, three and the sun, are, so four light bodies are in Pisces. So very watery, let go, fluid, emotional, deep healing energy here. Also letting go energy. Let it flow. Let the water cleanse, right? Now, Mercury conjunct Jupiter is a, a beautiful conjunction. There's actually a big stellium between Mercury, Jupiter, Neptune, and the sun in Pisces. And when we look at Mercury and Jupiter, it really enriches that imagination that I was mentioning earlier that really brings frequencies to life. So you're really brimming with a lot of positivity, optimism, enthusiasm here, you know, because Jupiter broadens everything. And you can see the big vision. You can write ideas down. You can take advantage of opportunities. You feel generous. And then... Venus is sextiling Chiron exactly at 11 degrees and exact during this full moon. And Chiron governs healing and Venus is beauty and joy. And they're both at 11 degrees. The 11-11 portal opens up to spiritualization of divine inspiration, of shifting towards embracing your spiritual values as well as your practical values and that your response to life in general is passionate and beautiful and loving and that you make sure you create a sacred space around you that is just absolutely pleasurable. Remember that Virgo governs your environment. And so this is a wonderful opportunity for you to make sure your environment is beautiful or just to choose a room that you can create a sacred space in to have that ready and always to relish in the the ability for you to give gratitude for beauty at any given time. So surrounding yourself with it is, is very, very important. So we also have a square from Venus and Mars, and they're still traveling together, to Uranus, Uranus being the ruler of the Aquarian age. And so there's this sense of truly highly creative energy, number one, 
Guard against drama, though. You need to really act on this energy. A square is a call to action. And in this case, the action is about being um, creatively, just passionately engaged and breaking away from authority that is holding you hostage in any way. So this has a strongly liberating impact on you, and it is time to take fun, adventurous risks. It's time to invigorate personal relationships, to make quick decisions if you need to, to prepare for surprising surprising developments. And it's a great time to manifest a lot of deep personal change because Uranus is also the planet of sudden shifts and changes. So you're sensing the pulse. You're sensing everything that's going on around you, the frequencies, you're letting go. Full full moon is always a great time to release, right? It's come to a culmination, just like the number nine we talked about at the beginning. And you're cleaning up, you're cleansing, you're paying full attention to the present moment. You're choosing the frequencies that you want in your life. You're choosing love. You're choosing joy. You're choosing peace. You're choosing contentment, Right? These are all frequencies you can be aligned with right now, no matter what is going on. And this is really the main message of this Virgo full moon. So I hope you have an amazing full moon. Enjoy it. And remember, you can also discover your own star code at starcodeclass.com, which is a free masterclass all about your birthday, your birth name, your astrology code, You get a free handout. You can discover your own destiny, your own purpose, and those of the people around you so you are much more compassionate and non-judgmental towards them, which is really the key these days. And so enjoy that free masterclass at starcodeclass.com and have a beautiful week. And I look forward to seeing you in next week's Star Codes forecast. Lots of love. Richard, are you still there? Okay. It's us ticking. All right. I'll get him. Oh. Oh. What was that? Don said he would get Richard. No, 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 no. You don't have to get Richard. No, 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 no. I was just seeing if he was still there. It's okay. No, no, no. But, um, Rama, what's the phone number? We got to go to our conference call now. Uh, 720-716-7301. <laughs> and the pin code is 353-863-POUND. All right, everyone. It's a magical time to be alive, and uh, we will converse about that on the conference call. And then at the top of this next hour, we'll be right back here at BBS Radio, best radio there is in the galaxy, of the universe.
and everywhere and everywhere. We will be back <laughs> in the next hour, at the top of the next hour. So much love, everybody. See you on the conference. Aloha. Namaste. Wonderful, Rama. That was beautiful. Who was that, that last one? Um, one of our Sikh sisters named Singkar. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think she's on the planet anymore, right? No, she went over no. the rainbow. Over the rainbow a long while, quite a while ago. Well, I'm going to take a chance on playing something else that I'm not quite sure. I, I just know it's um, poets and philosophers and music and... Um, called The World of Wisdom and Wonder. Mm. And, I mean, whatever we can do to change the energy, folks. Mm, yes. <laughs> Let's see here. Okay, let's turn it up. Let's see what it says. This program was made possible in part by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. We are living through hectic, challenging, and unprecedented times. Life can make you feel as if you're being pulled in 20 different directions simultaneously. That pulsating stress you're feeling can be overwhelming. But there is an antidote to the crushing demands, a respite from the blaring headlines. There is a place you can go to slow down, relax, recharge. To experience moments of harmony and serenity. And when you do, you can improve your health. Throughout this program, We'll share wisdom from the ages and how to move away from the toxicity of daily life and into the world of wisdom and wonder. Right now, please take a breath with me. A deep breath. Feel the air filling your lungs. Let it out very slowly. You're on your way. Open your eyes and your heart. Listen. Feel. And be surrounded by beauty. Peace will come wherever it is sincerely invited. Alice Walker Feel the warmth of the sun through the trees. With each step, find new paths to travel. Learn by 
being present. Be still. Listen. And hear what gifts reside in this moment. to change in your life. Shoulders soften. 
as you breathe deeply with me. Know that this journey is yours. Within every flower is the promise of abundance. to take an even greater toll than physical stress. Practicing relaxation can reduce this, and you can feel lighter, freer, more alive. Life is a succession of lessons which must be lived to be understood. Ralph Waldo Emerson. The power of relaxation is scientifically proven, and the first step anyone can take. Make your relaxation a priority. Make yourself a priority. best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen nor even touched, but just felt in the heart. Helen Keller surrounded by treasures in this moment and in every moment. A beating heart is like the force from a wave. Hear the still small voice inside of all things. It is peace. It is calm. It is you. Each passing wave is a reminder that every day is a chance for renewal. You can let your breath out slowly and feel the release as tension leaves your arms, leaves your neck, leaves your back, 
you are floating on an endless sea of possibilities. Live in the present. Launch yourself on every wave. Find your eternity in each moment. Henry David Thoreau. from what is around you to what is inside you and do it each and every day.
Rediscover the quiet you have inside. Find your inner joy. With each passing wave, relax, refresh, and restore. It's natural to find your thoughts drifting away. As you feel it wandering, slowly bring your mind back to your own body and know that you are where you need to be. Your heart beats with purpose and the world of worries is a distant and silent memory. You are here, now, floating over a sun-drenched valley, soaring over the world below. You now know that this world of wisdom and wonder is yours, always. You know, I feel so much calmer and so much more hopeful, and I'm not quite sure how to express it, but I think I feel happier and at peace, and and I bet you are too, because this really is a visually stunning program, and we could all use more serenity in our lives. We are taking time now to unplug as we explore and enjoy the natural world. It's been a wonderful opportunity to build a vital restorative break in our daily routine. The world of wisdom and wonder is refreshing our bodies and minds with relaxing music and aspirational quotes. Hello, I'm Greg. Okay. That's okay. That's okay. Okay. And I hope that was a little bit helpful. Okay. Rama. This is um, Ancient Codes of History with George Nuri. Gaia. Okay. So that's the uh, our how do ancient civilizations on Earth link us? to ETs throughout time, speaking on how aboriginal leaders believe humanity was seeded by ETs, extraterrestrials, like us. Best-selling author Billy Carson shared insight from his years of experience and research, discussing ancient sites, religious texts, advanced beings, lost technology, and ETs. Carson is looking for big picture answers by connecting date points across history. 
All right, here we go. This is uh, 42 minutes. Mm. Bluffs in Australia. Yeah. What does that tell you? It tells you we got a lot to learn. <laughs> there was a galactic war, and it all kind of started over race. It does everywhere, doesn't it? Yeah. They actually have the capability of sending a beam to a planet and destroying the entire planet. It's worse than an atomic bomb. We need to learn from where our progenitors came from, and what type of wars did they get into, and why were they at war? How did they then create peace over time? So that we can follow that same path. Because right now we're a warring race. Absolutely. They had to have some type of a drive that allowed them to violate Einstein's theory of relativity. Bending space and time. Exactly. Right? I've gone through over a million cylinder scrolls, tablets, texts, geneiform stones, cylinder scrolls. I mean, you name it, I've gone through them all. And you are convinced about what? Welcome to Beyond Belief. What a great guest we have for you. Billy Carson back with us, best-selling author of the Compendium of the Emerald Tablets, and he's an expert host on several Gaia original programs, such as Deep Space and Ancient Civilizations. Billy earned a certificate of science with an emphasis on neuroscience at MIT and has a certificate in ancient civilization from Harvard University. Billy, welcome back to Beyond Belief. Hey, it's a blessing to be back on your show. Thank How you. How have you been? You look great. Thank you, sir. I've been fantastic. Everything's been great. I've been healthy, thankfully, um, and I have no complaints. Super. What is that ornament around your neck? What this is an obsidian stone that the Mayans used to use to watch solar eclipses. It would actually block out the halo of the, uh, really? the sun and let them see more uh, phenomenon in space. Where'd you get that? I actually got it from a lady who made it by hand. Her name is Soul Rays. Good for you. How did you get interested in extraterrestrial life? Well, originally what happened was when I was a little kid, I was in my backyard playing around, and I saw what looked like a UFO crossing my backyard. It probably was. Because yeah. I, I saw airplanes going over from the private airport that was nearby, the Opelika Airport, and I just watched them go across the sky, kind of like in slow motion, and it really amazed me. But one day, this object went across in seconds, not minutes. And it didn't have a fuselage, a tail oh, fin, a cockpit. And then it came back and stopped, and it was just silent. And then it just took off the way that it came in. I said, what was that? So I went to my library at my elementary school, Rainbow Park Elementary, and I took down all of the, the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica's on aerospace, and that's when I started researching. That was back in 1977. Billy, we hear a lot about the Pleiadian star system. Mm -hmm. Where exactly is that in our cluster? Well, if you look up from the night sky, from the position, usually from America, looking up to the uh, upper left, you'll see these, what they call the seven sisters. Okay. And the seven sisters are the seven brightest of the Pleiades, but not the only stars in the Pleiades. And so there's probably uh, several hundred thousand stars there. But from our perspective on Earth, we see the seven brightest ones. You believe they're behind some kind of galactic war. Well, yes. Well, what that is. well, what happened was, if you look at a lot of the, a lot of the ancient records, it seems as if several billion years ago there was a galactic war in that region of uh, space. And this war, wow. according to the ancient texts, it talks about the Lyrans and the Syrians starting this battle, also with the uh, some draconian people, 
And it all kind of started over race, unfortunately. It does everywhere, doesn't it? Yeah. So, unfortunately, <laughs> it's right. What kind of weaponry do you think they use? Well, in the Mahabharata, they talk about using a Brahma weapon, which is a weapon that can destroy any man on three worlds. My God. So it's some type it's of worse high-tech than something weapon. that's worse than an atomic bomb. Oh, much worse, much worse. It's some type of a targeted weapon that can literally assassinate either one person or destroy an entire civilization or multiple civilizations at the same time. And then they also had something like on Star Wars, which was likened to a planetary destroyer, uh, like a Death Star. And these moon-sized uh, weapons, which we probably have one in our solar system, I think Iabatis is probably one as well in our solar system, okay. to the moon of Saturn. But it, they actually had the capability of sending a beam to a planet and destroying the entire planet. That could have happened with the planet between Mars and Jupiter, what we call the asteroid belt. Absolutely. Who knows? Yeah, there was a planet there named Tiamat in ancient times. Also, um, that planet was destroyed and blown up according to the ancient tablets, and uh, it became the asteroid belt. Were there any survivors of this situation? Uh, there were survivors. So what happened was we had a space refugee situation. And so what happens oh. is you had the Lyrians, the Syrians, uh, Alpha Draconians and all these other groups that were living in those star systems. And because of these, these wars were blowing up different planets and moons, that debris was crashing into their actual homelands or their home yeah. planets, creating a mess in that sector of space. So according to the ancient records, they started fleeing. The survivors started fleeing into space and looking for other homes, other places, other star systems to go move to. So they left. You've got a friend, Wayne Herschel. We yes. discussed the significance of certain artifacts with references to the Pleiades. Yes. Let's take a look at that. My name's Wayne Herschel. I'm very pleased to show you the uh, ancient alien collection of uh, ancient artifacts that show star maps that show an ancient alien presence in our history. The Nineveh disc found in the area of Nineveh in uh, ancient Sumer, Sumeria. This is quite amazing here because it has three dots in a row that follows with an arrow. I'm pretty convinced this is Orion. Um, the most amazing thing with this story is if you follow across, I'm going to turn it around. We have an X and an arrow going through it. I believe this is telling the story, both arrows pointing at each other, telling the story in a different way with astronomy and naming stars in a cross formation and following three belt stars as the the arrow that points the way like the chi of uh, Constantine for the Christian history. But where does it point to? What is it showing to? Well, apparently according to Zachariah Sitchin, the writing here is follow, follow, just a little further, and it's a cosmic uh, traveler. Is it Enki traveling? I'm not too sure, but it's a cosmic traveler following, and it says follow and past the seven heavenly bodies. Sitchin believed these were planets. I don't think so. The ancient Sumerian tablets show... Uh, the Pleiades as being the collective cluster, and it's a, it's a definite cluster. The ground zero Sumerian seal. Sitchin made this one quite famous. Museums like the British Museum insist that this is the Pleiades, a king standing on top of the throne, sorry, sitting on top of a lion that denotes uh, kingdom, kingship. On his crown he has a star, but there's also one next to it. This is the real star. This is his designated uh, gold star on top of his crown. So don't mix the two. That's the real one. This is one on his crown. Is this an ancient astronaut? You tell me. But uh, what convincingly completes the story is the disc that flies. This is the means of flying. This is the flying disc celestial ship. 
one of my most favorite artifacts, a uh, big story in my book, The Hidden Records. It's so fantastic to see the Pleiades in such detail. Yes, it is the Pleiades. Historians in the Berlin Museum with this original is kept, speak of it as the Pleiades. A man in front of two discs, two circular orbs, one big one and one small one. Or is it a man inside a ship that flies, holding onto some kind of a, a gear and operating a mechanism? Could this be the celestial ship? We have Taurus here and something on the back of the bull. I think this is what really speaks volumes here. This is the place where the Pleiades resides, and it's like a cartouche that's emanating light. Pretty remarkable, Billy. Yes. Were those authentic artifacts? They are scale copies of the actual originals. Pretty true. A lot of museums around the world. If you interpret it the way Herschel did, you could assume that these extraterrestrials were all over the place and had high technology. Exactly. And we can find these artifacts all over the world. So those weren't just in one location. They were around the entire planet. And there's many more. And and so what's really amazing is the majority of these artifacts always seem to point to the Pleiadian star system. That's that seven cluster that we saw in the corner. Absolutely. That they call the seven sisters. Correct. Interesting. Yeah. And do they believe there are planetary systems within the Pleiades? Yes, there are. So within the Pleiades, you have so many stars that all have planets orbiting them. So you have multiple solar systems in that region or that sector of space and multiple advanced civilizations coming from that one area of space. Tell us about space refugees. Who are they? The space refugees were several different races. Uh, you know, so the Lyrans, the Syrians, the Atlanteans, um, the Nibirans, all these different races, the Alpha-Draconians, the Anunnaki, correct? Uh, so, and so the Anunnaki is more like a generalized term. So anybody that comes from any of those areas to earth is an Anunnaki. Aha. Uh-huh. Because Anunnaki okay. just means from heaven to earth they came. All right. But they all actually had their 16 own. different races for all. Correct. Them, right? Correct. And that's been a real misconception within the Sumerian tablets. People tend to think that they were just one race. If you really analyze all the different tablets, you realize that they were multiple races coming from different star systems. Now these ancient tablet replicas that we looked at. Yeah. That make reference to play to the Pleiades. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you? Well, that what's tells so me, important about this. What's so important is, you know, the the past is prologue, and so for us to really move into a golden age in this era of mankind moving forward, we really need to understand what happened in the ancient past and what it looks like to me from my observations with the with these ancient tablets and all these records left behind. That we need to learn from first of all where our progenitors came from. And also, what type of wars did they get into and why were they at war? How did they then create peace over time so that we can follow that same path? Because right now we're a warring race. Absolutely. And we're coming up with the wars over the most ridiculous things. <laughs> you know, right now we have over 3,000 uh, ballistic missiles on this planet all aimed back at our own selves. Yep. Not to protect us enough, from the outside. Enough to destroy everything on this planet. While we're here without escape pods. <laughs> we can't even become space refugees. Let's make reference on the Gaia series, Ancient Civilizations, that I introduced you with. Jack Carey talks about the Dogon tribe. This is a tribe of people that allegedly had contact with extraterrestrials who talked about a binary star system. The only way for them to know the Dogon tribe about this binary star system was to be told it because you couldn't see it. Yes. (laughs) Let's look at that. 
Dogon tribe of West Africa were discovered in 1935 by two French anthropologists, uh, Griol and Dieterlin, were their names. This, uh, these two anthropologists eventually gained the respect of the Dogon shaman and were allowed um, to hear their sacred knowledge. What amazed these anthropologists was that the Dogon tribe possessed uh, knowledge of the Sirius star system that no ancient people should ever have possessed. The Dogon tribe told them that not only was uh, there a relationship between Sirius and our star, but they claimed that a group of what could only be described as alien creatures called the Nomos descended down to Earth and that this group of beings imparted to them this, the knowledge that they then possessed about the Sirius star system. What they couldn't understand was how it was they had knowledge of a Sirius B, which is a white dwarf star. It's the smallest form of visible star that we know of, and we can barely see it with modern-day telescopes. And yet they knew of its, its absolute existence, and they called it Potolo, which is a, a tiny seed found in West Africa. And they said it's a tiny star, but it's the heaviest thing that there is. Well, they, that was, uh, they were alluding to the fact that white dwarf stars have some of the highest density of any stellar bodies that we know of. And that's not something an ancient people should have known anything about. They even spoke of a Sirius C, um, yet another. Uh, stellar body in the Sirius star system, something which wasn't proven to be true until 1995, a full 60 years after the discovery of this tribe. Absolutely incredible, Billy, yes. isn't it? Incredible. I mean, somebody came down and told these people yeah. what was going on. Yeah, they did. Not only did they tell them about the trinary star system in Sirius, but they also told them about every planet in our solar system, the shape, the size, and even the colors and the orbital rotation around our sun of everything going on right here in our solar system. Does that tribe exist today? Yes, they do. Those were the original tribe that lived in the land of Kem long before it was called Egypt. And then after they were overthrown, they were in their own golden age, so to speak. Sure. And they had no military, no police officers, no crime. And some other uh, groups saw that and took uh, took advantage of that, unfortunately, and ended their golden age. They then migrated out to Mali, Africa, where they still live today. Fascinating. Yeah. In the Star Wars movie, they talk about the Jedi Knights. Yes. Those are real, aren't they? They are 100% real, yes. Where are they from? Well, they're from the Orion star system. And so Orion is also... Osiris. Which the pyramids were constructed after, yes. basically. And the alignment yep. to align with the uh, the Orion star system at a specific time frame, I think was around 13,000 um, years ago. And so basically, uh, this alignment is just signifying Osiris, which is one of the very first rulers of the Naturu that came to Earth. They called them the Naturu in the Egyptian text. And the Naturu came here, and they actually turned mud into a kingdom during the time of Tepzepi. And uh, so when he came, the Orion uh, Osiris was also known as Orion. He had this initiate program that he put together for these knights, these knights of honor that would carry these ancient codes of ancient history, ancient wisdom, ancient knowledge. And they would use their power of thought and consciousness to defend the galaxy. You'd be great teaching this in school. (laughs) (laughs) These Jedi knights, are they existing today? They're here today. Are they on our planet? 
They're everywhere. They are <laughs> they are all down moving into a resonant awakening as we move now into this galactic equator that our solar system is uh, in moving in resonance with and getting these all these galactic cosmic rays coming from the galactic black hole. And at this time is when you're going to start seeing a lot of people begin to awaken, not only on Earth, but also on other planets in this sector of the galaxy. The group in Mesopotamia, they're called the what? The Abadi? The Ubaid culture. Ubaid. Yes, Ubaid. The Ubaid culture are were originally space refugees from the ancient, ancient galactic war from the Pleiades. They eventually migrated to Alpha Draconis, that's what we call that star system, and some of them actually made their way from there to Earth. Here. Yeah, they started their own breakaway civilization right here on Earth, long before the Anunnaki ever arrived with the Atlantean version of the Anunnaki that we see in the Sumerian community. How did they get here, though? They had to have space travel. They had to have star travel. They had the capability uh, of traveling, obviously, faster than the speed of light or a warp drive, you know, some type of a drive that allowed them to uh, violate Einstein's theory of relativity. Bending space and time. Exactly. Right? Creating an Einstein-Rosen bridge would be one of the ways where you actually literally bend space, you fold space. Do they, like, walk through it? You can. They can have portal technology. That's very possible. However, from all the ancient records that I've read, it seems only the elite of the elite had access to these uh, stargates. And so you had to have a special access code, which was a jet pillar onk. So your body would resonate to the specific atomic frequency of the condenser in the jet pillar that was harnessed inside the onk. And that would be your key to walk through the gate. And if you didn't have that specific resonant frequency programmed to the gate, you couldn't get through to the other side. Gosh, I'd love to have that kind of technology oh, today. We you? need it. <laughs> we need it. Star travel would be just like that. Instant. Yeah. Now, this culture, where did they come from? Well, they came from the Alpha Draconis star system, but originally started in the Pleiades. They created kingdoms on Earth, many kingdoms for many thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, and we actually were here. Our cousins were here. Homo sapien cousins were here. So they weren't Homo sapien sapien, but there was an existing hominid on this planet while those advanced uh, Alpha Draconian people, those that Ube culture ruled, they created kingdoms. They had a monarchical type of a system. Were they a warring group? They weren't warring at all. They, they seemed not. to be very peaceful. They seemed to be very they peaceful. They would heal people, wouldn't they? They would heal they people. Would there were no records of wars or destruction during their time that they reigned. Uh, and then the Atlantean Anunnaki showed up. And then some way, they just began to dissipate and disappear off the planet. Now, when you say they disappeared, where did they go? Well, either they were killed off. Uh, or maybe they just left because the Anunnaki's breakaway civilization from the Atlantean culture, they really moved into those areas and regions and built their kingdoms and their new uh, temples on top of the Ube culture. Huh. And when you say killed off, that means there's still a warring group out there somewhere, right? Yeah, well, the Anunnaki uh, that we know from Atlantis or from, you know, the... the Zechariah Sitchin. Zechariah Sitchin, they're here, but they also are named. They're actually named in the, you know, in the list, so they're real. And they were, were real people. However, if you read those tablets, they're always talking about using weapons on each other. And they had several types of weapons. They even had this thing called the Tablets of Destiny. Whoever owned those Tablets of Destiny can control the power going on in the sector of the galaxy. Uh, so they really were a warring race. They had weapons of mass destruction that they had even brought to Earth with them and hid inside of a mountain. Well, it's a wonder we are who we are. Right, exactly. So they taught us. We learned from them, unfortunately. And so that's where we got this mentality, battle, battle, battle. And a lot of these battles and wars made it into the book of Deuteronomy. The book, the, the wars in the book of Deuteronomy were ordered by 
these Anunnaki Atlantean people. You would think that with a higher civilization, an advanced civilization, that they would be more peaceful and understanding. Yeah. That's not the case, is it? It's not the case. Now, there were some good ones, too. So you had Thoth. You had some very good Enki. You had some very good people in there. But also, you always have the yin and the yang. Sure. Uh, you the know, balance. Exactly, the balance. We, we always hope that you know the good will prevail. So it was a lot of good that came out of some of the things that they did, a lot of good energy and a lot of good people uh, that tried to uplift mankind and take it to, an, to another level consciously. But also then, unfortunately, we did have the infighting of themselves. They were fighting against their own family members to try to, you know, for control of the people and exactly. resources of Earth. How did you come across this knowledge, Billy? I mean, it's you really know incredible. a lot about this. I know. Well, around 2010, uh, I started looking into uh, space anomalies. Okay. And from there, I recognized some of these anomalies appeared to match some of the megalithic structures on Earth. These are from images from NASA, the European Space Agency, the Russian Space Agency, and so forth. I'm looking at Mars, the Moon, uh, Venus, uh, even looking at uh, moons of Saturn. And I started recognizing things that just didn't belong. And so I'm like, if this looks like that, we have this here on Earth, and this looks like, are these, is, could this be the same ancient culture? Maybe they were... You, you know, started piecing things and putting two, yeah. two together. Yeah. So I started researching. I started digging into ancient texts, ancient tablets. Long story short, I, short, I've gone through over a million cylinder scrolls, tablets, texts, um, cuneiform stones, cylinder scrolls. I mean, you name it. I've gone through them all. And you are convinced about what? Now? I am now. totally convinced that a uh, interplanetary, maybe even intergalactic race came through our area, engaged mankind, created multiple breakaway civilizations in this sector of the galaxy, and ruled for probably millions of years before it collapsed. Did they seed us? I believe that we were seeded uh, based on my conversations with the Aboriginal elders when I went to Australia. Sure. I believe that they were seeded. You've been everywhere. I've been everywhere, yeah. Oh my gosh. They said that uh, we were seated here. We were the first people seated on this planet by the Pleiadians. Mm-hmm. And so also I believe that our cousins, before we were genetically modified, were also seated here uh, you know, during the time of those wars that were going on. It was a preservation type of a thing, just like we preserve, you know, unfortunately I don't want to use the name animals, but we preserve animals by taking them and moving them to different areas uh, on the planet. In is our there, solar system, is there anything unusual about any of the planets? There's a In lot your of, opinion? Yes, a lot of unusual things. For example, the way that our moon is geostationary locked with the rotation of Earth, uh, the distance from the Earth to the moon allows it to create a perfect... Oh, it was uh, perfect you know, design. Exactly. Right. It's just amazing. And then, you know, if you have, when you look at the, um, the way that the moon is created, you look at all those different craters. There's, you don't see any craters that have hit an angle and then skid to a particular spot. Everything seems to be direct head on. Mm-hmm. And they always have the same depth, which is very interesting. Like it's carved out. Right. right. And then you have a, around the rims of a lot of these craters, it's missing a lot of the debris from the center. <laughs> Where did the debris go? You know, so it, it basically asks a question like, is this thing, are these real craters or are these artificial domes that are being hidden from our eyes with some type of technology? And then when they, you know, when they drop the, um, the ascent module back into the moon, uh, during the Apollo missions and they had the seismometers on the surface, it rang like a bell for over an hour. Ping. Right. Now what backs this up more recently, just about five years ago, we did a, a ground penetrating radar scan of the moon with using the Arecibo telescope before it collapsed. Before it collapsed. Yes. 
And so when, with the Arecibo uh, telescope, we were able to see beneath the surface of the moon. And what we see in those images, untouched, appear to be what looks like metallic or support beams underneath the surface. Fascinating. When I was a little boy, my parents got me a telescope. And one of the first objects, Billy, I looked mm. at was Saturn. Mm. And I could see the rings. It was like somebody painted this perfect picture yeah. out in space. Mm-hmm. On the Gaia show, Deep Space, David Icke talks about the interesting facts surrounding that planet Saturn. The more we learn about the planet Saturn, the stranger it becomes. The spacecraft Cassini has fallen into the atmosphere of Saturn and its last great adventure. With Cassini now gone, we'll have no more visual access to the planet outside of our telescopes. But what if the planet is something different than what we are told? In mythology, we discover many stories of Saturn being a controlling god, a fearful god who murders his children. Saturn is also father of time with his scythe. Saturn is also associated with Satan, the dark lord of Western mythology. Is Saturn somehow controlling us? If you can change the information source that people are decoding, i.e. you broadcast it from Saturn with a heck of a lot of amplification from the moon, then you can change the reality, physical, actually holographic, that people are decoding. If you've got the headset on in a video game and someone puts another disc in, your clarity completely changes because now you're decoding another information source. That is what I say happened. And that is, that's what changed this reality from something that was described in, in blissful, harmonious terms into the madhouse that we have today called human society. Do you agree with him, Billy? It's very interesting. It's a great perspective to think about the fact that I really do believe that we're living in a fractal holographic universe. Okay. So what he's alluding to is the fact that somehow Saturn energetically has some type of programming effect on the actual hologram or this light matrix that we're inhabiting. Would you, would you say that Saturn may be one of the most unusual planets in our solar system? Oh yeah, it is. I mean, the more I looked into Saturn, the more I realized, first of all, it has a hexagon on top. That's a perfect shape. The rings are fantastic. The rings are amazing, but you know, there's a book that came out called The Ring Makers of Saturn by Norman Bergeron. Right. And I really, that book took me down a big rabbit hole when I started analyzing these images. And this man's credentials are down the street and around the corner, you know? They're impeccable. Impeccable. And the fact that there looks to be sophisticated, what I would call man-made structures or advanced being-made structures sitting on top of these rings. And also some things that look like they're actually guiding the rings in certain ways. Uh, is there a, is there a civilization that lives on the rings of Saturn? I mean, I don't know, but it's really amazing. But I did find some interesting things on Titan, which is one of the moons there. What did you find there? An actual anomaly, a massive anomaly, uh, with the descent of the Huygens probe to the surface, which landed in what looks like a lake. They're claiming that it's hydrocarbons that are, you know, it's, and methane. Yeah, and methane, but they're saying it's so dense that it looks like water, but it's not. Maybe it is. However, we gotta go there. We have to go there. On the descent though, it picked up some amazing images, which, um, you know, we'll probably get a chance to show a clip of that. Uh, an amazing anomaly I found, which is super massive, probably about a mile high on the surface. A mile high? A mile That's high. That's huge. Yeah, it's massive. And it doesn't look to be. And it's a structure made by someone? Yes, it doesn't look like a rock. It doesn't look like, uh, 
anything that would we say geologically would be normal form. It looks like something that was made by intelligent hands. Now, we've got rovers running all over Mars mm-hmm. looking for things. Yeah. Have, have they found anything, in your opinion, that oh, we really should be looking at? I think they found a lot of stuff, which is why they have spent trillions and trillions of dollars. It's more than billions by now. It's actually trillions to go to Mars. Even Don't change for what oh, they've been spending, right? Oh, it's just peanuts. Yeah, it's just, yeah. you know. You just print, press a button, you print more. Print more money. Yeah, exactly. So okay. it's very easy for them to do. <laughs> they just have to justify it. But we, we, even with all the failed missions, we keep going back. Now we have Curiosity rover, which has been up there for a while, and we also have the Mars Perseverance rover, which, which just, just landed. Yep. Exactly. And the images coming back from the Perseverance rover have already shown incredible, incredible anomalies. Unquestionable. And these are some of the main images that they've posted, and they put it right on the main website. Everybody just takes a glance and go, oh, that's cool. Nobody takes the image and go, let me take a closer look at this. Then you'll start to see things that have geometric shapes, things that are pretty. Maybe they do, Billy, and they just don't want us to know about it. That's possible. I think sometimes they just hide the truth in plain sight. (laughs) Yep. Maybe you're right about that. I'm fascinated by the ancient civilizations on this planet that talked about intergalactic races. Yes. Talk about that. If you look into the ancient Indian epics, the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, they actually talk about intergalactic races specifically coming from the Pleiades. So again, and some of these, these, uh, these records are really super ancient and have been recopied many, many times. So just somebody saying, oh, they're 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 years old. No, they're much older than that. Hundreds of thousands. Of Thank you. Exactly. And then when you look into the, uh, the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, which are about 36,000 years old estimated. The first thing they talk about is getting in a ship and flying into space and coming down to the earth, to, to the land of Kim after the great flood happened. You know, that's the opening scene in the Emerald Tablets. Exactly. So this is really amazing stuff. And the, the, the deeper you look, you start finding uh, the Sumerian tablets now, the Akkadian, the Babylonian versions are all talking about these advanced beings coming from space to earth and interacting or engaging mankind in some way. In more modern times, you can find in the Torah the mention of the Pleiades. In the modern-day Bible, you find that mention. Mm-hmm. Homer's Iliad. I mean, I can just, the Greek mythology, I can just keep going and going. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. Knowing yeah. what you know, mm-hmm. does it excite you? Yes. Does it baffle you? Does it scare you? What does it do? What it do really excites me. This? I really feel like I'm not small anymore. I feel massive. I feel super massive. Some people may think, oh, man, it just means that we're nothing. I think that it makes me feel so great and big to be interconnected with all this stuff in the universe. And my main goal or mission is to find out how how much more can I learn? And is there any way that I can even get to see some of this stuff in my lifetime, potentially? How close do you get to the theory of God when you investigate all this? Well, that's a great question. I really believe that there is a God, a creator, because when you look at the science of what we're living in, this holographic matrix. Oh, it's a genius design. It's definitely designed. And so that means there's a designer. I just don't believe that the designer is inside the matrix with us. I believe that the designer is on the outside of the matrix. Looking in? Looking in. Just like if I if I had an ant uh, farm, I can look at the ant farm from the outside looking in. I can manipulate things in the farm. I can change things. I can add food. I can take food away. I can take sand away. Whatever I want, I can manipulate their environment. I'm the God to them on the outside. And so I believe that what's happening in a lot of religious texts, they've, um, they've mistaken 
people that have masqueraded as gods because of their advanced technology and their advanced knowledge and put them as the deity instead of understanding that there's something even above them that really truly is the creator of all. When I was a kid, I had a an ant farm, Billy, and I wanted to see how quickly they could always rebuild. Yeah. <laughs> and so I would always shake the ant farm mm-hmm. and watch them again, put yeah. everything together. Right. Carbon copy from yeah. what they had. Incredible. And then I'd shake it again, mm-hmm. and they'd do it again and again and again. Right. It's a little like what we do on this planet. Exactly. If you take a look at a city and you, um, you just take an open frame video and then you speed it up, it looks just like an ant farm. We look like we're the ants. And that's why a lot of these advanced civilizations that I think are really visiting us, they're just monitoring us. Just like if we monitor animals out in the wild in the wilderness now, we sit back and we just watch. We hide cameras around and we just watch them. And we, through anthropology, we learn about them. And so we, I think that they're doing the same thing with us. Tell us about your trip to Australia and what you uncovered there. Oh, that trip was mind-blowing. One, I came on your show maybe two shows ago, and I talked about the fact that there were Egyptian hieroglyphs out in the outback of Australia. In Australia, of all places. in Karyong 9. And I finally got a chance to get out there, and I got some Aboriginal elders and some guides, and I went out way out, miles out into the bush, into the fires. And this is the beginning of 2020, before the lockdown happened, so I was happy I was able to get out there. And they took me to, uh, after some time, these proto-Egyptian Hieroglyphs and these also these Pleiadian hieroglyphs out there in the outback. Remarkable. Incredible. And the uh, indigenous people say what? They say that the Pleiadians have been coming here for hundreds of thousands of years and that the Egyptians were coming across and coming there to learn wisdom from the Aboriginal elders. Fascinating. Uh, just amazing stuff. And these, these glyphs have now been dated because of the growth inside of the cracks or the cracks. And how did you glyphs. come across these Egyptian glyphs? Initially, I saw the Strong uh, family. It was uh, Evan Strong and uh, Steve Strong. It's a father and son team. Researchers? Yeah, researchers. They were just out there in the bush. They had heard about them and from the elders, and they went out okay. and found the location where these were. And when I, when they were talking about them, they were, it was a story. One of the glyphs was a story. that One of the lines of the glyphs, because they would come and put their stories in lines over many, many years, thousands of years. And this one story was interesting because two brothers came from Egypt, when they landed and came up to the area to, to meet up with the aboriginals, one brother got bit by a snake. Oh, God. Like a rattlesnake? A rattlesnake. Oh. Some type of a jungle snake. Right away. It is like they just got there. And he, he tried to save him. So the table that he used to try to save him is there. The stone he kind of made into like a makeshift sure. table. Surgery. Surgery thing. table, right? And he couldn't. He ended up using that, that stone to actually mummify him. He died. He died. And he left that in the glyphs. Oh, and he took him God. back to Egypt. When I went to Egypt in 2014, the story of him returning from Australia with his brother, his dead brother, was there in the glyphs. And that's why it was like, I have to go to Australia. And I finally got a chance to make it out there. You gave us some pictures about your trip. Let's look at them and tell us what we're looking at. Okay. Okay. Yeah. couple of them. Right here. This is the actual location of the glyphs. We're in this crevice where they had this makeshift temple. The roof has now been long since deteriorated. And so we're in this crevice area way out there, miles out in the outback. And that's a little, some humans down in the corner, right? Yeah, that's the, my team that was down there, actually. I think that looks like it might even be Stephen Strong, one of the Strong uh, family that was there with me. Uh, and uh, so we were out there, and they took they got me to this location. And you can clearly see these glyphs. And what's interesting with these glyphs is actually a section where it looks like a flying saucer with little saucers coming out of the bottom of it. 
It's pretty amazing stuff. Let's look at the next picture. This side here, these are some of the Pleiadian glyphs, which have not been deciphered yet. According to the Aboriginal elders, these glyphs were made and left by Pleiadian uh, elders and people that have come, that have come for hundreds of years. And they carved away years. at that? Yeah, they carved away and etched away at that. So in between mm -hmm. those cracks and crevices of the glyphs, you get a patina and other organic material that grows, and that can be dated. So how, these how are tall dated. is that, though? It's about uh, 60 to 70 feet tall. That big? Yeah, it's massive. It's pretty pretty tall stuff wow. out there. Yeah, pretty high. Uh, you have to climb up on different rocks to, to see the higher levels. In some areas, you can't even get up there. So nobody knows how. It's such a very tight area. Nobody knows how they were able to get to the highest parts of that cliff to etch those glyphs. Uh, now, are those symbols or pictures, what do they depict? Those are pictographs or hieroglyphs. Uh, they depict ideas and concepts. Is you know typically is what they depict, but because they can't be deciphered, and the people who who, who knew what they meant are long gone. Uh, but according to the Aboriginal elders, those are Pleiadian. Let's look at our last picture. Again, just uh, more glyphs here. These are Proto-Egyptian hieroglyphs. Um, and so these glyphs were uh, verified by the Board of Antiquities of Egypt. So and there, how, there and are how big is this structure here? This one here is probably only about maybe uh, six feet tall. That's it, like a doorway. Yeah, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Really amazing. That looks like an animal down there at the bottom, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of looks like an animal down there. They try, you know, they depict stories. Primarily what they were talking about, a lot of the interactions that they had when they came to this area, when they came across, who they talked to, what they did, what interactions. How old is that, Billy? These were around 5,000 years old. 5, and they could be dated because inside the crevices of the glyphs, the patina and the other organic material has been dated back to about 5,000 years. Look at how straight the chisel lines are. It's incredible. It's like they were made with some type of a machine. And you can see machine like marks. Like they cut it out. Areas. Yeah. Yeah. There's some machine marks left behind. Like uh, it was not drilled out. Marks. It was drilled out or some type of laser. Nobody knows exactly how, but it's very, very um, accurate. Egyptian glyphs in Australia. Yeah. What does that tell you? It tells you we got a lot to learn. <laughs> what we thought we knew, forget about it. And this was, there was an uh, interplanetary civilization that, you know, maybe even intergalactic, they came here. And when they were here, they weren't just in one region or this region. Atlantis wasn't just a ring city. Atlantis was the entire planet. And so they went around this entire planet interacting with different indigenous cultures, learning from them, teaching them, building civilizations. And the Emerald Tablet tells his crew after they rebuild the land of Kem, which is now known as Egypt, okay. he brings them back up to a high level of civilization after the Great Flood. So that means at one point they were they were already at a high level before the flood. And then he tells his crew, go around the planet and duplicate this, what we just did here. What is so special about planet Earth, Billy? Well, what's special is we're out in the boondocks in our Milky Way galaxy. We're in this area on one of the outer rings that was dropped into this location. When scientists look into the sky now, that swath of stars going across in a night sky that they thought was part of the Milky Way is actually not the Milky Way. It's something called the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. Not the Sagittarius Constellation. That's something totally That's different. That's different, yeah. The Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. And this is another galaxy much smaller than ours that actually merged with the Milky Way galaxy and is being gobbled and swallowed up. And where they found that the intersect point where that swath drops right down into the Milky Way is exactly where we're located. So our solar system, our planet, everything here in this particular sector of space, 
comes from a whole other galaxy. We ourselves are aliens. Fascinating. What other evidence is out there of ancient races? Well, there's so much. Besides all the ancient texts, we obviously have all the megalithic structures that have been left all over the planet. And so uh, no matter where you go on this planet, you're going to find megalithic structures. I mean, we even found pyramids in Australia. I wasn't even aware of that. That was something new to me. Okay, pyramids were in Australia. And then also, but look off the planet. Let's look at some of the space probe data. Let's look at the moon. Why are there pyramids on the moon? Why are there areas on the moon that look just like Giza? where the Sphinx is located. Then you move on to Mars. Again, you find more of these duplicated type stones. You find the same stones on Mars, the same way built, the structures built that you do in um, the Mayan civilizations of, of South America, where you have the Chichen Itza and sure. you have Peru and all these other areas. That's you find right. the same exact techniques, building techniques there. It's, it's really amazing how no matter where you look, we're finding similarities, which means there's one architect. What's next for Billy Carson? Oh, so much stuff. I mean, you know, obviously the situation we had with the um, the planetary shutdown stopped me from a lot of my travels. But moving into this year, I'm heading out to document the Lalibela temples and the Kailash temples. You don't stop, do you? Oh, I can't stop. There's too much to do here. This is too much. What is your favorite region of the planet? My favorite region right now still is Africa. There's so many hidden jewels there. There is. I mean, and I, I'm That's not the only one that knows this. Civilization. It's one of them. Yeah, I think. Yeah, well, Mesopotamia is really part of Africa. It used to be part of Africa. Now it's in section off where now that's Iraq and this is Africa. Right. But oh, back in ancient, yeah, in ancient times it was all it was all Africa. Billy Carson, you do remarkable work. Thank you. If you were a teacher and you were teaching young people mm-hmm. about all these things, yeah. and some little kid comes up to you and goes, uh, "Mr. Carson." Do extraterrestrials really visit us? How would you tell them yes? I would say not, not only do they visit us, but there are probably some here right now. You wouldn't even know it. <laughs> Billy, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Thank you. Appreciate it. Fascinating discussion with Amanda Beliefs. We've been visited by extraterrestrials, and he's telling our planet that it's happening. I'm George Norrie. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Okay. Well, duh. Okay, how about we do, um, um, Regina Meredith. Okay. Yeah, let's One is dead. Um, multidimensional Jesus of the stars. <laughs> okay. How do astrology, black magic, and ETs relate to the story of Jesus? Author and spiritual teacher, Barbara Hanclaw. We haven't been hearing a peep from her for years. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Shares details from her trilogy of fiction books and how she weaves in facts weaves in facts relating to mysteries of history, mm. explaining how her book series has been her most successful method of teaching. Barbara connects multidimensional consciousness with lost secrets of the human story. From the Vatican in Italy to a theory linking Jesus with extraterrestrials, Hanklau shares her adventurous spirit, unrelenting 
research, and decades of experience to help humanity learn to overcome adversity within and without. Here we go. Okay. My goodness, Barbara and Wow. Coming along. Sometimes you can remember the whole story of a whole dynasty just from reading a fictional portrayal of it. Absolutely. Yeah, because nonfiction is basically left brain data yes. analysis. And what's going on with fiction? about it is imagination. Yes. What we're seeing in this trilogy is the living out of this period of time through the lives and personalities of some really interesting characters. The Aquarian Age is dealing with the shift out of the age of Pisces and into the age of Aquarius, which is what's happening right now. And this book in this case is covering thousands of years going way back even to Atlantis through Alessandro de' Medici. One character thinks one thing, right. another character thinking something else, and if you put it together in your brain, you start to get the point. The essence of being human is to be imaginative. This is a very special show in that Barbara Hanclough is wrapping up a decade-long journey with her trilogy, the final book titled Revelations from the Source. The story is set in Italy with the Catholic Church and a cast of archetypal characters converging to illustrate the disruptive nature of our times. Everything is up for review in this final chapter. Barbara, welcome back. I've been on this Good journey you. with you. Yes. I think, God, we were talking about when you first started and what a, what a decision it was to move from your previous work to, to fiction. Yeah. And I mean, this was a really this was a huge shift internally for you to do this, and I am so grateful that you did because personally, I, I, I think it's because of the emotional nature and the textures that can be set in fiction. I have always learned best through fiction, whether it's historical novels or whatnot. And your work has been so deep and complex over the decades that you were able to embed everything you've ever written about in this trilogy through these characters. And that's how personally I learn best. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting also how you remember best because, yes, because sometimes you can remember the whole story of a whole um, dynasty just from reading a fictional portrayal of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, there was a study done that humans learn best through storytelling. Mm -hmm. That's how we remember. And that's what we retain to pass on in old times to the next generations. And so that's very different than relaying data, relaying mm -hmm. information. Mm -hmm. And your books are fabulously 
full of information. And now you've taken this all to a story that you feel you connect with the characters, so you start embracing the knowledge differently. Yeah. So what was your intention at the very beginning in well, putting all this into these characters? Yeah, I think, first of all, the, the, this trilogy also has lots of information, and all the background mm-hmm. information in the trilogy is correct, and so hopefully people will really learn a lot about how the church operates and how politics operate and all of that. Yeah. But I think the real reason that it's so much more powerful than nonfiction is nonfiction is basically left-brain data yes. analysis. And what's going on with fiction, if you think about it, is imagination. Yes. And in the New Age, one of the things we've been learning for the last 50, 60, 70 years is the power of the imagination. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's time for people to return to the imagination because, you know, right now we're having an amazing um, lack of uh, availability of of news and information in general. Mm -hmm. It's just going away. Mm -hmm. And now we need to use our imaginations. And so that was the point of the trilogy. And, you know, when I first conceived of it, I realized that it was very important that I cover this period of time, which is basically um, 2012 to 2021. Right. And I knew way back then as an astrologer that this was going to be an incredible period in history. And I knew I could see as an astrologer that our world was going to crack apart in 2020. And it actually happened. Yes. And so what we're seeing in this trilogy is the... um, living out of this period of time through the lives and, and uh, personalities of some really interesting characters. The other the other uh, key to this trilogy is there aren't any boring people in this No, trilogy. there are not. Everybody's got a place in the, They're in the story. They're all really complicated. Yeah, you can't afford to have marginal characters when you have this much to bring information to bring through That's these right. characters. That's right. And then what I couldn't have anticipated, but what I can see now in retrospect, is that we're really losing the fabric of our creative reality right now just because of what's going on in the world. And this trilogy really brings that back and refreshes it because we can't let that go. We can't. The essence of being human is to be imaginative. It is. And so this gets into the paradigm shift of the age of Aquarius. We have astrology. We have multidimensionality. We have the rising wave of the feminine coming in and going into collaboration with the ma- the masculine. All of that's embedded in this story, the things you've written about. So what I'd like to do is backtrack a little bit and go back to the beginning, Revelations of the Ruby Crystal, mm-hmm. and just hopscotch quickly through how you set it up. We'll go to number two, and then we spend the rest of the time on the new book. Yeah, so back to 2012 through 2015, which is what Ruby Crystal covers. And I'd like to say that as I was writing Ruby Crystal and developing the characters, I had no idea what would happen to them in Aquarian Age and in Revelations from the Source. Mm-hmm. So in Ruby Crystal, we get the real fabric of their private lives, their fa- their family relationships, their homes. There's a lot of just a real rich context of their reality. I wanted to get a ticket to Crystal. Rome. <laughs> yeah, and then, of course, why is it located in Rome? Well, right. that was a, a strategic decision. Um, and I... But I really didn't have much choice about that because of the way the characters came through in the first place. Um, all of the characters appeared in my writing room in May of 2011. And they gave me their names, their professions, their ages, their family relationships. They gave me the whole context of their lives. And 80% of them were Italians. So it had to be in Italy. Yeah. Located in Italy. Well, there's some important 
It's a yeah. deeper reason for that. Well, yeah, there is. And then also Italy is the midline for the planet mm-hmm. where the um, issues between East and West meet up. And um, the conflicts between um, dark and light and all those things are accentuated in Italy. And other writers have also written about this. This is mm-hmm. fascination with Italy. People go there and they go like, what's going on here? They have such a deep experience. Well, that's the experience of the midline and especially Rome, especially in Rome. And so it ended up being located in Italy. And then what happened is when I sat down to write it, the first one, Ruby Crystal, I didn't even have a plot. I just let the characters take over. Mm-hmm. And it was such fun. That was probably the easiest book to write because I just let them do their thing. Right. And then when I came, when it came time to write Aquarian Age, which covers 2015 to 2018, then I had to deal with how the timeline was unfolding because by the time we get up to 2015, and I'm sure that most listeners and, and people tuning into the show I think they'll go back and recognize how much things started to change. Mm-hmm. You didn't know what was going on at that point, but things were definitely changing. And so Aquarian Age is dealing with the shift out of the age of Pisces and into the age of Aquarius, which mm-hmm. is what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the Aquarian Age is more about working with the timeline, working with history, and working with the change that was going on. And then when we get into revelations from the source, we're getting into the keys to where all of this energy and consciousness and meaning and change is actually coming from. Mm-hmm. And so source, um, I think is the finest of the three. Um, maybe I would agree. It was, I mean, it was very, it's a very intense experience and I, you're such a sensitive. I actually was kind of worried about you while you were writing it because you had to really immerse yourself in all the feelings to express this through the characters. Yeah, the degree that I had to go in deep was really intense, including mm-hmm. working with crystals. Mm-hmm. Um, this book has some of the best teachings about crystal, working mm-hmm. with crystals that exist on the planet. Mm-hmm. And so I went into the real source of the breakdown. And it's I, I'm the, in the, the whole trilogy, the main context, is looking at it um, regarding world religions, and mm-hmm. especially Catholicism, mm-hmm. because the age of Pisces is the age of organized religion. Mm-hmm. And so then also, while we're dealing with religion, we're also dealing with politics, because they both go, t- you know, yeah. t- in tandem. Yeah. And it's interesting, because the, the, the characters are Italian, and it's set across some of my favorite cities in the world, Rome, Florence, Siena. Yeah. Um, they, the characters were very much focused on what was happening in America. Yeah. So still America was at the center of it prior to COVID. And then this book goes into COVID, mm-hmm. all of it, the politics of it, the reality on the ground of what happens with families and so forth. So why America? Well, that was a hard, a hard one because I hate it when people were what I call Amerocentric. Yes. But because I have a lot of friends in Europe and because I'm spending a lot of time in Italy, I can assure you that almost everybody has been focused on America. And Trump became um, like an obsession. Like yes. People in the media would have loved to have just gotten rid of him, mm-hmm. but all they did was talk about Trump all the time. Right. And so I was really forced to have um, Trump and America play a strong role in this book. Well, it also points to the devolution of American culture. Yeah as a result of the decisions we've made in mass and as a result of um, COVID, our response to it. But this that's a global breakdown right there. Yeah. The COVID thing is more of a global breakdown of culture. Yeah, that's right. So 
Okay, so you want to get into the book of that Revelations from Source then and start setting it up? Okay, here's how I did it. First of all, this centers around this artistic genius named Armando, a handsome, very elite man who lives between dimensions. He has a very, very dark side that is trying to transcend into the light and into companionship with the feminine. So let's let's talk about Armando's journey first because yes. he's the one. His painting is the catalyst. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Armando um, showed up in the first book, of course. And in the first book, he was very bad. A sexual abuser uh-huh. of, of young women yeah. all the way through his 20s and 30s, and including a beloved girlfriend, Claudia, who becomes a character all the way through the whole trilogy. And um, my daughter at that point, Liz Clow, is the illustrator for this trilogy. She did a beautiful job. She, she did. I love it. Yeah. And so Liz, being a, a real deep Scorpio, said, no matter what you do, Mom, make him really bad because Liz is used to me being a real, I'm really a mom and a wife and a very nice person. You are. A sweet person. And, you know, I had to create this really major bad. That's why I was worried about you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, as it's a good point, Regina, because what did happen is this trilogy really ended up confronting the source of evil. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting in the third book where it starts to really get into where where is this evil coming from? Why is reality this way? Why are, for example, in the current moment, why are we being tortured the way we are by public health? Right. This is just simply doesn't make any sense. And the only way that we can really begin to understand what's going on is to understand how evil is functioning in the world. And this trilogy by no means, um, figures it out, right. but it goes deeply into it the illustrates. issue. It really goes deeply into the issue. It's something mm-hmm. that we need to understand better. So they're in the middle of that, back to dear Armando. Armando, meanwhile, is a tortured soul because he was abused as a young child by a Catholic priest. And, of course, this is the basic background thesis throughout the whole trilogy, the issue of, of sexual abuse, especially abuse of children in the Catholic Church. Because this is the ultimate evil. What is there that's worse than innocent children being abused? Um, nothing's worse. And so Armando gradually begins to come in, in Aquarian Age, the second book. He finds the love of his life and develops, a, a, and she's also a very wounded being herself. So we have two people getting together, which is typical, mm-hmm. who have their own wounding and conflicts to deal with so that they can understand each other. And Armando in Aquarian Age kind of kind of goes to that level of a well-adjusted husband and father. And it's really wonderful to see that progression because the trilogy also has the parents involved. Yes. So with our major characters, we have mom and dad. Yeah. And so we get to watch the transformation of a child, and we get to watch how the parents are responding to that, which is like, what? What bigger deal do most of us live with than that right there? It is true. It's and these, central issue. And these aren't just ordinary characters because you can't afford to have anyone ordinary in this book. They, right. each, have to, they each have to hold something uh, that's unique and special by way of wisdom, knowledge, or experience. Yeah. And I, really, I loved his dad. You know, I thought he was a wonderful man in the book. I, yeah. I really enjoyed his, Mr. Paraleone's character. Yeah. But one of the things we see here is you're bringing in the ancient mysteries and the passing of the baton in the most ancient mysteries through the male lineage in this as well. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And people might even criticize me for 
you know, focusing on the male lineage the way I did. But to tell you the truth, that's the way it's worked for a long time. It has. It has. But meanwhile, we have Claudia Tagliati, um, who's a photographer and um, actually she's a fashion designer. Um, And we have Claudia coming in, and she's she's a really, really powerful feminine archetype. Yes. And then we have Sarah Appel. Yes. Um, the the uh, early Christian um, uh, scholar researcher, yeah, scholar and researcher, and so even though the male lineage is rolling along as usual, generation by generation, and and this book in this case is covering thousands of years, going way back even to Atlantis through Alessandro de Medici, um, so it's going back through the timelines because that is how it passes through the male lineage. Yes, you know, in, in terms of the data, but the spirit passes through the women. And so we yes. see that passage through the women. And also let's notice that the male um, lineage people in this novel are basically taking the cues from the women. They are very, very much. So the women are much more just living in, even though they just might have their issues such as Claudia, but they're still living in a more balanced way than the men are at this point. Yeah. Because this is, because the patriarchy itself has gone out of balance and they've been uh, subject to the churches. Uh, themselves, but one thing you bring in early on in the book, um, and you and I talked about this years ago. And in fact, I think our last interview up in your place, right, mm-hmm. in your library, had to do um, with the the work, this secret tomb of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, James Cameron turned yes. this into a film, a documentary. Right, Sim Cha, and uh, so an incredible filmmaker, an incredible filmmaker, right. and he and. and Cameron worked at SEP yes. and put a documentary together, basically documenting everything yes. that was in the original book. That's right. Now, you focus on this for a reason, you, and you, you bring it up a few times throughout Yes. about what happens if humanity can acknowledge mm-hmm. that Jesus lived, they found his tomb, and in his tomb was his wife, was his mother, were his children, brothers, and so forth. Why do you bring this into the story? This has basically been proven. And, oh, it's, and the evidence is incredible. The research on it. May I just say something now? Sure. Think, you can find this on Amazon. You have to pay for it. Same amount as the book. It's like $18 to rent. Yeah. It's worth renting because they did a wonderful forensics yes, job they on did. this. They so did. let's go for it. They did. So, first of all, as this whole thing unfolded, I didn't know where it was going myself. Mm-hmm. I just want you to know, the characters were really in charge of where this was going. And Simon was just not going to let go. Simon, mm-hmm. the, who, Simon, Simon of Hell, who is a reporter for mm-hmm. the um, New York Times, as well as various Italian papers, and he's Sarah of Hell's husband. And she's the early Christian scholar. Yeah, so the two of them get together, and that's fun because he's Jewish and she's Catholic, mm-hmm. and she eventually leaves the church. And um, so so just the dialogue going on between the two of them, because we're also dealing with the age of Aries in this, in this yes. trilogy, which is the period of time from about 0 AD to 2000 BC. And that's the age of organized warfare. And then we go into the age of Pisces, which became the age of wars for God. And so we had to, I had to deal with all 4,000 years, because what we're actually doing right now is we're transforming four, four, excuse me, 4,000 years of human consciousness. So regarding the tomb of Jesus, whether anybody likes it or not, it's been discovered, it's been authenticated, and the facts are there's a Jesus family tomb, and Jesus was buried with his family in his tomb, but meanwhile he's supposedly resurrected. (laughs) And so the reason there's such resistance to recognizing that this tomb is authentic 
is because it goes against the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, well, and when it was discovered in Israel, both the Jews and the Christians tried yeah. to squash this. That's right. That's right. What, that's why no one knows this book that's exists right. or this film exists. That's right. That's right. And um, Sarah and Simon, to the end of the trilogy, can't figure out why the Jews are resisting the, yeah. the issue because we talk about a tourist site yeah. in Israel. This yeah. would be number one, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and apparently, according to my research in uh, source, um, it was uh, the main tourist site back at, back during like 1200 to 1300 during BC. During Templar, you say it as a pilgrimage site mm-hmm. for the Templar. So information is coming forth regarding the Templar mm-hmm. as guardians of the tomb mm-hmm. and as Christians. You know, you have to wonder why were these Christians going all the way to the Holy Land during during the Middle Ages? Just imagine taking that journey. Right. They were going to visit the tomb of Jesus, mm-hmm. and that in itself is a revelation. And Mary Magdalene. Yeah, and yes, yes, the other issue is Mary Magdalene mm-hmm. being Jesus's wife. Mm-hmm. So then, what happened, Regina, with this whole issue is a deeper level started to come through the characters, especially through a character called Father Giorgio Faccini who's a Jesuit and who's the keeper of the uh, Vatican Library. And the deeper issue that starts coming through as we start to let go of the resurrection and all that stuff, who was Jesus and where did he come from? And so toward the latter parts of Source, we start to get into the issue of the possibility that all of those early church controversies around was Jesus God, was he man, was he man God, who was he? Um, the reason there was such a big argument going on in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries is probably because they knew he was an extraterrestrial. Mm-hmm. Now, this doesn't come out explicitly in the book. You, this is where you, you hint get, at it. This is where you get to this point where mm-hmm. one character thinks one thing, right. another character is thinking something else, and if you put it together in your brain, you start to get the point. And so And so if there's going to be a sequel to this, if there's going to be a fourth book, uh-huh. um, if, if it comes through, it's going to be probably to resolve to resolve that issue. Because that's what all those early church councils were all about. And that's why Sarah is so fascinated. She's just dogging it. Who was he? Uh-huh. And okay, it, people watching this are of all different religious backgrounds. And yet every religion on the planet what has been influenced in some way by the arrival of Jesus. So uh-huh. something mysterious about the impact of this individual, whether you're a Christian, a Jew, um, and especially regarding people, um, Muslim and Islamic culture, is that the Quran actually saves some of the early data about Jesus that's not in the Christian scripture. Uh-huh. And a lot of people don't know this, but some of the really authentic material is in Islamic scholarship because they accepted him as a prophet. Well, they've read, yes. they've read, you know, they've read, you know, and so again, there's something, even, 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 um, friends of mine who are like into Buddhism and different things will say, yeah, there is something about the impact of this individual. He had some kind of impact on this planet. And I've come to the conclusion myself that he's the key to the, our relationship to other dimensions. And that's where we're going right now. And you play this out on many different levels in conversation, mm-hmm. but down into the Catholic Church, into deep rituals, mm-hmm. into hidden artifacts, into That's black right. magic. It just keeps descending. Yeah, the it story just won't, keeps, go away. It won't go away. It won't go away. And one of the things, uh, when you look back on it, why did the Catholic Church, What? why did it have to have such a dark 
root system to and really mm-hmm. because uh, you know as I've read through the years and comments uh, comments from people who have been in the church that there are a lot of atheists among the cardinals and mm-hmm. others mm-hmm. they don't believe the stuff that they're propagating and foisting upon the people at all it's what I call the fairy story the fairy story mm-hmm. they're they're projecting this fairy story on the public while they're living in these realms of extreme power politics and corruption mm-hmm. and including corrupting children from their youth and mm-hmm. using their innocence to feed themselves and you have a character that's quite lascivious in this mm-hmm. book yeah and i mean he's just he's just detestable yeah. and then as you say Facini falls somewhere in between and i ended yeah, up having Puccini a lot of passion yeah Facini is another yeah. one of the characters like Armando yeah. who in the beginning of the book is is a Vatican agent basically yeah. um who's, who's dogging mm-hmm. the other characters but he ends up being a really transformed human being. Yes. And that was a key issue for me to show that transformation. But back to that issue of the darkness. Yeah. You, you just sparked an insight in my mind that today that I really appreciate, which is the more you try to cover up the truth, the more dark and evil you become. I think the breakup of the Catholic Church and the exposure of child abuse is a breakthrough and I think we're going to get big breakthroughs regarding what's being done to human health. I think we are too, and, but it's going to come from us. It's going to come from the bottom yes. up. It will be a reaction from the masses, we yes. people. Okay, you get into modern times in the Catholic Church, you get into Francis, mm-hmm. and it's interesting how you treat Pope Francis in mm-hmm. the book. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe tell us a little bit about that. Well, that for me has been an adventure because I still can't figure out what Francis is really doing. And I think a lot of people can't figure out what he's doing. Personally, I think he's having a positive effect on things. Um, so people are going to just have to see what happens because we see, we see Pope Francis when he's meditating. We see him when he's ill. We see him when he's having different experiences in his life. Yes. And of course, that's all fictional. Mm-hmm. Like Pope Francis right. and the fact that he's the Pope is all in the book. All the background's correct. But the experiences with him are all fiction. He's a fictional character. Mm-hmm. So people are just going to have to see how they feel. You know, there have been documentaries about him, kind of the people's Pope. And like you say, um, there's there, a lot of people feel that he is on some larger level doing some good and progressing mm-hmm. um, the Catholic Church in before out of his own agendas. But then he, others have been overlooked and the whole notion mm-hmm. of priestly abuse and some of the true life events that happened under his watch mm-hmm, that's right. were pretty heinous that's also. Right. So you're, again, having a time where, and you get into this in the book, uh, gosh, forgive me, uh, I've read the book twice, the name of the uh, organization that actually runs the popes and everyone else. Oh, the entity. The entity. Yeah. So here you have it, and I didn't know about the entity. Mm-hmm. The entity is just like the CIA. It's like the CIA. And again, if we're going back to this principle that you're really waking me up to, yes. these are the organizations that are based on the deepest level of secrecy and yes. lying. Yes. And then what happens is they finally become co-opted yes. by, by the lies themselves. Well, and the players, surrounding players, um, are going to essentially have to do business with the entity on one level or another. Yes. And so it appears that Francis made some some unfortunate compromises that did mm-hmm. not serve some of the victims mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. sexual abuse 
mm-hmm. in other countries, mm-hmm. and we won't go into it. They can read about it in the book. Yeah. At the same time, trying to implement something that could be for the better because everyone's answering to the entity. Mm-hmm. Now, when you've written your other books, it seems that the people who appear to be in power are also answering to some entities mm-hmm. of some kind. So let's talk about this top-down authoritarian struggle humanity mm-hmm. is having mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a tough one, because where does it start? It's an issue of a pyramid, and there's somebody at the very top of the pyramid who basically is a really evil force, and then they start sending orders down through the pyramid, down through the managers, and down through the, the people who act things out. And the question is, What's going on at that top of that pyramid? And that's another issue that I think we're facing right now is the issue of extraterrestrial influence on this planet. Well, I will tell you one thing. I, I interviewed a man named John Warner IV. Mm-hmm. His father was Senator John Warner, mm-hmm. who five terms, Virginia, married to Elizabeth Taylor. Sure. Set, took his son to the Pentagon to do his homework. He knew about the ET issue, the power players and such, power players that you never see in America. Right. And he said, when he came down to it in the end, Everybody there in the Pentagon knew if you asked them who's in charge, one of the generals said, it's the aliens, my my son, you know, yeah. young man. Yeah. And so I, I thought it was kind of interesting coming through him after reading your work and others. Mm-hmm. Is there any, and then may I say something else? Mm-hmm. The various people who channel, I've, I interviewed many of them. Mm-hmm. I have asked them on camera and privately about those, including my own guys. Mm-hmm. They just kind of shake their heads and say, this is real. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing we can say to you at this time that's going to matter. Yeah. And they all say it. They mm-hmm. won't talk about whatever this is. Mm-hmm. Why? Oh, boy, that's a hard question, isn't it? Why? Yeah, why? I, I agree because it's a question that I ask every day. I mean, in the sense that I'm t- attempting to really figure this out. Um, so... so I don't, I can't answer. I, I, I can't answer. They, gra- they grapple with this yeah. and they ask the questions. I, the only in the thing book I that. can say is one of my books years ago was called Signet of Atlantis, War in Heaven Bypass, mm-hmm. where I was exploring the idea that we live on the earth and we have all this warfare and all this conflict. And then in the outer realms and other outer dimensions that there's a, a war going on. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people really do feel there's a war going on right now be- be- between um, positive and negative extraterrestrials, mm-hmm. you know. And I guess the best I've been able to do is to show through a character like Armando or Giorgio Pacini right. to show what it's like to finally Release. shake the evil off. Yes, Move and you do a beautiful it. job of that. And the evil is always coming from abuse. Yes. It's always coming from abuse. And as everybody knows about me, since I've written about it in therapeutic books, um, I was abused as a very small child from 18 months to three years old. And I had to heal from that, and I had to recover from that. And the way I recovered from that, it's really interesting, was in a session where the therapist helped me realize that my energy was part of it, that there was something within me that needed to work itself out. Mm -hmm. And that it isn't all, you can't blame it all on one person. And I'm I'm not going to defend the abuse of a child ever. And that's very, very clear in this book. But somehow the child who has been abused has to work through the way in which energy affected them. Because basically what happens with child sexual abuse in particular is a person is co-opted often into a lot of really evil behavior. 
Yes. And that didn't happen to me. That didn't, I was more like the martyr type versus the Eve, like a, an Armando. Um, but mar- being a martyr isn't going to do you any good. And, and you just to suffer for some reason. Right. And being an evil abuser isn't going to do any good. So really at a very deep level, this book is working with those kinds of energies because hopefully I'm triggering the reader into resolving some of the inner conflicts that have been driving them and confusing them. Absolutely. And and when you were talking a moment ago about this pyramid, the pyramidal structure, mm-hmm. and of course David Icke, I think, popularized yeah, David Icke really the pyramidal, did a great job on yeah, pyramidal structure. Yeah. So about a year, a year and a half ago, I thought, you know what? That's, that's, that's not applicable anymore. They got the pyramid wrong, and I created a new pyramid. Uh-huh. I sent it to David, mm-hmm. and I heard that David used it in his Trafalgar Square presentation uh-huh. by way of describing it. And what it is, is it's flipped. It's mm-hmm. an inverted pyramid. Mm-hmm. The, quote, masses are the power. Mm-hmm. We're the psychic power of the mm-hmm. planet, not mm-hmm. those few. And I put them at the bottom more kind of like bottom feeders, yeah. <laughs> the, the part that was at the top yeah. and that previous pyramid. And I think the power of our awakening together, our recognizing these things in mm-hmm. ourselves, the way you're illustrating through the characters, mm-hmm. is the beginning of the masses now being at the top of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. And that stuff that trickles down will mm-hmm. ultimately be and This is vanquished. so interesting because I taught workshops with that exact model for, for a number of years. And what it had to do was working with students to teach them how to change the dynamic at the bottom of the pyramid. In other words, like how they could re-envision the whole reality that they existed in. And once somebody changes it at the bottom of the pyramid, the whole pyramid gets busted. Absolutely. It doesn't work the same. Okay, so... We're in this, you and I were going back and forth recently. I wanted to talk just a little bit um, about Sarah, a little more about the character Sarah, because she had been with Armando previously, mm-hmm. the one who is the early Christian scholar, a beautiful young woman from a Catholic family that had its own abuse in it, you know. Um, and she got away from Armando. She could not handle it. It was shattering. He had to take a woman who was a little more, had a little more darkness in herself to work it through together. Mm-hmm. So why did Sarah intrigue you so much out of all these characters? Um, I think Sarah is probably the one who's the most autobiographical. It seems um, to me. Yeah. yeah. And, and in, 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 in this, uh, the way to interpret that would be in, in how she has chosen to live her life. So when I was, um, 42 years old, um, I graduated from, got a master's in theology with Matthew Fox. Yes. And I also had a husband and four children and a job yes. as a publisher. And I really wanted to go to graduate school. And I wanted to go to graduate school in patristics, which is early church studies. Yes. So what I did since I couldn't go to graduate school is I did graduate school for 30 years. So Sarah is the <laughs> one who's really carrying my background knowledge in early church history. And it's fascinating to me, Virginia, because the end result of my PhD is I'm beginning to realize that Jesus had to have come from another star system. And so when you study patristics, you study all those arguments. You know, is he God? Is he man? All those stuff. You know, is he, what is he? And I've really come, I've really come to the conclusion that Jesus uh, did come from another star system. Um, I think the person who has the closest analysis of this so far, the most correct one, is Len Caston in her, his, his book on Serpo. On Serpo. Yeah, yeah, so it's an issue of Jesus um, actually being a person who lived on Serpo 2,000 years ago who came to the earth. 
And if this, if people start to realize this, and all they have to do is start reading about surfall, and they'll find out a lot. But if people start realizing this, we're going to start realizing that someone came here from the stars 2,000 years ago and became fully human. He married, had children, and there's a whole story behind the actual life of Jesus. And this is what the church has been trying to cover up. And so when I went into patristics, I wanted to get into those early controversies. Okay, so you're sparking something in me here. It seems the one religion that actually does wear this a little bit on the sleeve is the Mormon faith. Mm-hmm. They talk about it. Yes, true. It's true. So can you just kind of Well, it's a, a very bit? interesting point on your part because another thing I've been into for, for many years is the issue of what was really going on in early America. What about who were the Native Americans really? really? And in my case, mm-hmm. I'm part Cherokee. And the Mormons, you know, it's, it, as religion are like, what, 150 years old mm-hmm. at this point. So it's a relatively new religion mm-hmm. that went deeply into the issue of who was really here in America, some of their research on who was here at the time, some of their DNA research is fantastic. And so I think the Mormons are probably closer to, to, to this question than, you're, you're absolutely right, than any other religion. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the Mormons are deeply absorbed in patriarchal consciousness. Oh, absolutely. They are the yeah. most patriarchal religion practically it, it, on the planet. And the patriarchy is a disaster because the patriarchy is misogyny and ha- based on hatred and control of women. Right. And we are, you and me, no. no way. <laughs> no, we're not doing that one. <laughs> okay, now let's go into something else here. And that is, um, you and I were writing back and forth privately recently about cycles of time. And it's like, I'm, I'm asking you, geez, Barbara, what is going on out there? And you're talking about something you had been researching lately, these 735 year cycles. Yeah. So share a little bit about that. This is getting into your astrological background. Yeah. But keeping the astrology brief because we only have a short time left. Yeah. The impact of these cycles, when they start, when what happens when they start and end. Well, what happened in 2020 was the beginning of a new 735-year cycle. And so then what we astrologers do is we just go back to the previous one and the previous one and the previous one. So I started doing that. And the previous one is 1285 A.D., and that's when modern banking started. That's when modern economics started. That's when globalism started. And now we've come through that 735 years, and it has been cracked wide open. And it looks like the next stage is going to be artificial intelligence. But we'll see. Certainly from the point of view of the Aquarian age, it looks like that. So Can you tell us how that could be a good thing? Oh, of course it could. Yeah. As, so let's tell us about yeah, it in the positive. It's just that I hate it myself. I, I know. I do, too. But let's. Let's talk about how that could be a good thing. Well, because they can if it's used wisely. Well, um, yeah, but I don't, I don't know enough about quantum physics, et cetera, to, to, to really, but I think it's going to be a quantum based reality in some way, which is automatically going to be multidimensional. Yes. And I, I interviewed mm-hmm. a young fellow. He's Canadian, uh, Deep Prasad, mm-hmm. isn't it? D-E-P Prasad. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the young geniuses on the planet in quantum computing. Mm-hmm. We had a, and that was on my site. We had a lovely conversation and mm-hmm. Deep was saying, once quantum computing becomes the dominant reality, mm-hmm. and the Chinese are ahead on it right now, yeah. then what happens is there is no security anymore. Anything yeah. we talk about, cybersecurity, all of this, is over. Mm-hmm. 
And that would be a good thing. And that would be a good because thing. Because then you start to, you're starting to end the secrets. You're starting and to end the secrets. And the secrets are the creation, are what right. create a lot of these control dynamics that, yeah. we're, that we're struggling with. You said it ends. You, yeah. you can't stop any information yeah. flow from that point forward. Right. right. So that's an interesting, yeah. that's an interesting thought when we're developing AI. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now let's talk about some of the other potentials where it can, if we choose correctly, this can be a flourishing era. If we blend it with the heart and soul yeah. of humanity. Well, then this is based again upon really, really dealing with the meaning of evil and mm-hmm. how evil enters the world. And that's really, that's really what this whole trilogy is all about is starting to really take a very deep seated look at evil. And the reason it's so hard right now is it's really such a hard thing to look at. It's such a hard thing to face up to. And, um, that's what, that's what I've been writing. Right. Using my imagination for. Okay, so if we look at if we look at your characters and their background, and we look at what's kind of mounting right now, and we look at there used to be a site called intelligence.org. It was taken down, and I started looking into all the characters years ago because they're the ones primary ones out of MIT developing AI and such. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating to look into their backgrounds. But what you're talking about is a heavily atheistic agenda. Mm-hmm. You're looking at dust to dust. There is no spirit that transcends life. Yeah. So thus, great amounts of fear of annihilation, mm-hmm. and then you can be manipulated very easily mm-hmm. from that level because everything wants to exist. Life wants to exist, mm-hmm. right? Well, yeah, except that it, it, it changes when people face up to the issue of death. Mm-hmm. And once you realize you've lived many lifetimes, and exactly. once you realize you've gone to many realities, then it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't. And that's why I say this is an atheistic agenda. Mm-hmm. A, the, the perpetuation of consciousness through whatever kind of means and body you can mm-hmm. get hold of. Mm-hmm. You know, immortality. Who needs immortality? I don't want to be in this body forever. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try a new one on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So we know that the expansion of awareness of their very, very early religions in the world, which understood we come back cyclically. Yeah. This We continue to grow and learn. Well, see, that's another issue in this trilogy, is what Christianity took away at, at 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very deep issue. And I think that the, thing that the things that Christianity took away by creating the fairy story about how Jesus mm-hmm. supposedly la, 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 and then ascended and all that kind of stuff, um, that are, are dealt with very, very deeply in this book. Yes. But as the fairy story goes away, then the truth comes back in. And that's that's what's happening right now. As hard as this is, a lot of truth is being faced now. Yeah. yeah it really is. I know you didn't, when you started this trilogy, you didn't know where it was going to end. Were you at all surprised by where it ended? At this point, like you said, you just hinted you may even do a fourth one. Mm-hmm. But at this point, were you surprised where it ended? On one hand, in terms of the trilogy, and then we're even remotely surprised where it ended coming as an astrologer. Oh, well, to, it bringing up astrology again, astrology just doesn't exist in the first two books, except the discussion about the age of Aquarius. Right. And so, uh, people shouldn't be afraid of astrology. At this point, astrology is really being used by a lot of people to interpret reality. Including you know, those in positions of yeah. power. And, and yes, well, okay, first of all, it is assumed and described in the book about how people in power use astrology. Mm-hmm. And they use the 2020, um, they started calling it the Great Reset. And the Great Reset is an astrological term for this 735-year cycle. I was amazed when I saw Davos show, coming up with the idea of the Great Reset. Yeah. You know, you know, 
So it's not discussed a lot because people have a hard time with astrology, mm -hmm. but it's discussed in a way that makes sense because yeah. these large historical cycles really do affect us. And so the characters went really according to the astrology. Yeah, we're really at uh, this key turning point. People are really going to see a big change right in Christmas of 2021. Um, and, you know, and the novel only goes through part of 2021 because it had to get published. Right. But the big, there's going to be a real awareness of, of, of a great shift um, at the end of 2021 and going into 2022. And really the way you described it to me privately and off camera is this we're going to be challenged. Women will be particularly challenged. Some of it could be around the choice of what they're going to do with their children around the issue of vaccines could force these kinds of issues forward to the forefront. Yeah. But that it's really going to come down to human sovereignty and choice at that point on a large scale. Yeah. And let's go back to that issue of, of upending the pyramid. Yes. What happened because of COVID um, was that a whole lot of people got to spend a whole lot of time for the last year to year and a half, um, exploring new realities. Yeah. They got, they got out of jobs that were a treadmill and they got into a whole new reality. And a lot of women are not going to be going back to work anymore who are raising children because they're going to go back to realize. They're quitting in droves. Yes, they're quitting mm -hmm. in droves because they're starting to realize that the most precious time of your whole life is your opportunity to be with a small child. And to be coerced and manipulated into leaving your baby behind, um, there's a lot of issues with that. There are, and the fact is women are quite capable. We don't need to put a suit and tie on to be able to do a job and care for children oh, sure. if we can do it in our own environment, in our mm -hmm. own pace That's and right. way. Yeah, I've never, I've had four children. I've never had any problem not yeah. doing what I needed to do. Yeah. You know, it's just doing it in the way that's been laid out in a corporate. And well, I didn't want to leave my children. I didn't leave them till they were three when I was in preschool. Yeah. yeah, I didn't want to. Nope. Nope. No. Well, very quickly, we're out of time. What is the one takeaway you'd like people to have from that trilogy? I would like people to really free up their imaginations. These characters are, they're, they're very complex psychologically, psychically, intellectually, um, in terms of history, in terms of their families. And I would like people to, the, these characters are very, I mean, I didn't choose them because they came to me. Yeah. They wanted to speak through me. And they are really wonderful, you know, really uh, complex, beautiful human beings. And we've got to start using people like that as models. I agree. I, in fact, I thought, oh, man, I'd love to be in that beautiful dining room and part of that conversation with them. But fortunately, I have you. We have these conversations. <laughs> right. <laughs> Barbara, thank you so much for persevering through these three books over the last uh, nine, ten years. Yeah, and thank I you really for your support, it. Regina. Most welcome. My yes. pleasure, truly. Again, the title of the latest of the Revelations trilogy is Revelations from the Source. It's intense, educational, and inspirational. The kind of fiction we need to begin weaving into our cultures now. Fiction that changes how we think. To learn more about the first two books, you can watch my previous interviews with Barbara and Gaia, or you can buy the books. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Okay. Well, we have this one now. Um, this is by, um, it's Galactic Messages with Gosia Dusak. Um, Matrix Manipulations from the Moon.
How do ancient computers within the moon control the 3D matrix we experience on Earth? Explaining the 12,500-year history of an intergalactic conflict between species, Swaru'u, um, of era shares with Gosia mm. Dusak that the Tegetan crew are interacting with Earth to help our expansion into higher mental states. According to Swaru'u, 99% of the Milky Way galaxy of the Milky Way galaxy is in fifth density, including Earth. However, a 3D matrix frequency suppressing technology projected from the moon and sustained by the collective human mentality maintains the population in a lower vibration, vibratory state. Swaru'u says that this projection was the result of the Federation attempt to contain the reptilians from leaving Earth, which has led to the hacking of this technology by the same reptilian beings who managed to use it in their favor, mind-controlling the humans instead until this very day. Now, this is where Mother came in. She said this, what, a month or more ago? And she said that we're going to round up those 500 reptiles and we're going to take them on a little ride to Dracos, right? <sighs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's hear this little background here. It's called Hacking of the Third 3D Matrix. Let's do this. This is 36 minutes, everybody. Consciousness matrix. 
Okay, let's talk about the reptilian hack of the Matrix. What do you mean by that? The hack is technological as well as mind controlling the people. The Matrix is the real frequency control. The hack controls the lunar matrix, physical one if you may, reading your thoughts and wishes that are a frequency in itself. So the hack works as it's instructing the people to manifest the same things. But as they are guided by another species interests, then what result is not in the best interest of the people. The system feeds and modifies the lunar real hard one with the imposing ideas. So the hack is technological too. I thought it was only purely mind control. It's technological, mental, esoteric and ideocratic. It's using all the levels and tricks it can. They first manipulated the system with controlling ideas so the matrix would work for them. And since like 1960-ish, they physically managed to get their hands on the lunar computers. From 2008 to 2017, Tigetans were in control. And from 2017 to this date, the Arcturians, the Eslientitex, are the ones in control of the lunar matrix. What changes did they do to the computer program in the 1960s? They hardened the matrix to their convenience, making it super dense and super hard, still is making escaping nearly impossible. Hacking also the reincarnation program or the ether fence that surrounds the Earth. So the matrix, the 3D matrix, is not necessarily bad or good. It is just a sort of virtual game placed upon the 5D world. It is what it is used for then that makes it bad. The hack made it bad? It's the interpretation and the use you give it. It's not bad inherently. It's now used for a bad purpose. Okay, let's talk about the hack as the ideas in position. When the Matrix was set up 12,500 years ago, the reptile's technology was destroyed. So they started to use the very mechanics of the Matrix to entrap the remaining humans on Earth with the mind control. At which point did they hack it, really? They did it, little by little, with a lot of patience. They can have patience, because they don't have 90 year or so lifespans. But there are important milestone places. The most important one, or relevant one, is 1400 BC. King Akhenaten 
implemented the monotheistic idea on the Egyptian people, making them forget the polytheistic approach that also included the cult of the goddess. It came from Aton, Atonism, Ra, Horus. The monotheistic approach of King Akhenaten is solar worshipping. The Egyptian people, who were very tolerant by the way, ended up giving Akhenaten a coup, and they expelled the pharaoh and his followers from Egypt. And they walked the desert for 40 years, not knowing where to go. And in Mount Sinai, the king Akhenaten left them while he went up to see his kin and made a plan with the remaining reptiles. Moses, Akhenaten. Oh wow, it seems we opened a big can of worms here. Yes, it is. But to cut this short, the expelled Egyptians went on to found places like Rome, where they are still today, influencing Etruscan culture as well. And the solar cult is still in place today. I love how you make it all sound so simple sometimes, and how it all just falls right into place. And so, this was one of the ways for reptiles to hack the system? By imposing their religious monotheistic systems. Yes, the system is hacked using beliefs imposed on the people as a hive mind. They do this with fear, so they have to design a new religion. This was the hacking system. If you have everyone thinking the same way and doing the same, you have them marching in unison. Therefore, you make them manifest the reality you want. Next milestone is the full implementation of the Christian theology. The concept is to isolate the people from the divine. The whole New Testament was written under the orders of Rome. Reptilians and the descendants of the expelled people from Egypt that followed Akhenaten. And it's based on Stoic, Roman, Egyptian and Celtic, Druidic teachings mostly. And Old Testament? The Old Testament is the history of Atlantis. You must learn how to read it as it's coded. It reads like a fairy tale for the non-initiated, but it takes a new meaning for those who know what to look for. For example, each time you encounter a name in the Old Testament, think more of a race of people and not about an individual. So Adam and Eve are not people, but races of people. Think of it that way 
and it takes a new meaning. Yes, and the Elohim mentioned in the Bible are the race of beings. Yes, Elohim are the expelled ones. The reptiles? Yes, the reptiles. But the Elohim are also a race of people who live in the Pleiades star system. Another big can of worms. So it is complex. Okay, let's go back to the hack. The major hack was the implementation of the monster of three horns. Christianity, Judaism, Islam. They are variants of the same lies. Just tailored for different people. Then, once the people were subdued with fear, mostly from religion, they implemented another three-horned monster. This recent, 200-300 years ago. Vatican, religious control over the people. Washington, military control over the people. And London, financial control over people. They have a near global system of control using all governments, nearly all, as puppets, as you know, where the people believe entirely one thing and they another. The most important hack in general is to be able to implement a complete false reality based on imposed ideas of how everything works. This leading to the people manifesting for them the matrix reality the negative ones want. They can't manifest it themselves? They don't have the same mental power? They can. But if they do so, the people would be free and they wouldn't be able to exploit them for energy, food. They are manifesting a reality where they are the lords and the people serve them in every possible way. So they manipulate us not only so we can help them generate the reality they want, but also to keep us as slaves so we don't escape. Exactly. And now, even after death, they exploit and manipulate people. After people die, they intercept them in what you call lower astral or 4D. And they say that they haven't been nice enough. They show them their lives recorded technologically. After all, it's a matrix and all is recorded. They insist that they must pay karma and the people are reincarnated. They don't go back to source because that is what they expect to see. Then heaven or hell is the result of guilt or what a person firmly believes she deserves. And it is the very person that is generating that. So everything is due to the mental control or perception that each soul has. But this is easily overcome with the knowledge that you are going wherever you have to go by right. It is the idea of blame, of karma, 
which is nothing more than a religious belief that forces souls to return. Any other important milestones of the hack? It's very gradual. Other milestones I would include each time they have managed to invade other people, like Native Americans, Africans, other cultures. But the biggest matrix hacking milestones are religious or technological, like the invention of mass media via radio and television, where they have people there looking and being indoctrinated all the time into thinking the way they should. Technological milestones are first the mass media and the brain control, mind control ones using microwaves and heart technology, but also the development of space travel and real working starships implemented by the SSP, developed mostly by the reptilians, as nearly all their technology was destroyed since the Great Flood pole shift. This after 1947 mostly. What about having to work as a controlling and dumbing mechanism? I feel it is a very important concept here that really limits people's expansion. I mean, the concept of having to work so we can survive, so we don't have time to devote to self-exploration. We are set on the survival mode. Yes, yes, that's all part of the belief system implemented by using brainwashed main control because the people simply don't think that there is another way to live. They are always thinking that life is hard, so working and fighting is a noble thing to do. They don't see any other option, no other reality. And what do people do when they get home tired? They watch television, where they are being mind-controlled even more. Yes, exactly. You put it so well. Working and fighting is something noble. Exactly. They are tricked. It's nonsense. The reptiles hacked it so well that they make the slaves feel like heroes. And you are absolutely right. No better slave than the one who doesn't think he is. How do you know so much about us here, being up there? We have been studying Earth since 1952 directly, and we have a lot of data from older expeditions. Although Tigetes came to Earth since 1919, in recent times, of course. I understand. And now I'm wondering, how come such good programmers that you are, you let them hack the lunar matrix systems? There were no preventing measures? Simple and straight answer. It was wrongly left unattended. You mean by the Federation? Did they just leave? Yes. It was weak and hurt 
with many losses. The solar system was a mess back then because of the destruction of Tiamat. It was left unattended. This was wrong. Sorry, but we are not perfect beings. We are people. We do make mistakes. That's also why we are here. To do the cleaning up. No problem, Svaru. How long was it left alone for? 12,500 years until 2008. But what I said above was unattending the Matrix computer system. Some individual people, Tigetans and other races, have always been around in some way or another. And now, as of now, countless species are helping from the inside. Starseeds, too. Humans only see time as a one-lane road, like those in the countryside, where if a vehicle drives against another one approaching from the opposite direction, both must very carefully move to the side to let another one pass. Because two cars cannot physically fit on the same asphalt road. So they think that things are like that everywhere. As I perceive time using the same analogy, it is like a highway with eight lanes, but also with levels one above the other, where a car cannot only change lanes to the one it wants, left and right, but up and down too, left and right, back and forth, it doesn't matter. Another analogy, humans see time as a line, the, the arrow of time as they describe it. I see a bubble within another bubble, within another bubble, to infinity and eternal expansion. So, I don't just see a series of events as a sequential line, in the way how people want me to explain to them as what is brewing in the future, on a single line. But I see it as events that change continuously, jump between one another and influence each other. As in this last image, Time expands in any direction, one and each line being only a sequence of events in particular that is observed as it progresses to develop, not necessarily forward in time, also receding like a vessel that has been broken and you see how it is being rebuilt, like a sheet of paper that is unburning. Although humans see this as an impossibility and something that violates the laws of thermodynamics, it is not so from other angles, only from the limited time arrow that they see. Each red point is a nexus point, which is where the energy and events of a series of lines or a line converge and influence others. So from any point, you have the influence of other points, being that, for example, the past, present and future 
are all intertwined and as a single whole, a unit, being temporarily animated only by where the attention is placed and at will. I see a chain of events, but I see similar chains with their own outcomes, all equally valid, all simultaneously, constantly influencing each other. What is understood on Earth as parallel universes or timelines is basically garbage. They denote limitation and isolation from each other, while it is a whole that works together and beyond all time. It is each individual who animates everything in a specific way. When it comes to geometric shapes, time is an ever-expanding scalar bubble, both already expanded and at the same time not, and simultaneously it also contracts without contradicting itself in its energy dynamics. Toroid within toroid within toroid, with the mind at the center or motor of it. So, with that in mind, what I see is that on the 8-lane and 8-level superhighway, what will come is more confinements and more restrictions, progressively tighter, economies will collapse, people will panic and attack those who don't follow the rules. It all depends on humans, on what they manifest, as I have been saying and I have tired of saying. Nothing is set in stone. Everything I describe above is not deterministic. They are in control of everything. And I mean the people themselves. I know it doesn't look like that from there, from the surface and from the point of view of the family who will be taken out of their house because they cannot pay the mortgage. Because that's what 3D is all about giving your free will up for a collective experience, and even so, with what little you have left, to get ahead as a soul, if not as a body biology. So, in this case, as in any other, the only thing that matters is how you are inside, what you think, your values, morals, ethics, and the level of consciousness always changing, always expanding, leaving behind what does not serve you without any attachments because those slow you down. Values on earth are reversed. What doesn't matter, matters, and what really matters, doesn't. Money and material, bodily satisfaction is what matters. Immediate gratification with a low level of consciousness, materialistic and deterministic, that's what matters there. The mind, the spirit, what you take with you when you die, that does not matter, just as life itself does not matter, neither that of people, nor that of animals, nor that of plants. Ethics, morals, consciousness do not matter only obeying the masters. And that is where the human error lies. That 
brings their destruction. But the key is not to defeat the big corporations or the villains, because villains only have power because the same people give it to them. The key is not politicians. Then, realizing progressively, but very quickly, that this is all a hoax, that nothing is happening, yet this always comes at great cost to people. Great cost because it depends on them realizing a mass that they are being manipulated. And this causes people to react with protests. And this follows with subsequent government retaliation. So all progress towards the positive will bring a strong reaction in people confronting each other because of the very confusion to which they are being subjected. In almost all timelines, let's say 50 out of 64, not being able to be precise, the cabal does not achieve its primary purpose or objective in the long run, while they do achieve it temporarily. But broken shoes is the key. What every little person out there feeling like trash can do by learning to use a simple two-letter word. No. Everything that happens is a reflection of the mind of broken shoes. They are the creators, not the cabal, not the federation. Those are reflections of their psyche. They are gods. But they want to play that, whatever it's called, and that is what they have and will have. Nothing and no one can stop what will happen, only them, because it comes out of them. They are the cause and the solution. Oh my. So, Rama, the last one. Where is it? The last one is <laughs> it's, it's um, hacking of the three D matrix. Oh, we just did that. Oh, so it's um, matrix manipulations from the moon. How do ancient computers... No, that's not... what We just did this one. It was 36 minutes, right? We just did matrix manipulations from the moon. No, hacking of the 3D matrix is what we did. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, let's get started with this one then. Which? Matrix manipulations from the moon. Okay, let me see. How do ancient computers... I thought I just heard her talking about 12,500... No, 12, just five. did hacking of the 3D matrix. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um... Matrix manipulation. Okay... Well, I read this one. I heard her talking about 
the 12,500 year history, and that's from matrix manipulations from the moon. Mm. Yeah. Well, I just brought this up because I didn't play it. You're sure that's not the one we just played? We just played the other one, Hacking of the Three. Oh, okay. Well, let's just listen. Let's get started because we've just got a tight schedule here. Um, How do ancient computers within the moon I'm sure I read this one But you played the other one Yeah Okay Mm -hmm. Let's do this one Well, we're here manifesting 
as a collective reality. So the 3D system was placed over the 5D by the Federation from the moon. That's right. But placing the matrix as a control grid also made it easy to hack by the reptilian forces. Especially those that had access to the computers in the moon later on. Transforming a normal 3D world into the hellhole it is today for most. Why did the Federation want to lock reptiles in 3D? The Federation did it to keep the inside the etheric fence because they were too wasted, depleted, and tried to continue with the pursuit of reptiles on Earth as they are doing now. That's why they implemented the Stargate, the Van Allen belts that limit 3D, to keep the bad reptiles in until they can return. They were much weakened at the time. Also, the entire solar system was a complete mess of debris, and the ships couldn't operate properly. It was too dangerous. This because of the destruction of Tiamat planet. It was destroyed because the reptiles were being persecuted there. The whole fight was against them. reptilians residing on Earth, instead of destroying the planet just like they did with Tiamat, they decided to set up their 3D belts, yes? Because their last action brought the destruction of an entire planet, although it was a water planet. So it would have been a good spot to set a base camp there by the reptiles. Can you tell me a bit more about that time and the wars? When the reptiles arrived on Earth, about 40,000, some say 50,000, Sumerian tablets say 250,000 years, but they are wrong. The reptiles placed a dummy base in Tiamat to emit all kinds of dummy electromagnetic radiation. So when the Federation came after them, they could lure them into a trap in an ambush style. The Federation pursuing the reptiles arrived at Tiamat to investigate the electromagnetic transmissions from there and they were ambushed by the reptiles. It was a very horrible and bloody war. The Federation was desperate to end the conflict, which involved the use of nuclear and energy point zero devices 
that led to the destruction of the planet. Now the Andromeda Council, a part of the larger federation, insists that Tigetans and the other races involved in the destruction of Tiamat be the ones who liberate Earth for karmic reasons. This is then another reason why the Tigetans have always been involved in Earth affairs, trying to clean the mess. sensed that there was a deeper reason to the story and even to why you are here. It makes you less so sweet and all-loving. It makes you real. Yes, the deeper reason is also to pay off that karma as some say. Although I beg to differ on the concept of karma something we can go into at a later time. And yes, we do make mistakes. After the time bat and Mars wars, the reptilians and the Federation had taken a very hard beating, many losses. The Federation was damaged and weak. It could not continue fighting. But knowing that the reptilians were on Earth, they enclosed them there with the 3D matrix with the intention of sorting it out later. This matrix is a computer program designed as a hologram that is projected onto 5D Earth with a large and powerful hologram projector, the moon. It's all a program. And the system is primitive, digital. It's a caricature of 5D reality. Why can't you just shut it off? We can. But people there will have a very hard time adjusting. And it goes against their own free will. As it is said that souls go in there now for the thrill. And even if we did just shut it off, the 5D and all its attributes would suddenly start working. And that means that strange interdimensional animals that are all there anyway would be seen running in the streets. UFOs, ghosts, monsters, and all things paranormal are the 5D part of Earth filtering through the holes in the 3D matrix program. Hmm. How did projecting a 3D trap the reptilians exactly? Because holograms are not just light. When powerful enough, they are great electromagnetic energy, a force field. That force field is the Van Allen belt that surround the Earth. That's the limit of the 3D, a wall. 
You cannot go through that wall without technology that can control frequencies. As a soul, if your vibration isn't high enough, you cannot go through either. You need to ascend, to work on yourself, to have a high vibration enough to escape the fence. The souls not evolved enough will reincarnate there again. The evolved ones will escape. That's also why the negative ones don't want this information out. They don't want people escaping because they lose their slaves. Was the civilization and were there humans on Earth at the time of 3D installment? There was. And there were evolved humans on Earth. Lyrians, for example, from whom we all descend. So they got trapped, too. That's true. The Federation expected to go back to Earth to finish the job soon. And for many complicated reasons, that is now 12,000. 500 years long. Please tell me how the 3D was programmed before it was hacked by the reptilians imposing their limiting beliefs. The very same way you program a video game with interactive capability. You design a virtual world in your imagination using CGI graphics. You also created not with a mouse and screen, but with thought-to-computer interface. The computer goes reading what you want and where you want anything. You move it with your hands and thought. It's creative. The rules didn't include making you a slave twisting the program to fit their needs. The system was flawed. It got intervened and hacked. Things like aging fast, for example. They are not part of the matrix directly, but programmed from the inside after it was installed using belief patterns of and from the people. It was done using the original matrix itself and its rules, as they could not get to the computer itself that was and still is in the moon. The rules, such as the law of attraction, what you want, you get. They made the people think they were limited in order for them to age make them believe that they had only some 85 years to live. The harshness of the environment and the world, also created by them, also helps to create that belief in aging. But it's all mind, not genetic manipulation. Earth scientists 
insists that they found the gene that controls aging. And they are right. But what they don't see or understand is that it's consciousness that turns the genes on and off, even creates new ones. So the reptiles manipulated the people into manifesting a shorter lifespan. The reptiles hacked the system using mind control over the people manifesting the matrix. The law of attraction is not part of this 3D matrix, but of an original matrix, correct? Yes. The law of attraction is also working here, in this initial matrix. In fact, it's a lot stronger here. All the other rules come from that one. And there are so many of them. With that first law of attraction, each being immersed in it will create its own particular or personal set of rules while there. And if things look the same for all individuals, it's because people on Earth have been guided to manifest the same things using mind control to create a hive mind in order to exploit them energetically, creating a farm in benefit of the reptilians. So what are the differences in 3D and 5D reality? I'm not talking about the reptiles changing it. Just a pure 3D holographic world versus 5D one. I guess I'm trying to determine what from the things here is real, still exists in the 5D, and which things are holographically inserted. The hologram at a higher level superimposes images, yes, but it works mainly this way. It locks people's perceptions into a set bandwidth of perception. And that's white light bandwidth. So even if all the rest of the 5D components of Earth are still there, you cannot be aware of them with your five senses. Take a ruler, for example. One is a low frequency. Ten is the higher. It's all a frequency gradient from low to high. If your eyes cannot see past three, then four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten are not existing for you. Okay, so it's mostly limiting the perception, not inserting false images, just limiting the perception of these images. Both. Sometimes imposing an image, but mostly restricting what you can see. From 5D, you can see everything in the frequency range of 1, 2, 3, 4 and 5, but not 6 and above. 
does 3D differ from 5D? It's still the same objects, yes? Chair is a chair. Shoe is still a shoe. Yes, shoe is a shoe because they are both an original matrix. A chair is a chair here in 5D. And it's the same in 3D because 3D matrix was created as a copy of 5D matrix. And a tree? A tree is a tree, but it's a higher vibration. Now, what's that vibration thing exactly? <laughs> a vibration or a density are the oscillations per second of manifested matter. Look at the fan. When it stopped, you can see the blades. But when on and going fast, the blades are blur. Go faster, they will disappear from your sight entirely. But they are still there. So, in order to stop someone from seeing past 3D, they must keep them suppressed in a lower frequency state. We also have the original 5D matrix imposing things on the people of Earth. Things that as they are suppressed, they cannot see, but still are there to affect you. I have always felt deep frustration to perceive objects only in the way my brain decodes them here. And I always knew deep inside they also exist in another way, in that higher oscillatory rate as you described. I touched the wood and it's just very limiting 3D wood. I have always sensed that there was something wrong and that this is not the only way things exist. What you describe does mean you miss what you remember and know you are limited now. Things feel a lot more real in 5D. Colors are stronger and there are more of them. You feel more in touch with your surroundings and with everything not only living things. Now, how does this suppression in 3D work? The moon transmits a frequency that suppresses your capacity to see certain frequencies. How do you suppress it? You transmit another frequency that matches it, but at the opposite. That's how the moon cancels out the frequencies they don't want you to see and perceive. It's called destructive interference. That frequency suppression using destructive interference will limit people's perception to 3D. Or only 
in the frequency range ruler of one to three. Ghosts and other things are in four lower astral. So some things do leak into 3D. The suppression is not perfect. I always knew something is wrong with this reality. I'm walking within the shadow of myself, virtual reality avatar of myself. Exactly. When deep in that state, people get so disconnected from their higher self, their source, only acting out the program from the matrix, making them do the same things over and over, day after day, that they literally can lose their souls. The higher self loses interest in being in these individuals. Now, the lunar computers, are they really computers? Or I imagine it is something vastly more advanced from what we can imagine, right? They are literal digital computers using a primitive binary system. They are controlled by very old and dangerous nuclear reactors based on uranium. And they are toxic ionizing radiation. The computers control the electromagnetic generators. They dictate the exact frequency they emit, when and where, because the matrix is not uniformly set. It's different for each region. Why is it different for each region? And which region has the most and the least matrix? Most matrix, USA and Europe. Least matrix, regions of Africa, Brazil and Asia. Mostly where there is a lot of nature. That's where it receives less electromagnetic influence. But why was it designed to emit more matrix in some regions? It was not designed that way. The system is failing, so they are conserving and managing energy. The system initially consisted of 12 nuclear reactors, but eight of them are disabled now. Now only four remain online. They are old and may fail suddenly, creating a problem. Gieslin Diplex, Arcturians, technicians are now on the problem and how to feed the system with an alternate source of power. It's 12,500 years old, it's failing, and people down there are experiencing many glitches. get out of the 3D matrix perception using only our mind since it is installed through some kind of technology? Yes. 
When the consciousness level is high enough, it will in itself automatically adjust the matrix to 5D, liberating the people to the original 5D natural matrix. As the wants of the people manifest what the matrix gives them, it will automatically manifest 5D for them, if that's what they want. If we turn it off manually now, then all we will have is chaos, as most of the people are not ready for 5D. So, from what I understand, we are multidimensional, and as with the ruler example, we already are in the 5D. It's just our range of perception that has been shut off. It's just a matter of widening the perception to include that, right? Right. It's what you want to perceive that counts. And it is vital to understand people are not limited artificially. They are only limited by their own beliefs. They are in a prison for their minds. So, even if the 3D installment is maintained technologically, our consciousness can bypass it, correct? Consciousness is not in the body. It works through the body. You are not there. You are only perceiving there now. So it cannot be contained. That's why the only thing that limits humans is the idea that they are limited. And that's the part done by the reptilians hacking the system. If we are descendants of Lyrians and they were here at the moment of 3D installment, how come they forgot who they are, we are, and the reptiles somehow even managed to use the matrix against them? They were supposed to be trapped in their perception too. Because they are the ones that are hacking the system. And they never were lied to about reality. Their consciousness wasn't given the idea of being limited. The 3D trap was meant for the reptiles. The limited exploiting ideas then were set by the reptiles to exploit the Illyrian people. That's the hack. The 3D frequency and the ideas limit the memory. Trapped in a memory loss perception, that's all part of the idea of being limited. All your past life's memory is still within you now because it's not stored in the body. Why do the reptiles want to keep us generating the matrix if they want to escape it too? Because the matrix is working in great percentage to their favor. And they do want to escape so they can be free 
as they have been imprisoned there for 12,500 years. They have been hard at work. Why not let us go? I mean, if they could let us go, raise our frequency, we could get out. Many are doing precisely that. The rebellions are now split into two factions. The ones that want to cooperate and the ones that want to fight until the bitter end. If we go beyond the Van Allen belt, could we access the 5D automatically? Yes. As you go beyond Van Allen belt, you are automatically in 5D. The trick is, get out. But yes, as you go out, you find yourself in 5D. Then, you remember it all, and it all makes sense. You said the trick is how to get out. So, how did the reptiles manage to get out if they were trapped? Portals? Yes. Although they are mostly stopped from using portals now, they still do in a limited way. Spaceflight, on the other hand, is forbidden for them. How did they reach the portal technology? Because they were 3D trapped, left with nothing, no resources, and managed to somehow grow back to power. They took 12,000 500 years to find and develop enough technology to get out. Even the Nazis and their obsession with antiquities and the esoteric, what they always wanted was to find the old and hidden artifacts and technology buried since long ago. Technology lost since Atlantis was destroyed. Do you know or can you foresee when the 3D installment will be off completely? Any forecast, time-wise? No forecast possible because the real nature of space-time doesn't permit a clear forecast. Aren't you perhaps turning off the 3D matrix little by little from up there? Like turning it up 3D, then 3.1, 3.2, etc. I mean, time is speeding up. People waking up. Something is going on. We are turning the knob, slowly turning 3D off. And at what grade are we now? 3.2, 3.5D? You are all in average at the border with what you call fourth density. Our team is slowly increasing the frequency. And this beside the fact that the whole quadrant is ascending to the fifth density, literally moving a dial on a console. That's why so many people are awakening and so many people are seeing strange creatures and strange things are happening all over the place. <laughs> because 3D is now overlapping with 4D lower astral.
I understand it's important to make it clear that it's not all in the hands of technology. The cooperation of our mind is as important, if not more. It's the effort from both sides. Our consciousness is key, right? Yes. Their people must be the change. Their people mustn't sit and wait. They must be 5D now. You must be the new world. Not wait for it to happen. The people are the event they are waiting for. Their mind is the key. Well, well, I see if I can read this. You might go a little bit over, but I think this is important. This is our message to light workers, March eleventh, twenty twenty-two, from our sister Caroline Oceana Ryan and the ascended masters, the galactics, the earth elements, the the fairy elders, the angelic legions, archangels, and other divine beings known as the collective. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have this time to speak with you today. We wish today to assure you that though much looks to be difficult or uncertain on your planet, you are, all of you, becoming increasingly more involved in your earth missions and your soul growth taking unprecedented leaps forward. And you are all becoming increasingly more involved. Rama, just listen, okay, so that you can be... Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, We are assuring you that though much looks to be difficult or uncertain on your planet, you are, all of you, becoming increasingly more involved in your Earth mission and your soul growth taking unprecedented leaps forward. And you are all becoming increasingly more involved in the excitement and preparations taking place amongst your galactic families as they ready themselves for disclosure of their presence to all earth beings. We are aware that much appears to be tenuous on earth now. Nations and populations appear to be on the move with much transpiring, whether in the form of outer conflict demonstrations or negotiations between groups or lack of them. Amongst the outer upset in places are unfair and unnecessary raising of prices. of many products and services that need not be demonstrating higher costs. This has been instigated by influencers in various industries or the companies themselves, whose leaders, whether seen or unseen, wish to take advantage of the current atmosphere. That atmosphere might strike you as chaotic, and we would... Agree. Turn the page. 
We consider that as we have reminded you in the past, out of the chaos is born a new new creation, and that cannot be denied. You now. We would say that over the past month, amidst the astrological alignments, you have been witnessing the light forms flowing to earth and transforming consciousness and earth energies. And amidst your own prayers, declarations and visualizations, all of this has shifted earth's life to a whole new, far more empowered level. Can only a few special folks experience the beauty of this? Not at all. It is available to all. Yes, even those whom you feel must be suffering greatly as they must leave their home, their country, or region and wander into they know not what. Their soul missions have directed them to hold light whenever they are, both for the situation they have left at wherever they are uh, and the ones they now walk into. All of us in the higher realms within the Ashtar Command and on the higher dimensional earth points are surrounding these ones with light, particularly the mothers and children who have been displaced or who have lost homes or loved ones, and who are unsure what lies ahead for them. Some have been fleeing from places of armed conflict, some from extreme weather, much of it falsely manipulated, some from political strife or economic collapse. We assure you, friends, we have not abandoned these dear ones, nor have we abandoned any of you, who care for these, who send them light and assistance and the energies of higher love, which is overcoming so much that these ones could be experiencing. Allow the light codes pouring in now to remind you who you are, and that includes how powerful you are. Allow them to remind you on a cellular level, a conscious and deeply felt energetic level, including the emotional level, that you came in to heal. Not only the earth and earth human consciousness, rather also your own spirit and psyche, your own soul, much fractured in many cases by many life experiences that tore at the fabric of your most valiant essence. You have paid badly in many lives for having a conscience, for having concern for others, for acting with forethought or in pure impulse according to your passion for truth and autonomy. And now all comes full circle. That freedom which you have so desired is built in presence and experience in your reality increasingly as you open to receive it. 
You are building it into your everyday life via your own requirements individually and en masse to have a voice and to use it to be honored as living beings and to reconnect with all you have been torn away from for eons. How is it that millennia have passed and you have forgotten your true power and essence? All of that occurring is as in the blink of an eye. We very nearly have no answer for you. The mystery of these ages has been that you decided, all of you, to move fully and more to more fully claim you, your true selves. You, as aspects of the universe, by first losing and then reclaiming all you are. Okay, a few more sentences here. Just got twenty the page. There we go. This is all we ask, dear ones, that in the middle of the day or night, as you wonder what in the world is happening on your planet, you learn to answer, even before you know the full weight of these phrases. I am the I am. I reclaim my planet, my freedom, and my sovereignty for divine love now. I am, and we are, one with all that is. And so it is, dear ones. Now, m- more than ever, never doubt that we are with you always. Carolina Oceana and the Collective. And I pass this Collective talking stick with angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, and Menahunis and hobbits and all the rest to my sister Rainbird and uh, that emerald serpent feathered one is dancing on this talking stick. Here it comes, Rainbird. Okay. Yeah, it's dancing. Oh my. Oh my. So, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's claim our sovereignty from the matrix. <laughs> yeah. And to know that it's already here, all we need to do is just step there. That's a good one. And then thank you for today. It's really very interesting and enlightening. I really enjoyed the Barbara and Kyle as well and all this other, everything. It was fun. Lots going on. May we live in interesting times. (laughs) Thank you. And I pass this talking stick over to you, Robin. Here it comes. It has to be fun, Rainbird. You got it. (laughs) All right. Here we go. It's going to be a little overtime, but it's worth it. Rama's got something to share here. Tell us what we got here, Rama. Um, I'm getting there. It will give you goosebumps. Helen Watts on The Secret. Uh, 
It's coming, everybody. The only thing you need to know to understand the deepest metaphysical secrets is this. That for every outside, there is an inside, and for every inside, there is an outside. And although they are different, they go together. There is, in other words, a secret conspiracy between all insides and all outsides. And the conspiracy is this, to look as different as possible, and yet underneath to be identical. Because you don't find one without the other. Like Tweedledum and Tweedledee agree to have a battle. Note that, agree. So there is a secret. What is esoteric, what is profound and what is deep, is what we will call the implicit. What is obvious and on the open is what we will call the explicit. And I and my environment, you and your environment, are explicitly as different as different can be. But implicitly, you go together. And this is discovered by the scientist when he tries, as the whole art of science is to describe what happens exactly. And when he describes exactly what you do, he finds out that you, your behavior, is not something that can be separated from the behavior of the world around you. He realizes then that you are something that the whole world is doing. Just as when the sea has waves on it, all right, the sea, the ocean is waving. And so each one of us is a waving of the whole cosmos, the entire works, all there is. And with each one of us, it's waving and saying, you, here I am. <laughs> Only it does it differently each time. Because variety is the spice of life. But you see, the funny thing is, we haven't been brought up to feel that way. Instead of feeling that we, each one of us, are something that the whole realm of being is doing, we feel that we are something that has come into the whole realm of being as a stranger. When we were born, we don't really know where we came from, but we don't remember. And we think when we die, that's just going to be that. Some people console themselves with the idea that they're going to heaven, or that they're going to be reincarnated, or they're going to summer land, or something else. People don't really believe that. For most people, it's plausible. The real thing that haunts them is that when they die, they're going to sleep and never going to wake up. They're going to be locked up in the safe deposit box of darkness forever. But that all depends, you see, upon a false notion of what is oneself. Now, the reason why we have this false notion of ourselves is, as far as I can understand it, that we have specialized in one particular kind of consciousness. 
Being very general, rough, we have two kinds of consciousness. One I will call the spotlight, and the other the floodlight. The spotlight is what we call conscious attention. And that is trained into us from childhood as the most valuable form of consciousness. And the teacher in class says, pay attention. Everybody stares and looks fast at the teacher like that. That's spotlight consciousness. Fixing your mind on one thing at a time. Concentrate. And even though you may not be able to have a very long attention span, nevertheless you concentrate. You use your spotlight, one thing after another, one thing after another, flip, 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 like that. But we also have another kind of consciousness, which I'll call the floodlight. For example, you could drive your car for several miles, with a friend sitting next to you, and your spotlight consciousness will be completely absorbed in talking to your friend. Nevertheless, your floodlight consciousness will manage the driving of the car, will notice all the stoplights, the other idiots on the road, and so on, and you'll get there safely, without even thinking about it. But our culture has taught us to specialize in spotlight consciousness and to identify ourselves with that form of consciousness alone. I am my spotlight consciousness. My conscious attention, that is my ego, that is me. And very largely, we ignore the floodlight. Now, the floodlight consciousness is working all the time. Every nerve end that we have is its instrument. Now, because we have been brought up to identify ourselves with the spotlight consciousness, and the floodlight consciousness is undervalued, we have the sensation of ourselves as being just the spotlight. Just the ego that looks and attends to this and that and the other. And so we ignore and are unaware of the vast, vast extent of our being. People who by various methods become fully aware of their floodlight consciousness have what is called a mystical experience or a cosmic consciousness because they discover that the real deep, deep self that which you really are, fundamentally and forever, is the whole of being. All that there is, the works, that's you. Just as a sun or star has many rays, so the whole cosmos expresses itself. In you, and you, and you, and you, and you, with all the different variations, it dances infinite variety but every single dance that it does that is to say you 
is what the whole thing is doing. But you see, we forget it. We don't know. We, we, we've been brought up in a special way. So that we are unaware of the connection. The external world is your own body extended. Okay, so we're going to take that music in our hearts with us and we'll see that which we call I am the my E-I-M presence in your dreams and on the ship, Satnam. Satnam Ji. Aho, Takuyasin. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil, live long and prosper. And... Uh, love is all there is. <laughs> Aloha, everyone. We have won. The gig is up. Busted. Freedom, sovereignty.